until now, we've, we've been talking about the international legal issues associated with the use of force, and rightfully so, but I didn't think that we should conclude today without talking about probably the most important domestic legal issue associated with the use of force, and that is the issue of and the ongoing debate concerning whether there is a need And as the Dean indicated this morning, it's been used, the AUMF, both AUMFs have been used to justify 37 distinct military operations in 14 different countries. And so there's a reason why the debate is on. Uh, we have with us to conclude our conference today, Professor Laura Donahue from Georgetown Law School. And Laura's bio is uh, in the program who will contend that there is, in fact, a need for a new AUMF. Professor Bob Turner from our own University of Virginia Law School will submit that, no, there is no need for a new AUMF. Now, here are the rules. Here are the procedures. They're each going to have 25 minutes to make their arguments, and then they'll have five minutes to respond, remembering that this is a discussion, not a debate. And then we'll leave 15 minutes for Q&A from the audience. So 25 minutes each, five minutes response, and then 15 minutes from the audience. So with that being said, let me call upon Professor Donahue. Thanks very much, Dave. And thank you for the uh, invitation to be here today. It's lovely to see friends, uh, colleagues, and to have a chance to meet some new people as well. Uh, it is my view that it's time to rein in the executive branch in terms of its war powers uh, because they've become increasingly distended from how they were originally intended. My argument today in regard to ISIS or ISIL is that, first of all, Article II authorities are insufficient to defend what we're currently doing with regard to ISIS and ISIL. Second, that the 2001 AUMF is inapplicable to the situation. Third, the 2002 AUMF deals with the current Iraqi regime, and no, there is no UN Security Council resolution to support our military action. And fourth, the 2015 AUMF request was, of course, denied by Congress, not approved by them. Any further action against ISIS and ISIL, I will argue, would require a de congressional declaration of war, and the failure to do so results in a lack of constitutional fidelity and critical constraints on the executive branch. So I begin with the original understanding of the Constitution and the ideas animating it. The American colonists, as we know, were intimately familiar with the concept of tyranny. Charles I, who ruled England in the 17th century, was an absolute monarch. During the first five years of his reign, he called and then dismissed Parliament three times when they refused to agree to higher taxes. As a result, he ended up dissolving Parliament and ruling for 11 years without committing the legislature at all. Nevertheless, he obtained money by increasing taxes without any sanction. He used it to build up the army and the navy to prosecute overseas wars. These actions created intense hostility toward Charles I. Nevertheless, he ignored national sentiment. Scotland rebelled. Ireland stood on the brink of rebellion. And finally, he allowed Parliament to reconvene, but he objected to their actions, prompting the 1641 Grand Remonstrance, which sought to bring the military under control. 
When confronted with Parliament's 19 propositions in which Parliament claimed control of the military, his relationship with the legislature devolved into open warfare. The English Civil War ended his reign, but not the Crown's ambition. His second surviving son, James II, carried on the battle for supremacy. He built a standing army, funding it with taxes that Parliament never approved, and he imprisoned those with whom he disagreed. Now, he lost his, his crown in the Glorious Revolution, which re led to the adoption of the English Bill of Rights. England embraced a constitutional monarchy, yet structure in the 1689 Bill of Rights proved insufficient to restrain George III in his dealings with the American colonies. So in the Declaration of Independence, we, lead, we read of a list of crimes perpetrated by yet another English monarch, prompting the creation of these free and independent states. Military power and war powers were central to the colonists' grievances. He has kept amongst us in times of peace standing armies. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has acceded to quartering armed troops, cutting off our trade, and he is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation. A prince, our founders wrote, whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant as unfit to be the ruler of a free people. They concluded, we therefore representatives of this United States of America in general Congress assembled appealing to the supreme judge of the world. We have resolved that these United Colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. They have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do other things that independent states have a right to do. In the Articles of Confederation, we then read in Article 6 that the founders reserved all matters of war to Congress assembled. Article 6 reads, war powers reserved to Congress outside invasion triggered by a declaration of war. No state shall engage in war without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled unless each state be actually invaded. So each state could repel an invasion, but other than that, it was only in Congress assembled that the country could go to war. The Articles of Confederation went on to note that the declaration of war by Congress would prove the trigger for subsequent powers. The text continues, nor shall any state grant commissions to any ships or vessels of war, nor letters of mark or reprisal, except it be after a declaration of war by the United States in Congress assembled. Now, like the war powers, the framers reserved foreign affairs powers to Congress. No state without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled shall send embassy to or receive embassy from or enter into conference agreement alliance with any king or state. Now, as we all know, the Articles of Confederation proved inadequate for the challenges faced by our, our nascent country. And so the framers drafted the US Constitution. They were acutely aware of the perils of concentrated power. So even as they strengthened government, they divided between federal and state, and then amongst the federal government into the three branches. The idea is that the structure and the Bill of Rights would secure our liberty. Amongst the powers accorded, they put severe restrictions on the president's powers. This reflected their experience as Englishmen, as well as their experience as colonists, and their experience during the Articles of Confederation. The text and the history have 
a crude, if somewhat uh, you know, straightforward, division of the war power. So Congress has the authority to define and punish piracies and felonies, to declare war, uh, issue letters of mark and reprisal, and govern captures on land and water, to raise and support armies, to provide and maintain the Navy, and so on. The executive, in turn, is given the power to prosecute the war, the executive power in the vesting clause, the commander-in-chief clause, and the oath of office to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Now states, just as a note, continue to be specifically limited, as they were under the Articles of Confederation. So Congress, as a constitutional matter, has the power to move the country to a state of war, to take us from a state of peace to a state of engagement, and the president has the power to conduct that war, uh, not make the war. Now this is a, an important shift that was made during the Constitutional Convention. James Madison's records shed light on the specific clause. When considering this particular clause, the, the wording of Article 1811, Madison reports that Madison himself and Jerry moved to insert declare and strike out make war to leave to the executive the power to repel sudden attacks. Sharman, of course, thought it stood very well. The executive should be able to repel, much as the states had under the Articles of Confederation, but not to commence war. So make was, uh, uh, for him, make was better than declare, the latter narrowing the power too much for Congress. Jerry, of course, never expected to hear in a republic a motion to empower the executive alone to declare war. This was precisely what they were trying to do, was prevent what had happened in England. For Ellsworth, there was a material difference between making war, it should be harder to go into war. Therefore, you wanted the legislature to be the one to make the decision. Mason was against giving the power of war to the executive because it was not safely to be trusted with it. This was the lesson of Charles I, James II, and George III. He wanted to clog, rather facilitate war, but to facilitate peace. So we wanted the executive to be able to bring us to peace, but not to put us into war. And so we see from Madison's notes that there was a careful distinction drawn between moving the country to a state of war and prosecuting the conduct of war while still preserving for the executive the ability to repel attack. Well, why the aversion to war? Well, we look to the Federalist Papers and the Founders' writings, and we see that they were primarily concerned with both the resources involved, uh, as well as the social effects of this, and then the loss of life itself. In a country, in, in Washington's farewell address, you see him concerned that when we are drawn from so many different countries, we want to block our ability to get engaged in so many overseas conflicts. In Federalist 69, Hamilton explained that the decision was consciously made to, prever, to prevent a return to tyranny and British monarchical rule. The president was to be commander in chief. It amounted to nothing more than the supreme command and direction of the military and naval forces. All of the ideas of that, those powers of the British clean, king to declare war, to raise and regulate fleets and armies, all of that would appertain to the legislature. Thomas Jefferson similarly noted, we have already given an example, one effectual check to the dog of war by transferring the power of letting him loose to the executive, from, from the executive to the legislative body. In 1793, James Madison underscored that the executive had no independent right even to determine whether war was warranted. The power to declare war, including the power of judging the cause of war, is fully and exclusively vested in the legislature. The executive has no right in any case to decide the question whether there is or is not cause for going to war. 
Our first president, a general, interpreted the Constitution in precisely the same fashion. The Constitution vests the power of declaring war in Congress. Therefore, no offensive expedition of importance can be undertaken until after they shall have deliberated upon the subject and authorized such a measure. This was, in fact, the universal understanding of war powers at the time. William Peterson, who was one of the framers and a Supreme Court justice, thus explained uh, it was the exclusive province of Congress to change from a state of peace to a state of war. James Wilson, one of the framers and a ratifier of the Constitution, similarly noted that the system was built to prevent us from going to war. And so when on December 7th of 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor the following day, December 8th, Congress declared war against Japan, Germany, and Italy. It was an easy case. It was a paradigm case under Article 1811. In 1964, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution played a key role in authorizing the use of conventional military force in Southeast Asia. Now, the language said that Congress approves and supports the determination of the president as commander-in-chief to take all necessary measures and repel any armed attack against the forces of the United States and to prevent further aggression. There was considerable concern at the time that the measure was not sufficient for constitutional purposes. Uh, it enabled LBJ to take all necessary steps, including the use of armed force, to assist any member of protocol state of the Southeast Asia Collective Defense Treaty requesting assistance. Now, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was not withdrawn until 1971. In the case of the Korean War, 1950 to 1953, there was no domestic law enactment at all, save the funding. Truman committed troops initially as a police action. The UN authorized collective use of force. These played a, a key role in generating the War Powers Resolution, specifically the lack of an end to the military authorities. That legislation perceived, responded to a perceived overexpansion by the executive branch of its executive war-making powers. So the joint, the joint resolution of Congress uh, began in section two by stating that the intent of the resolution was to fulfill the intent of the framers of the Constitution and ensure that the collective judgment of both the Congress and the President will apply to the introduction of US armed forces into hostilities or into situations where imminent involvement in hostilities is clearly indicated by the circumstance. Um, it's worth noting that this is actually itself slippage from what the founders, as you looked at the previous language, they talked about war, not hostilities. And so even the language of the War Powers Resolution you see is slippage from the original meaning and understanding of the Constitution. It went on to state in Section 2C the constitutional interpretation for Congress of exactly what its war powers were. The constitutional powers into situations uh, are exercised only pursuant to, one, a declaration of war, two, specific statutory authorization, or three, a national emergency created by an attack on the United States, its territories or possess possessions or its armed forces. This understanding in 2C, uh, President Obama agreed with this. Now, Section 8 of the War Powers Resolution, uh, let's see, uh, underscores the appropriations uh, point here, which is specifically that it is not sufficient when Congress authorizes appropriations for military action 
that that fulfills con Congress's responsibility under Article 1811 of declaring war. And this was really a response to Vincent's dissent in Youngstown, where he said, in, 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 you know, against the court's ruling that Truman did not have the authority to seize the mill, that in fact, because Congress had appropriated the war, it should be understood as condoning the president's actions in that regard. So appropriations, however, from the War Powers Resolution forward are explicitly excluded from being sufficient uh, to infer congressional authorization for war. And so we get to the 2001 AUMF. What exactly does this resolution issued 17 years ago authorize? Well, it authorizes the president to use force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided, note past tense, in each of these cases, the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11th. And so we get to ISIL. Well, the first thing to note is the 2001 AUMF does not apply to ISIL. It is not part of Al-Qaeda. It is diametrically opposed to and, in fact, in battle with Al-Qaeda. It has different founding, different leadership, different identity, different geographic origins, different goals, different enemies, different targets, and different methods. So for instance, ISIL did not exist on 9-11. In contrast, Al-Qaeda is responsible for 9-11. ISIS only came to fruition following the U.S. attack of Iraq in 2003. It initially coalesced around al-Zarqawi, a Jordanian who refused to swear loyalty to al-Qaeda. After months of negotiation, he finally pledged his loyalty in 2004, becoming al-Qaeda in Iraq, but then later split from al-Qaeda. In contrast, al-Qaeda, which emerged before 9-11, came out of the anti-Soviet jihad in Afghanistan in the 1980s and mid-1990s. Osama bin Laden wanted to reorient a global movement. As for leadership, they have different leaders, al-Zarqawi and al-Baghdadi, uh, as opposed to Osama bin Laden and al-Zawahiri for al-Qaeda. They have different identity. From 2013, they're called the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. In 2014, it became the Islamic State. It swept across Iraq, capturing major cities like Mosul, Tikris, Stams, oil refineries, border crossings. It declared itself a caliphate, uh, and Baghdadi was the, was the caliph for it. In contrast, Al-Qaeda created a specific organization in Syria predominantly comprised of Syrians al-Nusra Front. As a Syrian spin-off, al-Baghdadi uh, declared, uh, uh, declared that al-Nusra was part of ISIL, uh, but in fact al-Nusra objected. They said, no, we are part of al-Qaeda. And in 2014, Zawahiri publicly disavowed uh, Baghdadi's group. The origins of ISIS and ISIL are Iraq and Syria. The origins of al-Qaeda are in Afghanistan. The goals are to purify the Islamic community for ISIS by attacking Shia and other religious minorities, rival jihadist groups. Al-Qaeda's objectives are different. They want to overthrow a corrupt apostate regimes in the Middle East, replace them with true Islamic governments. They do not support killing Shias. The enemies, the main enemies for ISIS and ISIL are the apostate re regimes in the Arab world, the Iraqi Shia, the Lebanese Hezbollah, Yaz, uh, Yazidis, the rival opposition groups in Syria, including al-Nusra, which is part of al-Qaeda. In contrast, al-Qaeda is targeting the West. That is what 9-11 was all about, and the attacks in Dar es Salaam and Kenya, uh, as well as the uh, other attacks that subsequently occurred. The targets themselves are different. For ISIS and ISIL, the targets are in Iraq and Syria and other Muslim countries like Libya. 
Uh, it, they might inspire lone wolves, but they certainly aren't putting their resources directly towards attacks in the West. In contrast, Al-Qaeda is. They're focusing on domestic, US and Western allies. And finally, their methods are very different. While ISIS and ISIL are trying to gain control over territory and govern it, uh, steadily consolidate and expand their position, create a government ruled by that group's understanding of Islamic law, um, have violence towards individuals that's extremely brutal, uh, which led to a backlash from Al-Qaeda uh, and the Sunni tribes. It uses artillery, massive, uh, massive forces, tanks, Terrorism is part of its broader revolutionary war. It uses mass executions and public beheadings, rape and symbolic crucifixion to terrorize populations it wants to control. In contrast, Al-Qaeda uses terrorism, really copying the Hezbollah bombings of the Marine barracks in Lebanon. It uses propaganda. It favors large-scale dramatic attacks against strategic or symbolic targets to try to win people over to its cause. If we look at the timeline, uh, the source of authority that was asserted uh, when we started going after ISIS and ISIL, initially uh, Obama uh, claimed Article 2 powers. That lasted about 24 hours before they followed it up by claiming that the 2001 AUMF was sufficient for the actions against ISIS and ISIL. Then, within a month, the 2002 AUMF, there's a wonderful exchange backward and forward on this on the Lawfare and Just Security sites. Uh, in 2015, Obama went to Congress and requested a new AUMF. Uh, Congress did not pass one. Congress did not give Obama the authority to engage in action against ISIS and ISIL. In 2017, the United States, of course, continued these strikes against uh, ISIS in Syria. So where are we in this conflict? Well, to date, uh, this was, uh, this, these are the latest numbers that are available online in Operation Inherent Resolve. We have had 24,566 strikes against an organization for which there is no declaration of war. It has cost the United States $14.3 billion going after ISIS and ISIL. Just to conclude, I would say quadrat demonstratum. It is unconstitutional for us to continue this fight against ISIS or ISIL without an explicit declaration from Congress. A declaration of war would be firmly within Article 1811, and AUMF would also be based on the 2001 and 2002 AUMF seems to be how Congress is heading on this. However, without that, Article 2 powers alone are insufficient. The 2001 AUMF is inapplicable. The 2002 AUMF dealt with the current Iraqi regime. Uh, this is not the current Iraqi regime that we are fighting. This is a small, not a small, a different organization that is fighting in Iraq. There is an argument to, to be raised that this is self-defense and in defense of Iraq and what is happening. I'm sure we'll get into this um, in the discussion afterwards. However, under the 2002 AUMF, it was dealing all of the whereas preliminary statements deal with the current government of Iraq. This is not what the current government of Iraq was when we went in. At the same time, there is no UN Security Council resolution to support under Article 3 of the 2002 AUMF. And keeping in mind that the 2015 AUMF request was denied by Congress, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck and unconstitutional. Thanks. Somebody can change the slides. Go ahead. 
two seconds. I'll reserve it. I didn't say you could reserve it. I just didn't have time left. <laughs> You're a great boy. It's such a good way to talk. It's not really a debate, but it's such a good way I should have done that for you. I will have to look at your slides later because I'm sure they were beautiful. And there is no remote here, is that right? We just hit the forward button. All right, that works. Okay, just a second. Now I'm on the clock. Okay, that works. All right, well, Laura and I have agreed to focus. I was concerned there were lots of different potential ISIS or AUMFs, and we've agreed to talk about ISIL. Uh, in addition to being named Commander-in-Chief in Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, the President is also given the general control of foreign affairs, of external of foreign intercourse. Where does the Constitution place this power? In Article 2, Section 1, which says the executive power shall be vested in the President of the United States. The framers understood the term executive power as it was used by Locke, Montesquieu, and Blackstone. This was what Locke described as the business of war, peace, leagues, and alliances. And Locke dubbed it the federative power. Well, Montesquieu, Blackstone, and others referred to it as part of the executive power there being an executive power over domestic law and an executive power over uh, foreign intercourse. And this was because it was widely understood that Congress lacked the institutional competency to act with unity of plan or unity of design, secrecy or speed and dispatch. They couldn't keep secrets, they couldn't make quick decisions, and thus this business had to be left in the hands of the executive. I first got involved in these issues in 1966 when I attended a lecture by Quincy Wright, who was then teaching at the University of Chicago. He later came here and taught for many years in our Department of Government and Foreign Affairs, where I later taught for several years. And Quincy Wright noted that the need for concentration of power for the successful conduct of foreign affairs was dwelt upon by Locke, Montesquieu, and Blackstone, the political bibles of the Constitutional Fathers. Ed Corwin, certainly one of the most distinguished constitutional scholars of the early 20th century in this country and a professor at Princeton, said the fact is that what the framers had in mind was the balanced constitution of Locke, Montesquieu, and Blackstone, which had separation of powers in domestic areas, but also had a broad range of autonomous executive power or prerogative. Lou Hinken, my, my late friend, very distinguished leading scholar on foreign affairs, noted in his 1972 book, The Control of American Foreign Relations, that the executive power was not defined because it was understood by framers raised on Locke, Montesquieu, and Blackstone. How do we know the fathers chose this definition of foreign affairs? Because they told us so. Tom Jefferson was our first Secretary of Foreign Affairs. And he, in an April 1790 memo to President Washington, he noted the Constitution had given the executive power to the president subject to certain negatives uh, uh, given to the Senate. The Senate can veto a treaty, the Senate can veto a diplomatic appointment, and so forth. And Jefferson went on to say the transaction of business with foreign nations is executive altogether. 
it belongs then to the head of that department, except as to such portions as are specially submitted to the Senate, which were to be construed strictly. Three days later, Washington wrote in his diary that he had discussed Jefferson's memo with James Madison, member of the House of Representatives, and that Madison's view agreed with Jefferson and Chief Justice John Jay that the Senate had no constitutional right to interfere in foreign affairs except for their narrowly construed exceptions. All the rest, he said, being executive and vested in the president by the Constitution. Where in the Constitution? Article 2, Section 1. Jefferson's chief rival in Washington's cabinet, Alexander Hamilton. Hold on just a second. I just realized my timer stopped. And I could go on for probably, you're timing me, okay. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was Jefferson's chief rival. And he announced three years later, as the participation of the Senate in the making of treaties and the power of the legislature to declare war are exceptions out of the general executive power vested in the president, they are to be construed strictly and not to be extended no further than is essential to, the, to their execution. And thus we find the interpretation that the executive power grant gave the president general control over foreign affairs embraced by the first president, who was also president of the Constitutional Convention, the first and third chief justices, Jay and uh, Marshall, the heads of both political parties, Jeff George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, all three authors of the Federalist Papers, and yet today law school casebooks seldom even discuss this as a grant of affirmative power. I mentioned Congress. Thomas Jefferson noted when he was president, the Constitution has made the executive the organ for managing our intercourse with foreign nations from the origin of the present government, that is George Washington's first term, to this day it has been the uniform opinion and practice the whole foreign fund was placed by the legislature on the footing of a contingent fund in which they undertake no specifications but leave the whole to the discretion of the president. Imagine that today, Congress just appropriating money for foreign intercourse and not adding hundreds of pages of constraints and restrictions, which the framers clearly would have thought were unconstitutional. And let's not forget the Supreme Court. By far the most frequently cited Supreme Court case on, separate, on foreign affairs is United States versus Curtis Wright Export Corporation, 1936 where the court noted into the field of negotiation the Senate cannot intrude and Congress itself is powerless to invade it. That's not the current view, but that was the view of the country through our, through our first 170 years or so of our history. <coughs> In Hague versus Agee, the Supreme Court noted that the court has often recognized the generally accepted view that foreign policy was the province and responsibility of the executive. And this consensus extended until late in the Vietnam War, around the early 1970s, when all of a sudden Congress started passing things like the War Powers Resolution, FISA, uh, Hughes-Ryan, and all sorts of other statutes claiming a right to access to intelligence secrets, for example. Read Federalist 64. John Jay made it clear that the president under the Constitution was left, quote, able to manage the business of intelligence as prudence may suggest. That was the understanding of all three branches. When Congress first appropriated money for foreign intercourse, they said specifically in the bill, the president shall account specifically for all such expenditures as in his judgment can be made public 
and for the amount of other expenditures so Congress could replenish the kitty. Congress could not keep secrets. Congress did not ask for national security secrets until actually about the time I started working in Congress, although I don't think there's a correlation in that. One example, J. William Fulbright, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee at a speech at Cornell Law School, noted the preeminent responsibility of the president for the formulation and conduct of American foreign policy is clear and unalterable. Now, that's not true. We can alter the Constitution. We can amend it. But short of amending the Constitution, this is the president's authority, widely understood. And note Fulbright did not just say the president is communicator in chief, <clears throat> but Congress can tell him what the policy should be. He's responsible for the formulation as well as the execution. Now let's turn to whether we need an AUMF. First of all, declare war was a term of art from the law of nations. It pertained to all out what they call perfect war, when all the people of one country were placed at war with all the people of another country in a non-defensive setting. Aggressive war. This kind of war was outlawed first in the Kellogg-Briand Treaty in 1928 and more clearly in uh, Article 2.4 of the United Nations Charter. No country has clearly declared war since World War II. That term is, that provision of the Constitution is as much an anachronism today as the provision in the same Senate's granting Congress the power to issue, to grant letters of market reprisal. These were authorizations for ship owners to take their ships out of the high seas and capture enemy ships, usually commercial ships, although they could take out a warship if they had the stones for it. Uh, and, uh, uh, but then they would bring them into port, they'd take them before a prize court, and the court would determine whether this was in fact owned by an enemy citizen. It would order the sale of the ship and the money would be distributed according to a plan set forth by law. Uh, but these letters of bark and reprisal were outlawed by the Pact of Paris in 1856. We didn't sign that, but in 1888 we announced, yes, we understand letters of market reprisal are now illegal under international law. We've not issued one since the War of 1812. And yes, Congress has the power to grant letters of market reprisal if we decided to violate international law. But essentially, since that would be illegal, that clause is an anachronism. In the same way, the kind of war formally associated with formal declarations of war has been outlawed under international law. It did not include control over force short of war. Hugo Grotius, often called the father of modern international law, noted that no declaration was required when one is repelling an invasion or, quote, seeking to punish the actual author of some crime. Think about Saddam Hussein. Think about Assad. Think about some of the other criminals out there who were violating international law and threatening the peace. Gentile, one of, a contemporary of Grotius, when war is undertaken for the purpose of necessary defense, the declaration is not at all required. Congress has formally declared war 12 times in five wars. I think you're all familiar with those. They're up in the board. Well, no, they're not. I've got time constraints. The Supreme Court held as early as 1800 that Congress could authorize the use of force without formally declaring war. In Bass versus Tingey and Talbot versus Seaman, in, in, in 1967, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee was pushing the National Commitments Resolution, and they noted that the president had the power to initiate uh, hostilities pursuant to joint resolutions such as the Gulf of Tonkin. 
And the Gulf of Tonkin was an absolute authorization for the president to use war, to use force as he deemed necessary. Not just in Vietnam, but also in Cambodia and Laos. It actually didn't mention South Vietnam in the operative language. It referred to the protocol states of the CEDAW Treaty. And those protocol states were the states of Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, later known as the Republic of Vietnam or South Vietnam. Congress has enacted 11 AUMFs in our history, but Congress has used for, has, has, sorry, but presidents have used force abroad or threatened to use force, sent forces into harm's way more than 200 times. In the Verdugo case, the Supreme Court noted the U.S. frequently employs armed forces outside of this country over 200 times for the protection of American citizens or our national security. Now, is there a need for a new AUMF? The short answer is no. First of all, and very importantly, Laura talked about we need a declaration of war. Declarations of war establish relationships between sovereign states. ISIS is not, in fact, a sovereign state. It does not have the attributes necessary for international personality for statehood. If we were to declare war against ISIS, that would greatly strengthen their claim to, in fact, be the Islamic State because that would be evidence that one of the most powerful countries in the world, perhaps the most powerful country in the world, recognizes they are, in fact, a sovereign state. Uh, declarations of war were never issued when there were not sovereign states on both sides. Uh, neither the War Powers Resolution or any other legislative act can usurp the President's powers under the Constitution. I know that's a radical claim today, but the Founding Fathers understood it clearly. Uh, indeed, a, a formal declaration of war might be the best, ISIS might well buy us dinner if we were to recognize them as a sovereign state by declaring a war. Next principle, the 2000 AUM clearly does cover ISIS. You've heard the text before, I've got it up here on the screen. First question is, who decides? And it says, the president decides. The fact that I didn't vote for him doesn't change his powers under the Constitution. Now, was, was ISIS, was, sorry, was Al-Qaeda one of those organizations the president could fairly determine was involved in the 911 attacks? Does anybody in the room doubt that Al-Qaeda had something to do with the 911 attacks? Good, good. Now, what about Al-Qaeda of Iraq? A splinter group from, from uh, Al-Qaeda. Did it? have some connection once it became part of Al-Qaeda with those attacks? Well, obviously so. But wait a minute, it changed its name, and it became more radical. I mean, if the SS in World War II had started calling itself the AA, would that have immunized its soldiers from attack? This is absurd. It was part of Al-Qaeda. It continued doing the same kinds of attacks. Yeah, there are some differences, but again, the president determines. Now, can we say that ISIS is a splinter group from Al-Qaeda? I think we can. Does anybody else agree? I, I, I hate to say this because my mom loves me, but my opinion on this is really not very important. How about the members of the United Nations Security Council? The Security Council has repeatedly and unanimously declared that ISIS is a splinter group of Al-Qaeda. 2014 UN Resolution 2170, uh, uh, let's see, reiterating its condemnation of ISIL and all other individuals, groups, undertaken entities associated with Al-Qaeda, and then went on to say, it observes that ISIL is a splinter group of Al-Qaeda. 
Resolution 2253 of 2015, recalling that ISIL is a splinter group of Al-Qaeda. I submit that when the UN Security Council unanimously declares that ISIL, or ISIS as I prefer, is a splinter group of Al-Qaeda, the president is on strong grounds when he makes the same claim. Now I think there could be very strong benefits if we could get the United States Congress to stand up behind the president, flex the nation's muscles and tell the bad guys, we're behind the president, we are going to act if you don't stop misbehaving. Sadly, I don't think that's politically possible. And I don't think it is necessary as a constitutional principle. First of all, there is nothing in the Constitution that requires an AUMF after the 911 attacks. Even Section 2C2 of the War Powers Resolution specifically noted that the President has the power without acts of Congress to use force in response to a national emergency created by attacks on the United Nations or its territories or possessions or its armed forces. In December 1984, I had a wonderful debate with Jacob Javits, former senator from New York and the author, the principal author of the War Powers Resolution, and I noted this clause is unconstitutional because it excludes the president's power to use armed forces to protect Americans abroad. And to my, I was the acting assistant secretary of state for congressional relations at the time, and to my shock, during his rebuttal, Senator Javits said, Secretary Turner is correct. He said, the president does have that power, and we tried to get the House of Representatives to put that in the bill, but they refused to do so. And I can't tell you how much I wanted in my rebuttal to say, so you passed an unconstitutional statute in violation of your oath of office, but this is a room filled with elderly Jewish men who worship Jacob Javits, the big old New York court, courtroom, and I figured I wouldn't get out of the room alive if I insulted him. And besides that, I basically liked him. I'd worked with him for five years when I worked with the Foreign Relations Committee. And he was a good man, but he was not telling the truth on this issue, and he knew better. Was there an attack on the United States on 9-1-1? I think we can agree on that one. So while I think there could be great political benefit of having a bipartisan Congress, allowing politics to stop at the water's edge in the great Vandenberg tradition, and then in, uh, enacting a new AUMF, I just don't see that happen politically. Sadly, the leaders of our parties seem to hate each other more than they do our enemies around the world, and that's very sad. Furthermore, there have been enough ISIS attacks on Americans uh, to, uh, to authorize the use of force in this case. You'll remember the San Bernardino shooting, uh, the uh, Florida nightclub where 50 people were killed. Uh, our NATO allies, you remember them, uh, a number of attacks in Europe, uh, London, Paris, France, remember in Nice, France, where the guy drove the truck into the crowd and killed uh, 80 people? Uh, Paris again? Remember under the NATO treaty, we have pledged our sacred honor to consider an armed attack against any of our NATO allies in Europe or North America to be an attack against us. What does the Constitution say when we are attacked? As president, the commander-in-chief, the president can use force without getting a declaration of war from Congress. ISIS is not a sovereign state, again. 
So as a matter of constitutional and international law, a declaration of war is not necessary, nor is an AUMF. Senator Tim Kaine, who's a very decent man, very principled man, and he has been pushing an AUMF and saying it's unconstitutional to fight without it. I think he would vote for it. But he wants to tie the president's hands and say, let's fight with one hand or maybe both hands tied behind our back. After all, we're bigger than they are, and all they want to do is cut our heads off or blow us up. So one of his provisions is this statute would sunset after three years. That's never happened before. On August 17th, 1787, uh, at the Federal Convention, James Madison and Elbers Jerry introduced an amendment to change make war to declare war, reducing the power of Congress and the power to make war to the power to declare war, a term of art from the law of nations. Right after that, somebody else moved to give Congress also the power of peace since they were to have the power of war. There are no surviving debates. All we know is that motion was defeated unanimously. The founding fathers absolutely unanimously rejected giving Congress any role in the ending of war. Now, obviously, they have the power of the purse, which means they don't have to appropriate new funds. I would argue they have no power to tell the president how to spend funds that have been appropriated, as they did in Vietnam. That's another, another issue. Uh, he also would prohibit U.S. ground forces. That's not within the power of Congress to declare war. That's part of the commander-in-chief's power in deciding how to fight the war. And finally, he would require transparency. This is a little bit ambiguous, but he seems to be saying we would announce in advance what we're going to attack, when, and perhaps with what weapons, and so forth. It's like he missed the Vietnam War. The Constitution gives Congress a veto over a decision to launch an all-out aggressive war. It does not give the Congress the power to conduct war or to tell the President how he shall conduct war. Such declarations have never told the President how to fight the war, to make battle plans public, or to surrender after three years if Congress can't reenact the statute. I sometimes wonder, three years after we started, we went into World War II. We didn't really start it. We responded to attacks on the United States. We had the Battle of the Bulge, which in a very short period killed or wounded 89,000 Americans. What would happen if Congress had been called upon about that time to reauthorize war? I'm not sure we would have gotten it. I think we might all, we might all be speaking German today. Nothing in the Constitution requires congressional authorization for the work, the president to work with allies to stop ISIS from continuing to slaughter innocent people and to kill Americans. The supremacy clause of Article 4 declares treaties to be this part of the supreme law of the land. Article 2, Section 3, both empowers and obligates the president to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. It was understood by the framers and re-debated re in 1945 during the UN Charter debates, and it was understood that the president is empowered by the Constitution to use force to fulfill our military obligations. Now, the War Powers Resolution pretends that can't be done. And then the question comes up, which prevails, a more recent law of Congress or the clear language of the Constitution itself? Some of you law students may remember a very esoteric old case called Marbury versus Madison, where the Supreme Court said a, an act of Congress repugnant to the Constitution is void. 
I would submit that is still good law. During the Jonathan Robbins affair in 1800, Congressman John Marshall uh, defended President Adams' decision to turn over a British deserter to the British Navy pursuant to an article of the Jay Treaty, an, ex an extradition clause. And he said the president is the sole organ of the nation in its external relations. He possesses the whole executive power. He holds and directs the force of the nation, and thus any act to be performed by the force of the nation is to be done through him. He's charged with executing the laws. A treaty is declared to be a law, and thus the president had the power to do this. And that view was accepted by both Republicans and Democrats. Indeed, for two months, the Republicans have been trying to push through a resolution of censoring John Adams for turning over Jonathan Robbins, uh, also known as Thomas Nast, who claimed to be not a British deserter but an American citizen from Danbury, Connecticut. And the fact that the, 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 the fathers of Danbury submitted an affidavit saying nobody here has ever heard of this guy uh, may suggest that this guy was uh, like a lot of defendants these days. Uh, you know, uh, I was trying to give her purse back to her at the ABM. I don't know why she says I was trying to steal her purse, but uh, anyway. Now, this does not affect the power of Congress to declare war against another sovereign state. That power has been affected by international law, and thank God it has. We have outlawed the type of aggressive war that was once lawful. For Congress to tell the president how to fight the conflict, to require him to reveal battle plans in advance to the enemy, is as unconstitutional as it is foolish. One minute. One minute. Okay, that's pretty good timing. The president is commander-in-chief. The Supreme Court has said repeatedly, Congress cannot direct the conduct of campaigns. First in Ex parte Milligan and more recently in the Hamdan case in 2006, where the majority uh, opposed it. And uh, with that, I think I've timed it just perfectly. And uh, Lori's going to tell you why I'm wrong, but I will be back. Oh, I love that picture of you. Do you want that down? I can take that down. Sorry. I thought it was too. I actually searched a lot. I was afraid I was going to get hit with a restraining order for stalking or something because I looked through all the pictures to find one that was especially attractive. But they all were especially attractive. And that's actionable for sure. There. Sorry, Laura. I'm walking off if you're remote. All right, that's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> all right, um, so I'm, I'm reminded again why I love debating Bob, and we actually do this about once a year on, on various topics. This is our first time engaging on ISIS and ISIL. Um, and as much as I do love, I, I love engaging with them because as, an, as a fellow historian, it's great to talk about the history. Uh, and as much as I do love engaging, I am going to say once again, I just see things very differently from you. And there are two arguments that I'd like to bring up in my rebuttal. First, on the foreign affairs argument, that, uh, that is that it is entirely in the executive hands, uh, this is just wrong. It misreads the text of the Constitution, the history of the Constitution, and political theory at the time. The second point I'll turn to then after that is uh, the attempt to support uh, the assertion that the executive has access to classified material or classified operations. Uh, that is true. It is not the the only branch with access to classified material and classified operations. And in fact, if you look across the branches, this undermines uh, Bob's argument. So first on the foreign affairs point, 
you know, he is entirely right that Locke, Montesquieu, and Blackstone did play an important role in the formation of the US Constitution. Remember, however, that Blackstone also thought that Parliament was supreme and that Locke referred to the federative power, not the executive power. And so what the founders did was they took these historical texts along with many others, not just Locke's second treaties, but the entire panoply oops, of Cook's writings. They looked at uh, Hawkins, they looked at Bracton, they looked at a range of legal treatises, they looked at a range of political theory, and they adopted a uniquely American American view. And the American view divided foreign affairs powers just as it divided war powers amongst the branches. So the, the Madisonian view, he lays this out in the Federalist Papers, is that two-thirds ratification of treaties by the Senate, uh, that the power to raise armies and declare war, that the appointments clause for ambassadorial powers and other clauses in the Constitution show that the federative power, now known as what was traditionally seen as wholly within the monarch, has been divided in the United States. Curtis Wright, in this context, it can only be seen as a concomitant of sovereignty, the fact that we have to treat with foreign nations. It does not then give the president the sole authority and foreign affairs powers. If we look at the vesting clause, which is really the origins of uh, Bob's claim that the executive has full power here, why would they continue with the powers subsequently noted, just as a textualist approach, if they intended that vesting clause to convey its own independent executive power? So it goes on to lay out the commander-in-chief authorities. It goes on to lay out the pardon power, except in cases of impeachment, the power to make treaties by and with the consent of two-thirds of the Senate. The second point to make about the vesting clause is it was actually a response to the fact that many of the colonies and states immediately after independence experimented with dual executives, that there was more than one person or body involved in the executive power. And so the Madisonian read, um, and in fact the read we get in Youngstown as well in Jackson's concurrence, is this idea that actually the vesting clause just says there will be one president. That's all it does. And then the subsequent powers go on to lay out what the president can do. The key to understanding foreign affairs, as the founders remind us in the Federalist Papers, is that of a watered down prince. It is a tamed prince who's been democratized by the colonists' view and their despairing kind of treatment of the monarchs of the past, of Charles I, who was beheaded, of James II, the Glorious Revolution, and George III's transgressions. So Hamilton, in Federalist 67, 68, and 69, writes about this watered-down and tamed prince. In Federalist 67, he writes, he, the executive, this is one of my favorite passages from the Federalist Papers, and there are many. I love Federalist 51, there's some great, great passages, but, but in this one, Hamilton says that the executive has been shown uh, to, uh, to us with the diadem sparkling on his brow and the imperial purple flowing in his train. He has been seated on a throne surrounded by minions and mistresses, giving audience to the envoys of foreign potentates and all the supercilious pomp of majesty, saying that you have, you have interpreted our understanding of the executive completely out of whack with what we actually design in the Constitution, which is a severely tamed prince. He goes on in Federalist 69 to distinguish the US president from a king in that they're limited in their terms. They can be impeached, their veto can be overridden, they they have to have the consent of the Senate for their treaties and for their appointments, and it falls to Congress to actually take the country to war, unlike the monarchs of the British monarchy. 
the first significant construction of the Constitution actually repeats this. It was Congress who established an act, uh, who, who passed an act creating the Department of Foreign Affairs. They were divided on whether the president could even fire anybody in the Foreign Affairs Department. And in the end, it was a 10-10 vote. And the vice president, John Adams, actually cast the vote in favor of Washington being able to actually fire somebody in the Department of Foreign Affairs. This was a power that was shared. On the second point uh, that I'd like to respond to, the intelligence point, the fact that the executive branch has secret programs or classification in no way means that the other branches do not or are forbidden from that realm. In fact, Congress has significant intelligence powers. The Atomic Energy Act of 1954 included provision for restricted data for nuclear matters. Executive Order 8381 in 1940, which was the first order establishing classification, cited a congressional statute in support of the authority to even have classification. Uh, they cited the statute of January 12th of 1938. The Senate and the House reserved the right to declassify material. So Senate Resolution 400 and then the rules of the House of Representatives, Rule 10G1 in 2017, uh, these rules allow for Congress to both classify and declassify materials. SISI retains control over its own records, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, one member. Members can declassify witness names. They can make information available to the Senate and the public in Rules 8 and 9. HIPSI, Rules 12A to B, have become, have extensive provisions for declassifying national security information. As soon as the executive provides it, it becomes committee material. In Rule 18, it imposes its own oath on committee members. In Rule 14, and it can release information for any other concerns, constitutional or otherwise, as may affect the public interest of the United States in Rule 14. The courts also seal and declassify materials. FOIA permits uh, the court to determine whether materials are properly classified pursuant to executive order. That's in 5 U.S.C. 552b1. In New York Times versus the United States, the court had no trouble declassifying material. In Horn versus Huddle, Chief Justice Lambert uh, unsealed an entire case at the time. There are currently 60 Fisk opinions in the public domain that have been wholly or partially declassified. And Fisk Rules of Procedure, number 62, A, the presiding judge can sua sponte release any opinion and may or may not consult with the executive branch. So too for the Fiskar, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review. Rule 20 allows the court to declassify. So on the two points uh, raised uh, by Bob that I wanted to respond to, first on the foreign affairs argument, uh, he's ignoring the broader text, the history, and the actual distinction between the different powers meted out to government to create a tamed prince, and second, on the fact that you have intelligence and classified programs, that does nothing to claim that you have exclusive power. It just means that you have some power in, an, in a classified realm. The other branches also have access to classification. I had a bunch of stuff here that I was going to go in from her first remarks, but let me just focus on her rebuttal. First of all, isn't she fantastic? I absolutely love debating Laura just because she is so good. She is as bright as any national security lawyer I know. She understands history better than I think any of them, and, uh, and she's right on much of her history. 
she's correct. The Senate has negatives under our Constitution, and that was a departure from the philosophy of Locke and Montesquieu and Blackstone. <coughs> but it was widely understood, very broadly understood, these were to be construed narrowly. Yes, they had a negative over a treaty. They had a, it was an undemocratic negative. It required two-thirds of the senators present voting to approve a treaty so the president could ratify it. They had a negative over uh, a, a diplomatic appointment and a military appointment uh, confided in 50% of the Senate. You needed a majority to confirm. But that was the limit. They were not then given the general power to tell the president how to conduct foreign affairs. I wrote a 1,700-page doctoral dissertation with over 3,000 footnotes that I am now trying to get ready to publish as a trilogy. I have two publishers at one. It's called National Security and the Constitution. And it gives all sorts of examples where Congress acknowledged that it would be inappropriate for Congress to t tell the president how to conduct foreign affairs. <coughs> Just one example, when the Secret Service Fund was first created in 1790, it said specifically the president didn't have to tell us how he spent the money. And in 1818, when somebody raised a question in the, in the House about three Americans who were traveling around Latin America claiming to represent the president, and somebody in the House said, these people haven't been confirmed by the Senate as ambassadors or anything like that, what's going on? Henry Clay stood up and said there was an, a, a contingency fund of $50,000 given to the president in which he is to use his own discretion, and it would not be a proper subject for inquiry by Congress as to how he spent that money. This was executive business. If I heard her right, she said the vesting clause was only to establish that we have one president. She's certainly right. It was a debate about having a multiple president, either a president with a cabinet that had a veto over his decisions or perhaps a triumvirate of three presidents. And some people do believe that today. In fact, it's not uncommon. But Tom Jefferson, James Madison, John Marshall, George Washington, John Jay, you know, the, the, the conventional wisdom was that the grant of executive power was the general control of foreign intercourse. And, you know, if, if Laura really accepts another view, we, we need to hear more authority from the framers, from the people who wrote the Constitution, the people who, you know, early, early leaders and so forth. She said it belongs to Congress to take the nation to war, or quoted something to that effect. Well, there are two kinds of war. There's a war, remember when the Constitution was written, every sovereign state had a right to go to war for any reason it wanted. States were the highest entity in the world. There was no world court, states were supreme. And you could go to war because you wanted to have territory. You could go to war because you wanted uh, to totally, t you know, uh, take an island or something, take treasure. Uh, if you had a really ugly son and the other guy had a really pretty daughter, you could say, I'm going to come kill all your people if you don't give me your daughter to marry my son. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff happened. And that kind of war required a declaration. And that declaration was subject to a veto or a negative by a one-house veto by Congress. Congress had to pass a law authorizing it. And there was another kind of force, defensive force, force used in self-help in response to a use of force. And that kind of force did not require a declaration of war. And indeed, that was discussed. The president can repel attacks, but he cannot commence war. He cannot, if we have a quarrel with Canada, 
The, the Canadian you know, prime minister's husband wears a suit to the ball, just like the husband to our president. Uh, you, can't, uh, uh, you can't go to war because you're angry or for vengeance or something like that. If you are responding to a threat or use of military force, the president does not need a declaration of war or formal authorization. He may well need money. He may need troops. He may need weapons. And in that extent, Congress has a great deal of control over what he or she does. She says Congress created the Department of Affairs. That's true. But one of the things that several scholars have noted, including Charles Thatch and his great The Creation of the Presidency in 1922, is that they made no specification on what the President, the Secretary did, other than he shall carry out the will of the President. Yes, we had a unitary executive. All executive power is vested in the President. Article One gives the legislative power to a House and Senate, a Congress made up of two chambers. Article Three to the Supreme Court and such inferior courts as Congress may from time to time establish. Article Two, the executive power shall be vested in a President. And thus the Secretary of State's job is not to conduct U.S. foreign policy, but rather to carry out the will of the President. Uh, and yes, it is true. They discussed who could remove the secretary, and that's another point in my favor. Why? Because the original argument, well, well, the bill doesn't say who can remove the president, but since he's appointed with the advice and consent of the Senate, obviously the president would need the advice and consent of the Senate to remove him. No, Madison got up and said, wait a minute, the removal is by its nature an executive function. Article 2, Section 1 gives the executive power to the president. Congress, or the Senate, not Congress, not part of Congress, but the Senate in its executive function is joined only in the appointment phase. And thus the Senate has nothing to do with the removal of the Secretary of Foreign Affairs, save in the case of impeachment, another provision of the Constitution. This was again a recognition. One minute, thank you. Uh, oh, this one. I've spent an awful lot of time working with Congress and leaks. I was there when they passed most of the restrictions, all of a sudden claiming a power of Congress to have intelligence secrets. In 1957, Ed Corwin in the President's Office and Powers said it was firmly established that the President is final judge of what information he gives to Congress. The Supreme Court had repeatedly taken that view, including uh, in uh, uh, Curtis Wright. But Congress, particularly under a weak president, President Ford, who had never been elected to anything but Congress, passed laws and took over presidential power. Since then, they have leaked like a sieve, and it has undermined our security left and right. I'll leave you with a teaser for Q&A. Had Congress not enacted the unconstitutional FISA statute in 1978, and I worked on it as a Senate staff member, and I have an article coming out in the next issue of the George Mason Law Review explaining why it's unconstitutional, the 911 attacks would almost certainly not have happened. Why? Because they prevented the president from doing things that courts had consistently say he had the power to do. Congress lied when they passed FISA. The Supreme Court, in, in the Keith case, said the president needs a warrant when the target of a national security surveillance is a purely domestic threat, an American with no foreign ties. Ted Kennedy and others said, oh, the Supreme Court has asked us to pass a new law 
for foreign intelligence. No. They asked the president to pass a law, a, a, a wiretap law governing domestic threats to intelligence. Justice uh, Lewis Powell wrote that opinion. I have discussed it with him. When I chaired the ABA uh, Committee on the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, I, he was our counsel, one of our counselors, and I talked to him about it. And he agreed the president had the power to do this. So, you know, the FBI figured out Zacharias Massawi was a terrorist who wanted to learn how to fly an airplane to fly it into a building. That was pretty good. They could not get a warrant because Congress had said you cannot have a FISA warrant unless you can show the target is a, an agent of a foreign power. Not somebody who goes to their meetings or likes them or wears their button around, somebody who does the bidding of a foreign power. And we could not do that because we knew nothing about Massawi. And we went to the Brits and the French and others and said, do you have anything tying this guy to a foreign power? And the Brits ignored us for 15 days. And we repeatedly went back, this is really urgent, do you have anything? A few hours after the 911 attacks, the Brits gave us a file showing he had trained at an Al-Qaeda training camp in Al-Qaeda. And the, the only way we know this is because it's in a footnote in a massive Inspector General report in the Justice Department. And they say, we don't know why the British didn't share this earlier. And I, and I do. And the answer is, we can't keep secrets. And they could not jeopardize their source by sharing it. Had they shared it, it wouldn't have helped because it took over a month to get a FISA warrant. So we'd have still been waiting for the judge. But the point is, tremendous harm has been done by congressional usurpation. I thank you. Laura, you're absolutely fantastic. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Let me... David, you point to people. Uh, here we go. Uh, just one comment, uh, and then I'll ask a question. But um, my um, conclusion I've drawn is that we will will never have a legally required AUMF uh, because if the president, <clears throat> if there is a sufficient basis, uh, the president can make the make a. Uh, can articulate a defensive position for the use of force, then he doesn't need the AUMF. If he can't articulate that position, the Congress is not going to pass anything. So, anyway. But, um, Laura, the question I've um, always been dying to ask somebody who dives into this issue is, what's the difference between making and declaring law war? Yeah, so they, they preserved the power of the president to repel territorial atta attacks on the territorial integrity of the United States. So if uh, the British, you know, sent their navy to attack the United States, they didn't have to wait for Congress to convene in order, because they, they envisioned, actually, this is in, in the... Um, in, the, in Madison's notes of the convention, he also says, well, Congress is only con going to convene once a year, so if they don't happen to be in session while we're being attacked, the president can repel. So if you make war, um, that suggests, first of all, that Congress uh, has to be part of making the war and that Congress has a role in the conduct of the war. So the commander-in-chief powers are meant to be separated out from making war itself. So for both those reasons, the repelling attack and the prosecution of the war being in the hands of the president as commander of the military, they use the, the word declare. So now only Congress can move us to a position of being at war unless we're attacked 
and in the conduct of that war, then the military reporting to the president makes the decisions about strategic moves. I, I, yeah, I, I, I largely agree. First, I agree with your first comment. I think it's, it's very perceptive. Uh, declare war was a term of art from the law of nations. It had to do with creating a relationship between one or, or between two or more sovereign states that put them in all-out war. Uh, for short of war was understood, as the Supreme Court has noted, we've done it over 200 times, uh, and so it was a much narrower term. The framer, Madison, in his notes, noted that changing the language from make war to declare war would leave the president free to respond to sudden attacks. I think that means the president could act defensively, and indeed there was somebody else later in that debate who referred to it as to act defensively but not offensively or aggressively. Aggressive war slash offensive war is, is, is illegal today. I don't think we're going to do it, although one can argue Iraq was a, uh, an, an aggressive war. I don't think it was. I think we were responding to a long history of illegal actions by Saddam Hussein. May have been a boneheaded decision, but I don't think it was aggression. Uh, but, uh, you know, declare war is a much narrower term. Uh, and uh, again, I, I think that any use of force setting that legally required a declaration of war would be unlawful. Now, I'll note that U.S. practice has, has differed from that. We declared war in 1812, and I think one can make a case that was an aggressive war. If you note that the, the senators who supported going to war were mostly from the western states who wanted to move further west and not from the New England states who were, had you know, ships, ships going out and being harassed by, by the British, uh, I, I think uh, one, one can make a case that was an aggressive war. We declared war in uh, the Mexican-American War, Spanish-American War. Both of those, you can argue, were defensive. World War I and World War II were both clearly defensive, and yet we declared war. Why? Because it served very useful domestic purposes in terms of, uh, uh, of telling the people we were at war, and it also put the world on notice. But I do not think, under the concept of declaration of war as it's been historically understood, it was necessary. We were not launching an aggressive war. Remember, aggressive war was a right of states. It was not until the, the, the uh, Hague Conventions of the early 20th century that they tried to limit it, and then they had a convention that required a 30-day ultimatum before you could attack. But the ultimatum could be for anything. You know, we want, you know, you, you got a pretty daughter, uh, you know, give her, give her to us or we're going to kill all your people. Nothing illegal about that. Uh, but again, what I argue is the, the, the types of force associated with formal declarations of war are anachronisms today, just as the power to grant letters of market reprisal, okay. which is not to say Congress has no role. This is important. Congress does not have to appropriate new money for military operations. So if the president gets into a major conflict, he needs more ammunition, more gunpowder, more aviation fuel. He has to get it from Congress. Article 1, Section 9 prohibits uh, spending money from the Treasury without appropriations made by law. Congress has a role. I do not think Congress has a role to tell him how to fight the war or how to spend the money. I don't think it's, it's, it's legal for them to pass a law saying, here's money appropriated for the war, but you can't put troops on this hill or you can only fight on Tuesday evenings or, you know, other conditions on how the war is fought. Okay, thanks, Bob. Any other questions? Okay, I think we're at the point then that uh, Professor Moore has some concluding remarks, uh, and then we'll bring a day to the close. Thank you very much, Laura and Bob, for a good discussion of AMF.
Good job. Thanks. Sorry, I wasn't usually here. Given that the hour is late, I'm going to uh, resist the urge to talk about all of the minor points, uh, which uh, I think anyone who works in this area would have uh, after listening to such a rich discussion. But instead, I'm going to talk really about two issues in Jus ad bellum law, and then go back to the court and uh, deal with two of the questions I was going to ask the panel, and we run out, ran out of time for them. The first, why has the court uh, misstated the law so poorly in dealing with use ad bellum law? And the second, which I think is an even more important question, what should we be doing about it, given the enormous importance uh, of uh, the issue? Um, let me start, however, by going back to the starting point of where do we find use ad bellum law and the starting point, I think, that we would all say is Article 2, subparagraph 4 of the United Nations Charter. Remember, in international law generally, activities are lawful unless they are otherwise uh, prohibited in international law. The prohibition on use of force in the United Nations Charter uh, is in Article 2, subparagraph 4. And yet, there has been a tendency to focus, I think, too much on Article 51. Now, this goes back uh, from my part in terms of really understanding why we needed the different focus to a wonderful doctoral dissertation that I had with one of my doctoral students at Georgetown. Uh, he was a Korean student who came to me and he said, um, I don't have a subject to work on. I'd like to work in your area here in national security law, but I don't have a subject. And I said, well, there's one thing I've been very, very interested in over the years that no one has really done any very good work on. I would like a really well done travel, that is the legislative history of the use of force provisions of the United Nations Charter. And he wrote a magnificent hundreds of pages of um, an SJD dissertation, received his doctorate. Um, and sadly, that has never been published. Uh, Laura, you ought to look into that and get this, get this published, because uh, for the most part, the travel of the UN Charter on use of force has not been understood. But if you go back and look at the travel, the starting point is the charter original language was just like basically what we were doing in Kellogg-Briand. That is, you had a prohibition for aggression, but you had nothing said about defense. And the charter was doing the same thing. This was not an effort to say that defense or anything else was illegal, because everyone under Kellogg-Briand had basically stated that the right of defense and all the other issues and use of force that existed before that that were lawful will continue uh, after Kellogg-Briand. And we were doing exactly the same thing in the initial versions of the charter. 
in come our Latin American friends and say, after seeing what happened in World War II and the failure of alliance systems and not having appropriate alliances, we want to make sure that our alliance system in this hemisphere that, that merges the Rio Treaty will have the ability to have a full right of individual and collective defense. So in the committee on the United Nations Charter that was dealing with regional arrangements, basically Article 51 was written. Where was the issue and where was the committee that was dealing with the question of use of force, prohibition of use of force generally? The answer is Committee 1. And Committee 1 started with very broad general language that said it was okay unless it was counter to the purposes and principles of the United Nations Charter. And then came the Prime Minister of Australia and said, we need to add some other language in this. We're going to add the language territorial integrity or political independence. But he went on to say what that language meant. That language meant only that you could not basically absolve another state, that is Iraq basically annexing Kuwait, or you could not alter a boundary from a state. It was not a declaration that automatically uh, a use of military force taking place on another state, for example, is illegal under the United Nations Charter. There is absolutely nothing in the Travo that indicates that um, um, the lawful use of force, including, by the way, humanitarian intervention, if we're going to look to the Charter as the starting point, um, and the use uh, Kogans in dealing with this, nothing in that Travo that basically says humanitarian intervention is illegal, nothing in that Travo, at least known to all of the delegates that were there, that said that anticipatory defense was illegal. Um, and so the real answer, the starting point, if you're going to look at use ad bellum, is Article 2, subparagraph 4. It is not Article 51. Article 51, in fact, has introduced a few things that I think are confusing generally to people. Prior to the um, negotiations leading to the UN Charter, and subsequently, including in the operation of the United Nations and the General Assembly Resolution, as well as in the International Criminal Court, we are not focused on the question of defining what is an armed attack. Uh, illegal use of force is always dealt with as aggression. Look at the title of Dr. Joram Denstein's book. He's absolutely correct, and that's the title of virtually everyone who's ever written on the question of uh, what are we looking at in lawful use of force, et cetera. There is no definition in the Charter in relation of, uh, as to uh, what is an armed attack. And the equally authentic French version uses armed, armé, aggression armé, armed aggression. Um, so there's a lot of, I think, confusion in relation to this. I also, as um, uh, was indicated 
earlier by Edwin Williamson, do not like the phrase self in terms of self-defense, which comes solely from Article 51. But the real right of defense and all the other legal rights in use of force under the UN Charter, with the exception of that dealing with regional arrangements, uh, basically come from the prohibition relating to Article 2, subparagraph 4. But Article 2, subparagraph 4 doesn't say anything about you know, self-defense. The real right is individual and collective defense. And I urge all of my students to talk individual and collective defense. Not the confusing individual and collective self-defense, which sounds as though somehow you have to be personally at stake in terms of being able to uh, be involved. Um, Dr. Uh, Joram Dinstein's absolutely correct this morning when he said no. Anyone in the world has the ability to engage lawfully in collective defense uh, in support of somebody that, that has an attack. So my starting point is, I think a lot of the modern writing about use at Bellum uh, under the charter gets it wrong because it doesn't start from the right place. The right place is Article 2, subparagraph 4, and the real history of the charter of what that means and where it came from. Um, yes, Article 51 is important. It basically gives you yet another area that if you comply is going to be lawful under the United Nations Charter. But it is not the exclusive uh, setting of lawful use of the force under the United Nations Charter. For example, the language itself doesn't really fit very well with anticipatory defense, saying if an armed attack occurs, and yet today we broadly uh, recognize anticipatory defense, if properly done under the circumstances of eminence or that paragraph 8 that we were talking about in the uh, ASIL note or the uh, 2016 statement of what the U.S. Uh, had drafted. Second question I'd like to talk about is the notion of immediacy. As you know, one of the interesting things we have done from customary international law is to read into the Charter two requirements, necessity and proportionality. That is very broadly accepted and really comes back to the earlier tradition as well as to uh, lawful use of force and lawful use of force uh, requiring necessity and proportionality. Um, Dr. Denstein, you properly had in your list and raised, and I'm very glad you did, this notion of immediacy. I think you used it correctly, but I see it used incorrectly in many settings. Immediacy can have two separate, very different meanings. The first of those is to ask the question as to the closeness of an attack. How close is it that an attack is about ready to occur before the attack occurs? Immediacy is relevant as one of the circumstances, indeed one of the most important circumstances, in dealing with the question of anticipatory defense and use ad bellum precisely on that point. So in that sense, immediacy is very important. But I think uh, we're beginning to see 
uh, sort of an adding to necessity proportionality, the notion of immediacy in general, uh, sometimes used for something very different. And that is the closeness of the response to the attack. Um, you properly noted, um, doctor, that basically there are a whole variety of reasons why we don't just simply say you've got to immediately be responding. I think you had on your list intelligence gathering. But there are a lot of others. Uh, one could be the whole effort to have a peaceful resolution of the dispute or have certain conditions met before we go into Afghanistan, for example. Or putting together the kind of military forces that are necessary to carry out the operation. Uh, which one does not automatically instantly have available. Uh, in my uh, judgment, there is no immediacy in this second sense. And so we should not generally be adding to necessity and proportionality an immediacy concept. To give you some examples where I've seen this abused as opposed to your correct statement of this, uh, Yoram, um, some years ago, when we were running a program in Sweden, the former Swedish ambassador to the United Nations right after Afghanistan came and gave me a copy of a statement he just delivered to the Swedish Military Academy on lawful use of force. It roundly condemned the United States in going into Afghanistan, saying it was too far after the fact that you could not do this, which was absurd. Uh, we tried initially to work diplomatically to avoid the issue, and then we took quite a while to put together the forces necessary uh, to go into Afghanistan. A second example is, uh, rather interestingly, the Secretary General of the United Nations in the run-up uh, in the Gulf War uh, basically uh, started saying, this was Perez de Suéar, that you could not now go into Kuwait defensively because too much time had elapsed. I immediately called uh, the legal advisor of the United Nations and said, oh, I'm sure he wouldn't have made a statement like that without a careful legal opinion, Edwin. And uh, they said to me, oh, no, 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 he's just talking on his own. Of course, just making this up on it. So I think there is some risk that it will be picked up from a setting where it makes sense in the use ad bellum uh, anticipatory defense setting and, and be thrown in generally into uh, a third component with necessity and proportionality. Now let me get to the questions about the court. Why does the court do this? And actually, we had some discussions this morning about that that I think were all on point, but I'd like to add sort of a third reason. What were the first two that we heard this morning when the issue was, was raised by a number of, of uh, members of the audience? One was that to some extent, in a few, in a few cases at least, this is simply reflecting judges taking orders or a kind of an anti-American setting that might be at work uh, or anti-whatever-the-country-is that, that may be uh, in the setting. 
And I think to some extent there's some truth in that. In the Nicaragua case, there were substantial differences between the United States and France, for example, at the time. The French judge uh, was one of those that certainly voted against us very strongly. Uh, my former colleague, Hardy Dillard, who used to be on the court and who uh, was dean of this uh, uh, law school, uh, told me over and over again he believed that the then Soviet judge simply took orders, direct orders, uh, from Moscow as to how to vote in the individual case. So I think that's, that's part of it. I don't think that's the major part of it. I think that's a small, fairly small part of it. Um, a second part of it is one that uh, was also suggested earlier, and that is that these are basically international lawyers. They don't really specialize in use of force mostly, and those that do usually have good opinions in this. And they really think they're doing a good thing by restricting uh, across the board, whether it's in the defensive uh, level or otherwise, uh, use of force. In short, most of what's going on is these are good people uh, trying to promote the rule of law, but with a very wrong conception about what we're dealing with here, which is a conjunction of aggression and defense, and a normative system that we're trying to create to make a difference to stop that aggression. And if what you're doing is constantly cutting down the defensive right over here, whether it's in use ad bellum or use in bello, what you're doing is dramatically uh, enhancing the ability of the aggressor. And they don't really reflect on that. And yet that's what they're doing by a very mistaken effort to believe they're doing good in the world and restricting uh, use of force. There's a third possibility here. I know that uh, one of the um, very greatest experts on the court was Ambassador Shabtai Rosen of, of Israel. And I used to talk with Shabtai for hours about this question of um, how you're neutral, um, how really fundamentally committed to the rule of law are we seeing in relation to the, the court. And as you look at the data, for the most part, he and I agreed that it isn't a matter, with some exceptions like the Soviet, then Soviet judge, of those from a particular country since simply supporting their own country. There's a little bit of that, but that's not most of it. But what it is, is more the normal human interest in what the economist won the Nobel Prize for some times ago, ago called government failure theory, that government officials have an interest in their own situation. What is your interest if you are a member of the International Court of Justice and under the statute of the court, you have a nine-year term, but you have the potential for a second nine-year term. Indeed, there's no restriction even on a third nine-year term. And how are you selected on that? 
a simple majority vote in the General Assembly and in the Security Council. Now normally, if we really, really want rule of law, I think we have learned to be somewhat skeptical of elected judges and to be focused on judges for life or judges for a particular uh, definite period of time. And I think Shabtai's sense was that one of the things we were seeing in a number of, of decisions in areas in the ICJ was members of the court looking forward to another vote as to their second nine-year term. All of this gets to the last point. What do we do about all of this? Um, if there really is a serious problem in the court, in one of the most important areas of international life, that is, you said, Bellum, getting it wrong, and we all know, by the way, there, there are lots of groups out there that say we're wrong on this. No, the court's totally right. But I think most of the international lawyers that really work in this area have a pretty good sense what some of the major problems are. And if we're right, what do we do about it? Do we just simply do nothing? And I think the answer is there are a number of things that we can do that might make a difference. One of, the, one of them is states need to say something. I think the best is not just individual actions, though I agree with Ashley that one of the good things about the USAD Bellum provisions in this 2016 report is the United States has said something about these issues and put officially on the record what we believe the rules are. By the way, think about this. Isn't this beautiful? Here is the United States stating what we believe our views are, not a word about the complete inconsistency on many of those provisions of the decisions of the International Court of Justice. For example, flatly from the Israeli wall case saying there's no right to respond to non-state actors uh, in a third state. Um, so just kind of an interesting <laughs> point. But uh, the U.S. is right to be putting out some of this, but we're, we can be much more effective. We need to be working with our allies and others on joint declarations. Uh, when the court gets it wrong, it is state practice ultimately uh, and authoritative statements from the international community that can correct it. We should be working with our allies, our NATO allies. There should be a NATO statement on many of these, not simply a U.S. Uh, 2016 uh, report. Indeed, my own view is I would try to see if we could get all the permanent members to agree on a few of these fundamental principles. And I am sure there are a number of those principles that the court is treating as though it was the law in which all of the permanent members would have exactly uh, the same uh, feeling. The second point is maybe we ought to be a little tougher in when some of the judges come up for re-election and actually using government power uh, to oppose uh, their uh, re-election if they have basically fundamentally misstated uh, something as seriously important as you said, Bellum Law. We might also seek to encourage the court more effectively to look at fact-finding 
And uh, that was done in the Corfew Channel case. I believe they used a, an outside fact-finding group that they requested. That could easily be done. Steve Schwabel suggested they do that in the uh, uh, Nicaragua case, but of course the court refused to do that because they frankly weren't interested uh, in the facts, but uh, trying to get them to be a little more honest in that, uh, some outside fact-finding might be helpful. Uh, but finally, let me come down to my last suggestion, which in some respects is the nuclear option uh, in dealing uh, with the court on this problem. And yet it actually, I believe, would restore the court a little more effectively, not just on, on use of force, but on a variety of other issues as well in which uh, there is this tendency to be looking toward uh, one's next election. And that is, suppose we were to work with the permanent members of the United Nations, and we might find they wouldn't agree, but suppose they would. To all of us agree that we will not vote for uh, a second term for any uh, member of the International Court of Justice. We will simply all support a first term but we will believe that it's better for the court if there are no second terms on the court, which would be more consistent with the concept of a court and the rule of law generally. Even with the five permanent members, if we all agreed, we might not always win because it's a simple majority vote in the Security Council as well as the General Assembly, but that would be a pretty powerful starting point. And when I sent a letter to the legal advisor of the State Department some years ago, making that recommendation, and um, I never received a response. You were not the legal advisor <laughs> at that time. Uh, and not surprisingly, this was, I'm sure, viewed as uh, the nuclear option that's uh, a little too nuclear. Um, and yet, it's consistent with the way we think about courts and what we would like to do and what we know about how people, good people, uh, as well as bad people, behave uh, if they're seeking a second term uh, in a court. Finally, let me thank David Graham and Murr and Bill of my, my staff, and above all, um, all of you uh, who have participated uh, so wonderfully on the panels and uh, Yoram coming from Israel, this has been a just wonderful, wonderful pleasure to see you again and to have you here and to have you make such a uh, wonderful presentation. But it is David Graham and Burn Bill and particularly David and what he's done that really, uh, that's why we're all here. He just did a fabulous job. Um, and David, thank you very, very much. Thank you all for coming. The 2016 Obama report on the legal justifications for U.S. US force abroad and other related military operations. I think I got that title right. And we're pleased to have moderating the panel this afternoon Ken Anderson from American University. So Ken, I'm going to turn it over to you and Bobby's going to join us shortly, okay? All right, thank you so much. Let me just ask if the microphone is, you can hear me? Great. Long enough close to it. Long enough close to it. We'll move it a little bit closer. 
Um, okay, well, thank you very much uh, for having us here, and um, I'd like to thank the members of the panel, actually, for um, being here from various places. Uh, so we have Rita Simeon at Human Rights First, uh, Ashley Deeks here on this faculty, and Bobby Chesney of the University of Texas. And I think for this topic, you really couldn't come up with a better panel. Well, I am not, now I am on, okay. Um, okay, so, um, so we have Rita Simeon from Human Rights First, Ashley Deeks from here at uh, University of Virginia, and Bobby Chesney from University of Texas. And I think for purposes of this panel, where we've been asked to talk about um, the use ad bellum principles, policies, uh, interpretations of law uh, found in the Obama December 2016 uh, kind of policy guidance, kind of something like a white paper, a sort of summary of policies developed uh, over a number of years. Um, it expresses these things and, um, and the folks on this panel, I think, uh, collectively know more about these things in the context, I think, especially of what the U.S. government was considering um, than you could find anywhere. So what uh, we're going to do is I'm going to start out by introducing this report and talk about what international use ad bellum law issues it brings up. And I'll do so by primarily focusing on uh, the stuff as it's laid out in the text itself. Um, but then we'll turn and we'll wind up asking a series of other questions, both about parts within that 2016 report, um, but also asking about a report that was mandated by Congress and that we'll have more explanation of um, later, uh, that resulted in a release by the Trump administration um, uh, updating, I guess one would say, reporting on, and Rita, I'm going to let you tell us what the right words are for that. Um, and so we will want to compare these two things and see what's similar, what's different, and to the extent that stuff from the uh, 2016 report is ongoing and still regarded by the U.S. government as being the basic framework approach to these uh, questions. Um, I'd also like to pose to the panel, once we reach the kind of discussion stage, uh, as to the extent to which this is shared by friends and allies, points of agreement, points of disagreement, uh, evolution of this stuff into the future, and kind of where um, one might see this going in relation to a changing uh, security environment in the world. So let me finish out uh, kind of what uh, I wanted to provide by way of introduction by saying a little bit more about the report and how the 2016 report came to be. Um, I think probably many of you would uh, be aware that over the course of the Obama administration in particular, um, it perceived keenly something that in fact stretches back to the Bush administration and particularly the uh, second Bush term. Uh, of an understanding that there were a lot of things that were being done uh, in this kind of, you know, originally the global war on terrorism and sort of successive iterations out of that, 
in which legitimacy was a key question. Legal legitimacy, moral legitimacy, legitimacy in a public sense with both the US public and uh, further abroad. And that there were many serious questions about these things, partly because some of them appeared to be just flatly wrong. Um, and other parts of it as being novel interpretations, at least in the modern context, uh, in the context of counterterrorism operations against non-state actors operating across borders, transnational in that way. Uh, and that there was kind of, at least in the view of successive U.S. administrations, gaps in what international law applicable to these situations would be and how that should be interpreted. That led by the time you get to this, really the second Bush term um, and then much more strongly into the uh, Obama years, into a series of speeches given by senior uh, officials of the administration, and in particular, from our point of view, uh, general counsels of various of the relevant agencies, uh, sometimes the attorney general, uh, sometimes the DOD general counsel, and various of these general counsels um, making speeches of this kind. Um, and these speeches were given over a series of years with the result that uh, their inconsistencies, just as policies changed over the course of that. Um, but in a way, they were sort of summarized, refined, thought out in terms of the inconsistencies over the various years, and resulted in a kind of, I guess I would say, gift from the Obama administration <laughs> to its successor. Tick, right. tick, tick. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, <laughs> Benjamin Wittes, the uh, editor-in-chief of Lawfare, is with us in spirit, partly because he's in this building. Um, uh, and he and I wrote the least read book <laughs> on the topic of the Obama administration speeches, where we sought to sort of draw these together. Um, and uh, he and I both saw this um, document as being something that we had certainly hoped for all along. That is, in some way, an evolving set of frameworks for the use of force against non-state actors across borders, counterterrorism operations, use of military force. Um, that stuff pulled together in a way that remained evolutionary, uh, but essentially was aiming at some form of institutional stability around these practices, legal interpretations, um, the bases of gaining some kind of legitimacy on this. Now, legitimacy is a very slippery term, uh, and in this context, it certainly does not mean agreement. Um, and it certainly doesn't mean that uh, even a sort of framework for the mm -hmm. use of force in these contexts uh, would involve agreement of any kind on sort of every element. So, for example, detention at Guantanamo, um, targeted killing outside of hot war zones, every one of these things sort of individually. Um, but the Obama administration and the second Bush term made, I think, serious bets that they could achieve a certain kind of legitimacy, merited or not, 
um, simply on the basis of trying to explain to the public what they thought could be explained to the public without revealing things that shouldn't be explained to the public. Um, again, I share the sense that that was actually a good thing to do, despite all the things that could not and should not be said. Um, and not everybody would agree with that. Um, but that's, to a certain extent, how this document wound up evolving. Um, so this is kind of, I say gift, but it, it is, in a way, a gift looking beyond the specific frameworks and policies developed here because the novelty of the situation that was faced, starting with 9-11 you know, or even before, uh, was one in which somebody had to reach interpretations about something, regardless of what those were, and the framework was going to matter to whoever came afterwards. Right? Path dependency, as the uh, behavioral economists like to talk about it. Uh, and in that way, I wind up um, sort of thinking that uh, the goal of institutional stability, something that isn't just the discretionary acts of one administration followed by the discretionary acts of the next administration followed by the discretionary acts of the one after that, um, that strikes me as a really bad idea. And some form of stability, I'd like to use the term institutional settlement, but that's probably too ambitious for what this document does in the context in which it's in. But that captures a sense of continuity across um, presidential administrations and including across um, partisan lines and party lines and those kinds of things as well. Um, I think it's safe to say that the drafters of this document, um, which began you know, way before the election or anything like that, nonetheless probably didn't anticipate that they would be handing the document over to the administration today. Um, and so one of the questions is going to be, gosh, Ken, this sounds like a great uh, theory about institutional stability and continuity and all the rest, but what does that actually mean in the context today? Um, and, you know, the one data point will be the Trump administration's um, uh, release that just took place um, pursuant to the updating of this document. All right, so my perspective on this is basically one of institutional settlement, institutional continuity, which uh, I hope is there, but I think is actually far too early to tell. But I do think that it was one of the primary motivations uh, standing behind this thing and the kinds of uh, international law interpretations and policies, defensible or not, that it winds up reaching. So against that background, we'll sort of go through the uh, panelists and ask people to sort of talk about the stuff that I haven't talked about, which is what it actually says about international law, uh, and take it from there. Rita, please. Sure. So I'll, I'll also, um, I think, give a little bit more um, background on how the 2016 report came to be and then how this new Trump administration update um, came to be because it's actually something that we spent a lot of time working on at Human Rights First, so have a, a slightly um, different sort of insider perspective to some extent. Um, although we're outside the executive branch, we're sort of inside the advocacy world that was pushing uh, for the 2016 report and, as well as the update to it. So, um, which is a little bit different, I think, than some of the backgrounds uh, that you've just provided. Um, 
So so rewinding a little bit back to you know 2014, 2015, um, you know there were a number of folks who had hopes that Congress might set some limits through either repealing or revising the 2001 authorization for use of military force. And I think um, as it became increasingly apparent that Congress was not likely to um, sort of rein things in or set some clear boundaries, um, it became that much more important that the Obama administration do so uh, before sort of passing things on to the next administration, whoever that might be, um, for the very reasons that you've laid out, right? Having some sort of um, continuity and clarity, um, but also something you haven't mentioned, there were sort of fears about um, further expansion um, in potentially problematic ways, and there was a desire to sort of uh, lock down some of the limitations, um, however limiting or not limiting um, you may find them to be, but at least to lock some of that in, because of you, as you've said, there's sort of eight years of very important high-level speeches where the administration laid out its positions and legal interpretations, but at the end of the day, once one administration is out, no one is really going to care what the former State Department legal advisor or the former general counsel said in a speech that now doesn't really have um, much weight um, and, and doesn't have, um, it's not able to sort of force some of that um, continuity. Uh, and so uh, a number of us, um, Human Rights First um, in particular, really sort of led the charge to uh, work with and really push and challenge the Obama administration to uh, lock down um, some of these legal interpretations and approaches into one place so that um, people weren't having to go through and, and pull up eight or ten different speeches and compare them and see, as you said, if things had changed over the course of those eight years and really figure out um, what the view was and to, to have it sort of synthesized. So, you know, as, as your, the book that you wrote with um, Ben Wittes did, sort of try to synthesize and interpret it, but um, really we were urging them to synthesize it, put it together in one place, and to put it down in a way that was more official than um, an, an informal speech. And so in, in terms of having sort of like a law-making um, ability here where you've got an actual official legal position of the entire United States government all um, in one place is just a lot more um, useful. Um, so we actually uh, drafted some uh, sort of a model for how they might do this to partly to help do some of the work but also to show them um, that like this is actually a doable project. Um, of course they did it their own way unsurprisingly um, but I think that it was uh, really helpful that they, you know, they had both the book that you all wrote to show that a synthesis was possible, um, but then also we, we drafted sort of a sample memo like this uh, for them to build on and run with. And, of course, we're very, very pleased that we did, even though we, you know, disagree with some of the legal interpretations um, that it contains. Uh, I think it's helpful still just to have the transparency. And fast forward um, to actually moving on to... Uh, the new administration coming in and the election of Donald Trump, um, there was con you know a lot of questions sort of raised about how much continuity there really would be and what kinds of changes um, his administration might make, and, and also whether we would know about any of those changes. Would they disclose those changes or just keep them secret? And um, based on that concern, um, 
we went to Congress and said, wouldn't it be great if you know you all have the power actually to make sure that if there are any changes to these legal positions and interpretations, um, that they need to say so. They need to let, um, at a minimum, need to let Congress know, and um, where appropriate, really need to let the public know as well. And that that resulted in Congressman Engel. Um, drafting an amendment to the um, National Defense Authorization Act, this section 1264, that required uh, the Trump administration to, uh, within 90 days of uh, that bill uh, taking effect, to produce a, a new framework report. And based on the 2016 report, and primarily what they were really required to do uh, was to detail any changes that they had made from the Obama administration. Not only say what those changes were, but they had to actually explain and justify those changes. They had to provide the legal basis for the changes, the factual, factual basis, and the policy justification for those changes, and they needed to detail all of that in an unclassified report to uh, key congressional committees that have a sort of a stake and interest in these questions. Um, and then the provision, however, includes an option to include some of this information in an unclassified annex, which will, or a classified annex, sorry, thank you, uh, which I'll come uh, back to. Um, and then sort of really importantly, not for today's purposes, but for going forward, a section uh, 1264 also requires uh, the, this administration and all future administrations, right, there's actually no time limit on it, that any future changes uh, must also um, be described and explained and justified in unclassified form to the relevant congressional committees within 30 days of making those changes. Um, so that's a sort of forever, ever, and after um, really important requirement. Um, so then what do we actually get, right? So we have this um, really detailed report in 2016 from the Obama administration. You know, it's 40-something pages plus, you know, another 20 pages of footnotes. So you've got this sort of massive 60-page report um, that synthesizes um, a whole bunch of issues ranging from the use of bellum issues we're talking about today, but also um, important policies on civilian casualties, targeting outside areas of active hostilities, um, detention, military commissions, sort of a whole host of um, significant issues. The Trump administration report um, at least the uh, unclassified version that is now publicly available upon Just Security, and Charlie Savage has tweeted it out so you can get your hands on it. Um, it's only about eight and a half pages that is unclassified and publicly available, but um, I think there's a lot that we can learn um, from what's in that um, eight pages and sort of what's not in there. And in some places, they indicated there is more on topic X in the classified um, portion. Um, but of course, for those of us who don't have access to it, it's really hard to know. I think to answer your sort of main question about this continuity and what has changed um, or not changed, it's really hard to know if the publicly available version just says nothing. Um, and I, I know other folks are going to get um, sort of more into the the weeds on some of the like substance of the legal issues that are raised in both versions of the report. But just to tick off, off a couple of things that. Um, are in and not in the updated version. Um, so there's a lot less international law um, 
basically the, the entire use ad bellum discussion, as far as I can tell, um, that whole section, I mean, you really can just go through the table of contents of the 2016 report and compare it to the eight um, page version that was released. And you can see that the many of the headings are still the same, but then they'll just be whole chunks that are just missing. Um, and hard to know if there's something on that in the classified version or not, if it doesn't say so. But um, the interpretation of the 2001 AUMF um, section. There's just a note that says there's more on this in the classified section. Um, there's some different new stuff on the Article II authority, which is sort of outside the scope um, of this discussion today. But the entire uh, use ad bellum international law discussion, which is like a very long, detailed section in the Obama report, is just absent um, from the eight-page public version. Um, but they do include uh, the theater by theater um, descriptions of sort of what we're doing in the seven countries that they named where the U.S. is um, conducting military operations. And they detailed in a couple places some changes or new information. You know, they talk about some of the Syria strikes that had happened since the Trump administration um, took over. And they add Niger, um, of course, to the list. Um, but they don't... Um, well, then they don't really have many changes other than that, frankly. They, um, they say in most instances, there's the exact same line is repeated that says the domestic and international legal basis for what we're doing in this country is the same as what was articulated in the 2016 report. And that's where I think that the, the folks who think that the eight-page report was sort of a giant nothing burger um, are sort of missing the point because... Yeah, if you're expecting some big, sexy, interesting, like, oh my gosh, they've had these radical departures and done something really different um, and juicy, then yeah, it's not that exciting. Um, but if the point was to establish the extent to which there is continuity and to make sure that the public and Congress are aware of whether there's continuity or not, those uh, sentences that say our legal basis is exactly the same as what was articulated previously, um, that's really, really important um, for the public to know. Let me, um, Ashley, before we um, turn to you, I was going to put this into my introduction, but then looked at the clock and thought that I was running out of time. But I think, um, I think it's probably worth it if I just walk through the sections of the ad bellum, the substance of it a little bit in the 2016 report in order to identify what's there. So there is a chapter two in the 2016 report called International Law in the U.S. Uh, use of military force and refers to the use of military forces abroad. Um, I think more accurate would be to say the use of military or other national security uses of force abroad and to second qualify that by saying um, that this, is, this document is really about uh, force directed against non-state actors. Right? That that's really what um, this is about. And so it starts from the kind of standard international law place of saying from an ad bellum perspective, uh, the United States recognizes three circumstances for where international law does not uh, prohibit the use of force, that which is authorized by the Security Council, use of force in self-defense, and third, use of force in an otherwise lawful manner with consent of the territorial state. Um, and then it proceeds to walk through each one of those, um, sort of discussing uh, applications under each. Of these, I would say the most important by far is um, the self-defense um, aspects of this. And there's a 
statement of basic principles about this and makes note of the pre-existing customary law on which this is uh, based. Um, and then turns to self-defense against non-state actors. And one of the critical issues that has been in the international debate throughout all of this time has been, can there be an armed conflict with a non-state actor cross-border? Uh, can you be at war with Al-Qaeda? Right. The US has answered that question in the affirmative for a very long time. It faces lots of pushback uh, right up to this minute um, from abroad. Um, and the second question um, is going to be, what are the threshold levels that establish that you're in an armed conflict from an ad bellum perspective? Uh, and what about that triggers in bellow rules, namely the uh, rules governing the conduct of hostilities rather than, for example, human rights law, uh, the combatant's privilege, right? I mean, the ability to engage in lawful uses of force under the rules of war um, without you know, sort of uh, consequences of being uh, held as a murderer. Um, the second, or the third section in this self-defense section talks about uh, the, again, equally contested, debated, argued over right up until this minute. Question of under what circumstances, if any, is it okay to respond in advance of any kind? That is, the imminence doctrine. Is it okay, and if so, under what circumstances can you say, we're acting now because there is some kind of um, uh, armed attack or use, uh, unlawful use of force which is imminent and what that means. Uh, the U.S. interpretation of that under the Bush through Obama administrations has been one that, uh, again, contentious. The idea of continuing imminence, the idea that a threat can be imminent, but it can also be a continuing one, and more uh, importantly, perhaps, that it, the threat, the imminent threat, can consist of a group itself, and that essentially um, dealing with the threat can require dealing with the group not tied to any particular threatened um, incident or attack. Um, fourth section, self-defense and the unable or unwilling doctrine, uh, and I'm going to just set that aside for, um, uh, for Ashley. Um, and then five, uh, the application of use ad bellum in an ongoing armed conflict. The, again, every one of these things contested, controversial, lots of pushback from lots of different places. Um, but essentially the idea that once it's game on, an armed conflict, in this case with a non-state actor group such as Al-Qaeda, doesn't stop to be game on until it's done, right? whatever exactly that means. But once it's game on, the rules of war apply, and that continues until some point of which it's game off because in some way or other as a legal matter, um, it's over. That means individual instances and individual engagements during the course of, for the United States now, this ongoing armed conflict since at least 9-11, all of the things that happen in the midst of that and against parties that are taken to be part of that armed conflict do not require any further analysis of imminence or any of those considerations. Um, 
And then finally, the consent to use force and otherwise um, lawful manners, consent by other states. Uh, let me leave that aside. Um, and then there is a section in the report that addresses the question of the end of the armed conflict, um, which was a dream of the Obama administration. It wanted to end America's wars. That was a huge part of it. And then ISIS burst forth on the scene and things got a lot more complicated. Um, and then there are various other things related to working with others that I think have enormous bearing on today's uh, rise of proxy wars using kind of various uh, non-state groups in various ways. Uh, and uh, a series of questions related to how one interfaces with allies that may have different interpretations of the law. So I'm sorry to break in and uh, add that, but I think the sort of substantive uh, international law that's in the report is um, important to getting a sense of what the disagreements are. So Ashley, with that, let me turn it to you. Great, Ken. I think that was uh, an excellent introduction overview and a good way to tee up what I was hoping to talk about. Um, which falls within the self-defense paradigm that, that Ken explained as part of the report. Um, and this is this idea of uh, how you figure out when it is acceptable to use force against a non-state actor that is operating inside some other state's territory, right? It's not a case in which a state has attacked you. It's potentially a case in which a non-state actor has attacked you. And to respond to that with force means you are, by definition, using force inside another state's territory. And so the idea that the um, United States has taken for a long time, this is not a Trump administration alone view, this is not an Obama administration alone view, this stretches back um, as far, I think, as President Carter talking about the Iranian hostage situation, um, is this idea that it is acceptable for a state to use force in self-defense inside another state's territory against a non-state actor where the territorial state is unwilling or unable to suppress the threat posed by those non-state actors. Um, I think the way to think about this in an international law sense is that it is part of the necessity inquiry, right? After you suffer an armed attack, um, your right to self-defense is potentially triggered, but to figure out if you can use force in response, you have to assess whether it's necessary for you to do so. And so what you're asking in the unwilling or unable context is, not only is it necessary for us to use force against that non-state actor that attacked us to suppress their threat, but also is it necessary to use force inside that territorial state? And in, and in asking that question, what you were assessing is whether that territorial state can manage the problem for you. That's, I think, the, the unwilling or unable test. And the reason that I wanted to talk about it today is I, that I think it's actually an issue that, um, again, as I said, it's a position that the U.S. has taken for a long time, but the Syria context has raised a couple of interesting um, nuances to and challenges to the test that I thought would be potentially in interesting to talk about. The first thing I would say um, at a 5,000-foot level is that the Obama report makes clear, I think, that the government's preference is always going to be for consent, right? The first move that, that you would engage in is, can we get the consent of the territorial state to allow us to come in and use force against those non-state actors? That is a far less contentious context. Um, you can imagine why the unwilling or unable test is more contentious, because it could be that the territorial state disagrees with your assessment that they themselves are unwilling or unable. 
And so I think we're actually, um, in Syria, it, it, this has come up in, a, in a, a couple of different ways, this contentiousness. In the beginning of the, um, the U.S. decision to use force against uh, ISIS in Iraq and Syria, Iraq was an easy case because we had the consent of Iraq. So then the assessment was that Syria, that the Assad government was unwilling or unable to suppress the threat posed by ISIS. And that seemed pretty facially clear, that he had lost control over the parts of Syria in which ISIS was operating. So that seemed, to the extent that the test is ever non-contentious, that um, application there seemed um, pretty easy. But then Russia joins, right? Then Russia says, uh, you know, President Assad, we're going to come in and we're going to start to assist you. And so that actually opened a question. I should say it was flagged by somebody who had been in one of my seminars. He wrote a lawfare post about this because he said, well, look, if Russia comes in and says to Assad, we're here to help you and we're going to target ISIS, is Syria still unwilling or unable to suppress the threat against ISIS? I think what we saw as a factual matter is that even if Russia said that it was interested in fighting ISIS, it ultimately wasn't so interested. So as a factual matter, you could still claim fairly, I think, that Syria was unwilling or unable. But you see how the introduction of allies can change that inquiry. Um, the second debate uh, harkens back to, I, I've mentioned and Ken mentioned that unwilling, unable is contentious. Um, the, I guess the question I want to uh, raise here is, um, what have other states said beyond the United States in the context of Syria? Have there been actions taken in Syria that cause us to think that the unwilling, unable test is more or less contentious than it used to be? And I'd submit, actually, that Syria offers a number of cases in which other governments have come out and clearly stated their acceptance of the unwilling or unable test. Um, sometimes in Article 51 letters, which are letters that a state submits to the Security Council uh, when it has taken an action in self-defense. So countries like Australia and Canada and the UK, in their Article 51 letters, have invoked the test as a justification for using force inside Syria in collective self-defense of Iraq. So there are still people who object to the test, who feel it's a combination of objecting to the slippery slope that you might find yourself on if you have um, made it too easy for one state to use force inside another state on pretextual grounds, coupled with, I think, the question that Ken flagged, can you be in an armed conflict with a non-state actor? So that is still um, debated. There are some states that have been inconsistent in their objections to the test. And in particular, I'm thinking of Iran and Russia. So Iran asserted the, the viability of the test when it was going in and using force in Georgia in the Pankisi Gorge against terrorists. It said that Georgia was unwilling or unable. Um, and likewise, Iran, for a long time, had used the test vis-a-vis -vis the PKK in Iraq, who they claimed were attacking them from inside Iraq. Um, but they have later made statements that seem to resist that test. And so one question is, how do you think about later in time statements um, made in a context in which they themselves were um, not actively engaged in fighting non-state actors versus using it in cases in which they were the ones fighting the non-state actors. A third area of debate, um, and Rita, Human Rights First may have views on this as well. I know the International Committee of the Red Cross does. When you use force in self-defense under an unwilling, unable theory, you are using force inside another state. And the question is then, are you in an international armed conflict with the territorial state on whose uh, territory you've just used force. 
The United States thinks, no, you're in a non-international armed conflict with a non-state actor against whom you're using force, but it doesn't necessarily affect your relationship, per se, with the territorial state. You are trying to cabin your attack only to where the non-state actors are. You're not going ahead and bombing the Ministry of Defense of the territorial state. But the ICRC says, look, you are using uh, unwelcome force on another state's territory, and you are effectively opening up an international armed conflict with that state. So that remains another area of dis dispute. Um, a, a fourth area uh, is the question about when do you have to refresh the inquiry? So this relates a little bit to the Russia example. But we're now many years, three, four years, past the opening of the conflict, the opening of our use of force inside Syria. Does the US have an obligation to revisit its analysis of whether Assad remains unwilling or unable? Mm -hmm. Now that Assad uh, is much more successful in the conflict. He seems to be winning it. ISIS has significantly diminished its power. Can we still say that Syria is unwilling or unable to suppress those residual ISIS fighters? Um, I think I'll stop there, and we can pick up some other stuff in, in comments. Okay. Bobby. Okay. So I'm going to use this time to weave together a number of things that uh, m most of which conceitedly is not strictly about USAD Bellum, uh, but it's going to pick up the theme of where we are with the 2016 and 2018 reports and, and put a little more flesh on the bones. Uh, and I'm actually going to begin by going back very briefly to the Bush administration, uh, G.W. Bush, not G.H.W., and, and re remind us all of the, the original framing of the global war on terrorism as an armed conflict with a non-state actor that was subject to the law of armed conflict but had no particular geographic borders. That is to say that uh, the law of armed conflict would apply wherever the United States and Al-Qaeda might inter interact with one another. And of course, as we all know, this was an immensely controversial claim. Um, and, and there are two particular themes, among many others, that stood out with the pushback the uh, administration received. One was a view that the law of armed conflict and the idea of an armed conflict should be geographically uh, circumscribed rather than simply extending wherever the participants might show up around the globe. And then related to that, the argument uh, by critics of the Bush administration position that human rights law uh, rather than the law of armed conflict would uh, apply as the governing uh, framework insofar as we're measuring a particular, say, use of lethal force in an area that didn't fit geographically with notions of a more traditional combat zone. Uh, and though not always clearly articulated, especially in the first term of the Bush administration, the, the, the administration's position, in effect, was that it's not that geography isn't relevant. It's that LOAC and, and circumscribed notions of LOAC, that's not how you uh, acknowledge the geographic consideration. But rather, that's the law of the UN Charter that's relevant there. So the administration position would boil down to there's an armed conflict wherever we might find al-Qaeda, yes, but that doesn't mean we can actually use those authorities at our discretion anywhere in the world insofar as someone shows up in country X for the first time and we are otherwise inclined to use force there. There's a UN Charter analysis to go through. There's a USAD Bellum analysis to go through. Um, Separately, of course, there's also the response to the human rights invocation that famously involved arguing A, if we're right that the law of armed conflict does apply wherever we're interacting with them, that's the lex specialis. That's going to displace uh, either categorically or on a rule-by-rule -rule basis. Uh, that's going to displace human rights law. And secondly, we don't accept that binding instruments of, otherwise binding instruments of 
human rights law like the ICCPR actually apply extraterritorially, so therefore we don't think the problem arises for us. All of this very much contested. So along comes the Obama administration. And I think it's fair to say that in many quarters, the expectation was that there would be a lot of pullback from these positions. Um, but in actual practice, it turned out to be otherwise on the particular points I was just emphasizing. Uh, and most notably, the Obama administration for eight years very steadfastly and successfully defended the proposition that there was an armed conflict with al-Qaeda and that it did not, from an armed conflict perspective, didn't have geographic borders. Um, Ken mentioned the speeches. I want to highlight one speech from relatively early in the Obama administration in particular. It's in the book, um, Speaking the Law, the book you should get. It's available on Amazon. <laughs> um, be sure to leave a review. Five stars, please. Uh, the John Brennan speech. The John Brennan speech when he was still a counterterrorism advisor at Harvard Law School. Uh, and the theme of the speech was practical, not actual, but practical convergence between the American position and the human rights-oriented position of critics. Um, I was there for this. It was, it was fascinating because he, he made clear early on in the speech that he was going to take the position and defend the position that, as a practical matter, the policy positions of the Obama administration overlaid on top of their legal positions closed the gap to the point where we really shouldn't argue too much anymore, or we, we at least should minimize the importance of the arguments. So, so how, did he, uh, how did he explain that? What he said was, that in those geographic locations where America was sporadically using force, that is, in the places where we were conducting drone strikes in particular, but that because of the sporadicness of the U.S. involvement and the lack of overt boots-on-the-ground presence, our critics were suggesting that those places were not governed by the law of armed conflict and that questions about the propriety of killing someone from an international law perspective should be viewed through the human rights lens, he said, we end up in the same place because the administration had adopted or was adopting a variety of policy constraints that made our uses of force in those locations turn out to be more or less compatible with what at least some versions of a right-to-life human rights law model might otherwise allow anyways. Um, this was an early public discussion of what then later on became much more formalized in the so-called PPG. The, was it the Presidential Policy Guidance? Do I have that? I get the acronym so screwed up. Uh, the PPG, which was the formalization of exactly that sort of approach. And I want to underscore the, the key elements here. And I'm glossing over a lot, but I'm, I'm going to hit the key points. It, the PPG, as a matter of policy, not claimed legal constraint, but as a matter of policy, drew a distinction between those locations that would henceforth be categorized as, quote, areas of active hostilities, areas of active hostilities, such as Afghanistan, and distinguishing them from everything else. The model was still that there is an armed conflict with al-Qaeda and its associated forces, and that that existed wherever the parties would interact with one another. But it was an acknowledgment that there's, there is some kind of difference between areas of active hostilities and other places. So what turned on this? Well, first let me say something quickly about the Obama administration's model of what the rules were in those areas of active hostilities, such as Afghanistan, um, what the law of armed conflict permitted. But let's not forget also that there's always the policy-inflected overlay of the rules of engagement. And, and just to give 
one particular example. There are innumerable examples over the years in Afghanistan where commanders, for a variety of uh, strategic, operational, tactical reasons, will overlay further constraints beyond what the law of armed conflict would, uh, would require, including limitations on um, the risk you can take with collateral damage. Um, but the basic model was that's all sort of commander's discretion. The law of armed conflict would govern. The interesting question, of course, was under this policy framework, what about the areas that are not areas of active hostilities? Um, law of armed conflict still providing the baseline, but now the idea was uh, that force would not be used except where certain conditions were met. For example, uh, target only individuals posing an imminent threat to American lives. So two things to highlight about that. Uh, the, the imposition or the apparent imposition of an imminence, imminent threat to life uh, standard, which sounds like human rights law, and then a further narrowing to make it specific to threats to American lives as opposed to uh, territorial uh, state citizens or, or allies or others. Uh, secondly, uh, and I'm not exactly going in the order of the PPG itself, but I'm just trying to hit the highlights, a near certainty, near certainty that the target that you have in mind will in fact actually be in the strike zone, a near certainty that there will be zero civilian casualties. No feasible option for capture, so that preference for capture over lethal force that is characteristic of right-to-life analyses in human rights law. Uh, and then critically, though this part's a little less clear exactly how it worked, but I think the general outline can be said pretty clearly, um, nominations for targets getting vetted at back in D.C. through an interagency process, a high-level approval process where more than just DOD would have a hack at uh, the decision whether to approve somebody. And there's all sorts of memoirs giving us lovely play-by-plays of how some of those debates played out. Now, all this goes into and is part and parcel of what's memorialized and quasi-institutionalized through the 2016 report. There are other key elements as well, and I, I think uh, Rita can probably explain it better than I can, but the transparency elements were really important here. Uh, public reporting about civilian casualties, the possibility of ex gratia payments, and so forth. Um, fast forward to the election of Donald Trump. I think it's fair to say that most observers, many of us, and certainly myself included, ex just assumed that a lot of this would change. And that that's what's exactly, as Rita said, that's what was so important about what I think of as the policy canary, that is the statutory requirement uh, to report changes. Um, and as 2017 went along, mostly through the writings of Charlie Savage at the New York Times, we got little glimpses of the internal Trump administration debate about what, if anything, ought to change in this package. By September last year, he was able to report some things. He was able to report that through a, in the midst of a sharp interagency debate, a consensus appeared to have been reached. It was pretty remarkable uh, because it appeared to keep most of the PPG elements I just described. Um, and then later on, Charlie reported that in, by October of this past year, Trump had signed off on this policy. It's not the PPG anymore. It's the PSP, which sounds like a game station of some kind. But the PSP, the Policies, Standards, and Protocols, I think. It's, it's maddening, right? But keep with me. Just The PPG had been replaced by the PSP. And insofar as you can trust Charlie's reporting and the, and the sources anonymously disclosing details to him, for we don't have this document, and it's not in, the de these details are not in the eight and a half pages that Rita described in the May 2018 report that just came out. Nonetheless, I think Charlie's got a pretty good track record, and the details seem pretty consistent, and I've not seen anyone denying that they're accurate. So what, what is the takeaway here? 
Um, let me sum up. It keeps the idea of a policy-driven distinction between areas of active hostilities and those that aren't. Incredibly, to me, uh, much surprise, it keeps the rule about civilian casualties, though I believe it, it dials down the degree of certainty from near certainty of zero casualty uh, to reasonable certainty. So that is, a, that is a loosening, but it's keeping the zero casualty expectation standard, which is, is, is certainly remarkable and not, it kind of goes against type, I suppose you could say. I think it keeps the capture preference, though that's not as clear. Uh, on the other hand, there are some things that change, and they're significant. Um, it's no longer the case that targets have to be shown to be an imminent threat to U.S. lives, which in practical terms translated into a requirement that you have a relatively senior operational planner or leadership type person. Now it, it's quite clear that the change was in the nature of allowing the full scope of law of armed conflict targeting concepts to be employed, meaning uh, members of the organized armed group in general. Um, and then even more critically, though harder to, harder to articulate exactly where the bite is, but I think this will resonate for anyone who's been involved in these sorts of interagency inter debates, no more review of the individual nominations and decisions at the White House interagency level. Rather, the authority to make the decision whether to attack has been pushed out to the commanders. Uh, this is part and parcel of a larger Trump administration push to devolve decision-making authority out into the field, which on one hand is empowering of the commanders in the field, but on the other hand, uh, it does create a little space as well for post hoc criticism, including from the commander-in-chief, and we've seen one instance of that already. Um, it suggests then that you've got this reasonably significant degree of loosening in what it means to be in one particular location as opposed to another. Now let me argue to you that it's not as significant as it seems because the PPG was never as constraining, in my opinion, as it was designed to sound like it was. Uh, I say that for a couple of reasons. First, consider the idea of this geographic distinction. Um, when that proved inconvenient at a time when the initial slate included Afghanistan and then later Iraq and Syria but did not include other locations, uh, that proved particularly inconvenient when it was a desire on the part of the Obama administration to provide air support to uh, Libyan government forces trying to retake the city of Sirte from Islamic State forces, since the nature of the aid needed was, um, you know, air attack, um, you know, close air support on unidentified members of the Islamic State. Um, they simply designated the area around CERT and its environs to be an area of active hostilities for such time as those operations were going on. Underscoring something that was obvious on paper, but there was a demonstration that this distinction, if inconvenient, could simply be turned off. Um, Trump, early on in his administration, apparently did the same thing with respect to certain areas of Yemen and Somalia. It was a continuity point with the Obama administration using that feature of a, of a policy-only framework. Um, secondly, the idea that it would be terribly constraining under the PPG in the non-active hostility zones because you're only supposed to target the particularly significant figures who are operationally planning against American targets. Um, notwithstanding that, in Somalia in particular, during the final year of the Obama administration, you had no small amount of airstrikes that really weren't squareable with and weren't attempted to be explained publicly as consistent with that particular framework and the language of self, unit self-defense, extended unit self-defense, defense of Amazon forces was generally rolled out and there, there were a number of these examples. So as is often the case with these sorts of standards, 
they can look pretty constraining, especially when we use the magic word eminence, but combining the idea of eminence with the, the idea that actually that's really last window of opportunity against a continuing threat and, and uh, the fog of war and all the rest, it's not actually that constraining. So what's interesting about this is that uh, the, the politics and, and general sense of trust associated with the Obama administration, of course, doesn't carry over to the Trump administration, quite the reverse. And so you're, you're going to see much more attention and scrutiny, and we are seeing much more attention and scrutiny, and I think that's good, uh, to whether or not it's really true that there's much constraint outside of the areas where everyone would roughly agree that there's armed conflict going on. So I think the issues of geography that, that we're supposed to be mainly talking about and that I began with, they're going to rise back to the surface. We're going to see this more and more. Um, all that said, I do feel duty-bound to say something about the UN Charter issues. And I, I guess what I would say is, uh, in keeping with what Rita pointed out, uh, I see nothing but continuity from the Bush administration through Obama to Trump now in terms of the locations where we're actually using lethal force being locations where we either have a consent argument or we have an unwilling, unable argument, and I don't see examples that are contrary to that. So I, I see a lot of consistency over time. Bobby, thank you. No. Rita did exactly what I had asked her to, which was to lay out the framework, especially for how you got from the 2016 report to the Trump report. Um, but Rita, it didn't give you a chance to really express your own views and questions and uh, thoughts about this. So I'm going to give you sort of first shot at reacting to what anybody has said on the uh, panel so far. Yeah, sure. So I'm trying to jot down probably six different, <laughs> not necessarily related things. I'm going to try to um, tick some of them off. Um, the last one of which was sort of triggered by um, this last point about the continuity between the three administrations, um, which I think, you know, may be somewhat true on sort of a macro level, um, but then there, there are a lot of differences once you sort of get down into the details. But um, one place that I will flag in particular, though, where it's not necessarily clear um, because of the the lack of transparency on the international legal bases in particular, um, it's hard to say, other than line, the lines where they said it remains the same, um, the overarching explanation and interpretation in detail is not in there, so we don't know how much of, uh, of that, those details remain, remain the same other than them saying that, you know, our, our justification for being in Afghanistan or our justification for being in Iraq, those sort of remain the same. The one place where there, I think, might be some uh, differences, or at least there's reason to think there might be a difference is with respect to Syria and the, the strikes uh, well, in response to sort of pro-Syrian and Syrian regime forces. We don't know what the Obama administration's justification for that would have been because that hadn't happened yet, so it was sort of a new development. Um, but then um, an even sort of um, stronger difference has to do with the missile strikes that the Trump administration took um, against the Syrian airfield in response to the chemical weapons attack, um, something that the Obama administration contemplated and decided not um, to use force in response to earlier uses of chemical weapons. And so I think there's um, probably a pretty strong difference in how things sort of came down on that front. Um, and that is in some of the eight-page public section um, that the Trump administration put out. Um, on some of the other points um, that 
you raised, um, I think that just sort of underscores the problem of uh, policy. So you talked about sort of Brennan and others in the Obama administration saying it's everything's okay. We've sort of, there's not that much daylight between those who think human rights law applies and those who think armed conflict rules apply because we have all these policies that get us, um, if not all the way there, at least um, a little bit closer. Um, but the problem is uh, sort of, as you said, even under the Obama administration, when there was sort of pressure to not apply those human rights-ish rules, they just didn't apply them, right? They either temporarily declared the area to be an area of active hostilities um, to which the policy didn't apply. And then, of course, when you have a new administration um, coming in, they're just not bound to the policies of the prior administration. So I think it's, you know, from a human rights perspective and for those who think human rights um, rules legally apply, um, especially the right to life, which you can sort of get around the extraterritorial application of the ICCPR um, issue when you're talking about drone strikes in particular and the right to life, which is sort of a, a most people think of as uh, a use Kogan's norm that is universally um, binding, regardless uh, of the treaty obligations or extraterritorial application of the ICCPR. Um, and then so the next uh, issue of concern for me is the transparency um, piece of it. And I think that you know the Obama administration report was so important um, because of how much detail was in there in the transparency um, the, the very sort of pro-transparency approach that they at least attempted to take, even if they didn't always succeed. Um, and on the PPG in particular, um, you know, that Brennan sort of previewed that they were developing a policy. When Obama actually signed the policy, he announced it the very next day in a big speech, and uh, the White House issued a fact sheet that detailed the substantive, if not, you know, the more in the weeds procedural aspects of the policy. And then eventually, under pressure of litigation from the ACLU, um, they released a redacted um, version of the full presidential policy guidance. Um, so there was quite a bit of transparency, at least you know, with respect to that policy. Um, and then, as you mentioned, there was an executive order on civilian casualties uh, where the administration also um, sort of voluntarily decided to uh, um, start annual reporting on civilian casualties uh, caused by U.S. strikes outside areas of active hostilities, including DOD and CIA. Uh, strikes. Um, it sort of remains to be seen whether the Trump administration will carry um, that requirement forward. That reporting um, would be due May 1st. And just as a sort of related side note to that, another provision that Congress passed um, requires reporting on civilian casualties. It's limited to DOD strikes, but it doesn't have that same outside areas of active hostilities limitation on it. It's for all U.S. Um, military operations that are reasonably suspected to have caused civilian casualties and has some other requirements in it as well. Um, but I think it's really, really troubling that um, there's been all this reporting from Charlie Savage on you know, the Trump administration considering changes to the PPG, details of what changes um, they made, and yet there has been not only no description, summary, forget the policy itself being released in, even in redacted form, but there's not, there hasn't been an announcement, there hasn't been a fact sheet, there's really been um, not even an acknowledgement that changes officially um, have been made, and uh, once again, the ACLU has FOIA'd the new policy, and the litigation response of the administration has been, like, we can neither confirm nor deny that there have even been policy changes at all, um, which is a really troubling departure from the, the past administration on that front. 
Um, and then I would sort of clarify a couple of the details uh, on, that Charlie Savage reported on the changes. And again, like we don't know if Charlie Savage got it right. Um, and it goes to the problem overall of transparency is that we don't even know which things that we, you know, like or don't like or agree with or don't agree with um, that the administration is doing because frankly, we don't know what they are. We can only speculate. Um, but there were a couple of things that I would, um, that I think are, um, have been reported a little bit different from what you said, which is the, um, we don't actually know about the capture requirement. And that's really an important piece in terms of how much daylight there is between um, applying the law of armed conflict and a, a policy that gets you somewhere in the human rights law uh, realm. Um, the, the capture, when feasible, maybe the when feasible is a little squishy, so um, doesn't quite get to the level of what human rights law requires, but at least is kind of meeting you part of the way there. There's just been no, his stories actually just don't say anything about the capture requirement. Um, and I don't think he, he or others um, that don't have access to the classified information actually just know the answer to that really important piece of the policy. Um, I think it's really important, as you notice, that they eliminated the um, continuing imminent threat, even though, again, that was sort of continuing imminent is not quite getting you to what human rights law requires. You're at least part of the way there. But by eliminating that requirement, you've, you're really way out of the ballpark of uh, a human rights um, lethal force um, standard at that point. And then they did actually keep the very um, high near certainty of no civilian harm for these strikes outside areas of active hostilities, which I think is incredibly important that they kept it. It demonstrates that they think that it, that is um, an achievable standard to have that very, very high uh, near certainty standard. Um, what they lowered to the reasonable certainty is that the target is actually present. Um, but that sort of... That raises problems about how can you be certain that there's no civilian, you know, civilians that are going to be in harm's way if you're not even sure that the person you're killing is the right person or is is there or um, that it's sort of proportionate, et cetera. Um, it, it raises some questions and some challenges, um, I think, um, on that front. Um, and then, um, and also, I think all of this sort of gets us back to the what work is the USAD Bellum um, doing here and how much more important it becomes that if um, if you don't have a, a policy overlay that is doing a lot of this work to deal with some of these um, disagreements about the appropriate legal framework and what you have um, if you don't have the interpretation of the law of armed conflict reining things in geographically then you really have to rely a lot on uh, a tough interpretation of the USAD bellum to do that work to rein in where armed conflict rules apply. And um, when you start to sort of get into broad interpretations of things like unwilling or unable, um, or broad interpretations of imminence, or you know, as sort of both this the U.S. government and the U.K. government, I suspect, will sort of get into their what their definition of imminence and how that has um, broadened out over time given threats posed by um, non-state actors and technological developments that have caused states to want to have a sort of broader view of what's an actual imminent threat. Um, and then the, the last um, point that I want to make that sort of triggered in the, the earlier discussions is that, um, to my mind, there's a, a problematic disconnect between sort of the USAD bellum and the triggering of the law of armed conflict um, in that when you're dealing with non-state actors that are operating across various um, locations. And that sort of traditionally, and I don't know, I'd be curious to know if others sort of agree with this, but um, when you have state versus state, 
and you're, you've got a use ad bellum right to act in self-defense um, because the triggering threshold for the law of armed conflict when you're talking about two states is fairly low. Um, one state attacks another, then you respond using force. Those states are using force against one another, so you trigger the law of armed conflict um, that sort of common Article II standard is, is pretty automatically met. Um, but you don't have the same triggering standard when dealing with non-state actors. It's a much higher um, threshold for the use of force because everything below it is sort of a state law enforcement um, paradigm. And so you have to have and it's sort of intensity of fighting, some sort of duration of the fighting, organization of the parties, um, threshold that has to be met, which to my mind means that you could have a situation where there is some sort of threat or there is an armed attack, but you, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have satisfied the very different criteria for an armed conflict when you're talking about non-state actors. And I think that um, the U.S. government's position is to say, well, we just apply the law of armed conflict to all uses of military force. And you know, they have a policy directive that says that that's their position. And Stephen Preston gave a speech where every single analysis that you do when the military is using forces, you get to apply in the law of armed conflict. And you don't ever have a situation where, yes, we can respond and address the threat and act in self-defense, but it doesn't have to be an armed conflict, right? Like we can, we can use military force and um, apply a sort of law enforcement human rights um, standard to it. But the way the U.S. government has been doing the legal analysis, we actually don't ever uh, get to that category, which, uh, to my mind, is a mistake. Okay. If, can, I, can I respond to a couple? Yeah, go right ahead. Real quick. Uh, I think it's really interesting to ponder this question that's raised by Rita's response to my claim that there's basically use ad bellum continuity. And so Rita's possible counterexample is the fact that the Trump administration did authorize the, the Sherat airfield strike in response to Syrian government use of chemical weapons. Um, so it is true that the Obama administration didn't actually carry out a strike. They, they did announce a red line, and infamously uh, so. The fact that it didn't wasn't followed by an airstrike, I at least I'd be interested in what others think. I definitely didn't perceive that as reflecting any anxiety about the, the Usad Bellum aspects. I, I perceive that as state what the concern about the Usad Bellum aspect was. What was the sort of criticism that? a strike against a Syrian airfield that you announce you're doing because they've used chemical weapons. Well, I mean, I would say hurrah, but not everybody <laughs> said hurrah, and what's the right, legal so the, the, the argument is, so as we've talked about throughout the day, and as, as Professor Dinstein really highlighted, you know, you're, when you're engaging in, in, in the intervention against the Islamic State in Syrian territory, you're supposed to be focused on the Islamic State. This is a separate matter. This is going directly against the Assad regime. So now you're squarely, you're not talking about unwilling and unable and the persons against whom you're right. invoking self-defense. You just have a straight up question of why is it the United States can use military force in an armed attack against the government of Syria? Um, my impression was that the decision not to follow through on that was a combination of the, the diplomatic policy and political considerations and from a legal perspective, the separation of powers domestic law concerns that became really acute after both the British and the French decided uh, to go down the road of seeking parliamentary approval, didn't get it in either case. They backed down, and it put Obama in sort of a politically impossible situation. Um, but so that leaves me interpreting that event as one in which the administration announced publicly that they might do this, and therefore you can reasonably infer they thought legally they could do it, then they back down for other unrelated reasons. So I actually view that as, as an indirect partial endorsement of, of the same position the Trump administration took. 
Can I just say, so yeah, please go. even more specifically, apparently White House counsel had said, we think that such an action would be lawful. Now, she never explained why she thought that, but she was at least willing right. to say that. And in terms of continuity, you're right that the Obama administration did not actually strike in that case. But to the extent that we think of the Syria event as a manifestation of humanitarian intervention, we do have a prior Democratic president acting in a semi-comparable situation in Kosovo, right? So it's not that we have never acted as a country in a sort of humanitarian intervention context that does not seem to fit squarely within the charter. Can I just, just yeah, add one quick thing is that I think, um, no question, I think the separation of powers and lack of authorization from Congress um, played a very significant role, but, um, but I think we just actually don't know um, in what the legal basis um, would have been um, or is under the Trump administration, right? Neither, neither administration has um, been forthcoming in providing um, that analysis. And to the extent that the Trump administration has sort of laid out, since they did actually take a strike, there have been um, calls for them to lay out their legal justification under national law. And while they've said a little bit about their domestic law justification for it, um, they have said, as far as I know, absolutely nothing about their international law justification, including in the, the eight-page report. And um, there's FOIA litigation ongoing, trying to get access to the OLC memo that reportedly exists providing uh, the legal justification. Um, but so far, all that's been reported is the Article II um, justification to uh, engage in the strike as a matter of domestic law, and we just actually don't know what the international basis is. And I could just um, add to that that uh, when I read Charlie Savage's reporting and read the rest of the reporting and note that they don't say anything about this, my own impression for what it's worth is that they don't see any political or legitimacy advantage to be gained by saying anything about the international law um, justifications because essentially they are relying on the Obama uh, and before that you know, sort of long-standing stuff out there and the continuity tacitly is actually better than saying anything at all um, for whatever that's worth. But I want to pull us back to the ad bellum questions because if you sort of take everything that's been said here about you know, what the body of the 2016 report is all about, which is in fact about the conduct rules, right? I mean, the conduct of hostilities and detention and targeting, all that stuff. Um, and yet, this is coming back to the ad bellum question. And I think a sort of even more fundamental question that kind uh, of in a way goes one step below where Rita sort of put us, is are the ad bellum considerations independent of the in bello conduct rules? Meaning, if you wanted to make the argument that these are two independent bodies of law and that the in bello rules apply when they apply and the ad bellum rules um, tell you whether it's an okay use of force or not okay use of force, but they don't tell you anything about each other. Um, then the argument for that would be, and it's a very traditional one, that where you have, in terms of the actual facts taking place, um, situations that meet up with what's in the Geneva Conventions and so on, um, then it is an armed conflict within the, uh, the in bello rules and those rules apply. And it doesn't matter um, 
whether you're the right side or the wrong side in terms of aggression or anything like that. Your conduct is subject to the limitations, but also entitled to the permissions of the conduct of hostility rules. The view which has been pressing very hard against that um, in the context of non-state actors um, in cross-border stuff where they don't look like an organized military in any usual sense um, has been, well, if you do that, then you can just pretty much turn any situation into an armed conflict for purposes of using force in that case. So don't you wind up having to meet some kind of uh, ad bellum standard in order to trigger those things? Now, I would know we haven't brought it in here, but one of the interesting questions to me has always been the extent to which the 2016, man, uh, 2016 report and, you know, the Trump very short thing, to what extent do those, are they consistent with the DOD um, Law of War Manual and what it says about this? Um, the Law of War Manual, if I'm recalling exactly the sections correctly, I think takes something which is um, uh, sort of much more it stands on its own basis, meaning that if the United States conducts military operations in the way that this is framed or in the terms used by the Law of War Manual, conducts hostilities, then the fact of the conduct of hostilities triggers right, the uh, in bello conduct rules, but then adds a very significant thing, and it says, or intends to conduct hostilities, and I'm not getting that language quite right, but the point of it being that, um, that there are uses of force which do not meet the um, uh, requirements of being an armed conflict, either in the charter use or in um, what's actually written in the treaty law of uh, in Bello versus um, customary law in some way. Um, and that the manual seems to be um, at least accepting the possibility of that position. But then it holds back on the critical issue, which is you may wind up saying, we're conducting or intending to conduct hostilities against that non-state group. And it leaves open the question of whether the permissions of the conduct rules of the Inbello permissions are triggered along with the limitations. It says the targeting has to conform to the rules of war if you're going to conduct hostilities, whether or not it's an armed conflict or anything else. Um, but then it doesn't say whether you're entitled to the permissions such as the combatant's privilege. Supposing your people are captured in that place, it doesn't quite take that next step and say that where you conduct or intend to conduct hostilities as military operations, then those are the rules that apply. I think this is saying much more strongly that the whole body of Inbello applies. Um, but then the question is, what's the force of the ad bellum uh, requirements in terms of triggering that, in terms of limitations, do the ad bellum uh, rules trigger limitations geographically? Uh, do they trigger limitations in terms of the kind of group that can be targeted? Uh, in terms of going against discrete individuals? We haven't mentioned the London attack, but, you know, uh, and I 
don't think anybody is sort of, well, I take it back. I was about to say nobody seriously thinks of that in sort of legal terms, but I'm sure that the May government has thought of it very deeply in legal terms about the kinds of language and all the rest of that that they should use. Uh, can a discrete attack against an individual be the conduct of hostilities and the whole of it and be governed by that body of law? Does the fact that that doesn't seem to square with use at bellum generally, does that matter? So let me ask the question, sorry, after that long speech. Um, what's the relationship between those two? Are they sort of standalone, each on their own bottom, or are they in some way um, linked? Um, Rita, I thought you were saying in some way that they are linked somehow. Is that? That's fine. I thought you were saying that I was saying the opposite of that. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> um, that's I, so I, I, I mean, on the one hand, I was trying to sort of caution that you shouldn't assume that just because you have a use ad bellum justification that that automatically triggers the law of armed conflict. And to take the simplest example, if you are operating based on consent, mm -hmm. um, for instance. So if you have the consent to be operating that state's territory, that eliminates the sort of UN charter sovereignty problem, but why are you applying the law of armed conflict? Mm -hmm. Unless you've done a separate analysis mm -hmm. of un under the law of armed conflict and its triggering um, tests. Um, so, I, so I think to some extent, um, my point is you have to do both analyses mm -hmm. separately, um, but that doesn't mean that they're unrelated and one doesn't have an impact on the analysis of, of the other. So, I mean, you could have the armed attack that you suffer, for instance, could be sufficiently large enough, I think, you can imagine a scenario where even in the, the NIAC non-state actor context, that it, that is sufficient to meet that triggering threshold for um, the in-bellow armed conflict. Um, Rules. So I, 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 do, I do see a relationship, but I think it's important to do a separate analysis to make sure you have satisfied both and not just say, oh, we just apply um, IHL across the board as long, you know, if we're using force. Yeah. So I, th I think your question picks up what seems to have been a perennial question for the past decade. <laughs> um, to, and, and maybe uh, you and Rita would disagree about this, but the, the way the U.S. thinks about the armed conflict with al-Qaeda and now ISIS is, um, I think it thinks it can consolidate acts of hostilities that happen in a number of geographic areas. So you can imagine having a number of three attacks in country X, two attacks in country Y, four in country Z, and say collectively, if you put all those in a bucket, they would get us over the, the threshold into a NIAC. But uh, others say, no, no, you have to look at within a particular country whether there are sufficient acts of hostilities that get you up over the NIAC. So I think, just to tease out, that those are different approaches that um, tr treat differently the, the acceptability of consolidation of these attacks to get you into the conflict. The, the other question that I think maybe you're asking, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example and see if this helps. So um, United States decides in 1998 that it wants to conduct a strike on uh, bin Laden in a training camp in Afghanistan. Um, it's going to launch a missile. It's not going to have troops on the ground. Uh, it's a one-off strike, and the likelihood that bin Laden will somehow fire back at the aircraft, fire back at the drone, is, is zero. The question is, does the military, in conducting that strike, apply the use in bellow? Does it apply the rules of proportionality and distinction and precautions? And I think the military, I think the answer is yes, and I think the military thinks the answer is yes. Um, so in that case, you are effectively applying use in bellow rules before the armed conflict starts or as the armed conflict starts, 
and it's over immediately. Does, is that a paradigm mm -hmm. you had in mind? Yes, yes. And let me just, or actually, Bobby, if you were no, no, looking. No, I was interested in what you were going to say in response to that. Um, I guess what I am worried about, and I think has probably not been articulated enough over this past 10 or 15 years, really, is the concern about you analyze each one of these incidents separately, but if you decide just in practical terms that you're going to have to respond to this by the use of military force or the use of the tools of hostilities, and then all of a sudden you're worried legally about the question of whether this is going to be an armed conflict and can we use those rules or do we have to use this other set of rules, there's a very bad incentive there to use overkill. You wind up saying, okay, well, I guess we need to do something that raises this to the threshold level of intensity and all the rest of that stuff that we would not have done absent a concern about whether we've met the legal standard or not. And I've always thought that it was a very strong reason for um, recognizing the legitimate uses of hostilities in circumstances that would not, in the way that we've mostly been talking for the past 10 or 15 years, rise to the level of a NIAC. Also, the concern that it winds up putting it on a different basis from what state-to-state -state contact would be. If you intend to conduct hostilities with some other state and absent special conditions like shot across the border and things like that, um, any kind of conflict in a hostilities form between these two winds up triggering the use of in bellow rules. And yet we wind up having what weirdly appears to be a stricter standard for a NIAC and say you can't apply them until it reaches a certain level of intensity that leaves the strategic initiative on the part of the non-state actor, which I just think is not going to go anywhere with states. I, I would agree that there's a perverse incentive there if we get too strict at where that NIAC threshold for field of application is, but it, it is higher, as Rita said. It has to be because you have to clear space for uh, law enforcement activity. Don't, don't turn all the riots and disorders into armed conflict. Uh, one thing just to complicate Ashley's uh, scenario, so when we think about uh, 1998 and the East African embassy bombings in their aftermath, because we know how it turned out, you know, there, there was one set of, well, two simultaneous sets of tomahawk strikes. But the idea was that if that didn't work, they'd try again, right? Mm -hmm. So in, in actual practice, at least the, the, the military at least had a green light contingent on commander-in-chief approval that the intelligence was sufficiently actionable and there was otherwise an appropriate set of circumstances to strike again. Famously or infamously, there were at least two instances where they came very close and ultimately didn't strike again. But um, if you look at it from the point of view not of when was force actually used, but when did they think that they might use force, when were they prepared to use force, uh, at least through 99 and into 2000, they, uh, they were in this posture. And then it gets kind of weird, and it just underscores how fuzzy this whole area is, because you get to the USS coal bombing, and a, a duplicative problem both of being unsure initially on the attribution, and then by the time they became sure, a sense on the part of the newly, uh, newly minted Bush administration that maybe the event had become too stale. Now, that wasn't necessarily a legal judgment, uh, might have been better characterized as a diplomatic and political judgment about how weird it would look to come out later on, even if it actually fits the model that uh, Professor Dinstein described earlier, where sometimes the intelligence doesn't develop till much later, and you can still have that responsive strike. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is, um, when we look at the uh, sporadicness or isolation of these seemingly one-off strikes, 
we shouldn't necessarily assume it's quite as sporadic as, as it seems, and that's not even counting for the pos- accounting for the possibility of clandestine DOD activity or covert CIA activity that may further muddy the waters, but we just don't know about it. I am going to open things up to uh, questions from the audience, and we'll start here. I think we've got about um, 10, 12 minutes. And I think we want a microphone to Charlie. Here it comes. Just uh, one quick observation about the Syria strike. There were 800 U.S. troops on the ground in Syria at the time, and that might have been a factor that was considered. I want to ask a really kind of two, two questions, really. One, what, has, what does the United States stand to gain with more transparency? I can see transparency on the, on the 20,000-foot level in terms of the broad legal parameters. But when we get down to telling the adversary that you're not going to be struck, and what, if, there are any, if you keep a civilian around you, you're not going to be struck, what, what is the advantage to that? And did the Obama administration gain anything, gain supporters because they disclosed that particular uh, tactical policy decision? And then the, the other broad question is, how does all this apply to a potential strike with North Korea? And, um, and Professor Dinstein absolutely disagrees with me on this because I just read your entry in the uh, Max Planck uh, Encyclopedia, The Use of Force, that just came out. Uh, what do you think about the role of armistice law? In other words, uh, armistice law, traditionally, you don't need a use ad bellum. And per- Professor Dinstein, and I, I stand to be corrected by you, you pretty much say it's dead and there is no such thing. But the UN is still has a, a military command in, in uh, Korea and so forth. And do you really need a use ad bellum justification? Wow. Uh, I can take the first question. Please. <laughs> I think it was aimed at no, me because we've the had first this question. <laughs> we've, and, and maybe we have different answers to it. But um, so one, I would um, push back a little bit just on whether that's even the right question, right? So I think it's an important question, but I don't think like what does the administration have to gain from transparency is like the only question, right? Because transparency is really important for democracy, um, both for just for accountability and oversight. Um, we need to know what. Um, our, our government is doing um, and on, on what uh, basis. So I think there's just sort of a, a really important just inherent um, value um, and necessity for some minimum level of transparency. Um, but I think um, there is actually a lot for the administration um, to gain on national security and use of force transparency in a number of different ways. Um, a really uh, important letter that I would point people to that was sent to the um, Trump administration actually just about one year ago, so shortly after uh, Trump took over, um, you know, more than three dozen former very high-level national security officials wrote to the Trump administration on the, the sort of suite of use of force issues, and one of their top messages to the incoming Trump administration was the importance of transparency on these issues for the legitimacy of U.S. operations and why that is so essential for um, cooperation from allies that are so essential to the counterterrorism fight, um, for reducing and preventing terrorist recruitment and propaganda, for gaining support of local populations on the ground um, and intel that we need, um, and also just sort of like the whole winning hearts and minds. Um, of course. Very loud. <laughs> <laughs> Being dogmatic about this because recording it for 
there wasn't a single military person. And they were all politicos of the Obama administration. And I'm open to the idea of, of what they were saying, but is there any data to support that? And when you ask people, they don't, it's their speculation, it's their mirror imaging of what other people in other cultures might think. And if there's data to support it, I think that's, that's something different. And Rita, I'm going to say very fast response because I want to hear about North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, well, first of all, there, there were folks um, from both Democratic and Republican administrations who signed onto that letter. And then in terms of data, I actually think that's a, a place where more accountability and transparency is really important, right? We've been um, involved in these armed conflicts for 17 plus years now for some of them and um, sort of what do we have to what extent is what we're doing um, effective to what extent are we actually you know creating more terrorists um, or, or not right it, it's a difficult thing to quantify but I think it's really important that we are asking those questions and actually conducting that analysis to show um, what's working and what's not North Korea Oh, can I just say one more thing on that? I actually think, Charlie, there might be another slightly more instrumental reason, and that is uh, sort of a pineo juris in state practice, right? 66-page document from the United States that very clearly articulates legal theories, legal interpretations, the opinio juris. No other state has ever put out anything like this. Is it going to persuade the rest of the world forever and all time that this is the right interpretation? No. But is it a valuable weight on those scales for a, for a sort of long-term thing? Yes. I agree with that, but when you get down to telling me that is a very specific tactic of Obama's you know, if, if, yeah, you're if worried you about it. you're worried about incentivizing human shields. I yeah. think. Yeah. All right. Um, North Korea. Now, prefacing North Korea, okay. just to say, oh, did you want to weigh in on this? No, go ahead. Okay. Um, we've been talking because of the framework of this document, essentially about uh, actions against non-state actors. But uh, I think a lot of people in this room would probably put money that the primary questions that are going to be arising over the next 20 years, many, many of them are going to be state-on-state -state tensions, conflicts of various kinds, and that non-state actors are not the only kind of national security issue, and North Korea sort of puts that on the table. Um, I'm going to interpret the North Korea question to be... Um, what would be the use ad bellum arguments for and against for what the administration articulated, and I think Julian Koo put it, or somebody put it, uh, the bloody nose strategy, right? We're not, is that lawful? How does one frame the use ad bellum um, arguments? Yeah, everybody wants to go first. <laughs> I'll, I'll say a few things. Okay. Um, I don't think any of us. It, it seems clear none of us super want to jump on that hand grenade in part because you'd want to have the very specific facts about, okay, is there, has there been a right. new development with ICBM technology? Has there been a particular intelligence reason to think that we've inched closer to some sort of, you know, attack on Seoul? Has there been some provocation that actually did involve the DPRK actually, as they often have done in the past, using force across the border against our allies? Um, so having said all that, I won't, I'll say, so I can't decide until I know more. Um, I, I hadn't thought much about the armistice law question until you said it. So I'm going to go see your post, and I will go look at the entry as well. I do think it raises an interesting question. It, it highlights how... It's, 
so everyone needs to check that out. It's definitely worth paying attention to. It does seem, it calls to mind the question of, you know, looking back to 2003 in arguments mm -hmm. about perhaps the authorities already there drawing on armistice-related. I, I realize it's a little bit different, but um, you have to wonder whether the reaction to 2003 perhaps puts a spike in any such line of thinking. Um, that'd be something I'd want to think about. Um, it's, it's a little hard to imagine how we'd get any... Bearing in mind that this isn't an argument that's likely to come before a particular legal decision maker the way a domestic legal dispute would. So then we have to ask, so why are we having these particular arguments about what the United States might do with North Korea? It's because the quality of our legal argument will have some impact, some impact on the degree of domestic political support we have for the policy and a lot of impact on the international diplomatic support and cooperation. And so then the question becomes, if you can come up with a pretty clever armistice-related argument, would it cut any ice within either of those audiences in an environment where it's really not going to get briefed and resolved in sort of a court-like fashion, most likely, though I guess one never knows. I think the lesson of 2003 is probably not, which is not to say that the argument shouldn't be developed to its fullest if it comes to that, but I wouldn't put a lot of, uh, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in it mattering with the actual audiences for whom we would want to have the best possible arguments. So I would just say um, the 66-page document does, in fact, articulate um, how the Obama administration thought about the imminence question in the mm -hmm. anticipatory self-defense world. And of course, um, as many of you know, uh, there, there are different um, temporal tolerances for uh, use of force and self-defense before the armed attack manifests itself. So the most modest pre-attack self-defense is the Caroline imminent standard. The Bush administration articulated something that is further back in time from the actual um, uh, consolidation of the armed attack, and this is this idea of preemptive self-defense. So one thing that, that scholars have thought about and worried about and states have thought and worried about is how do you avoid a, a slippery slope that gets you too, too far from the actual manifestation of the attack? And one thing that, that states and scholars have done is they've thought about and identified factors that they think are relevant to assessing the legitimacy of a, a, a pre preventive, pre sorry, preemptive self-defense move. And so that's what the, the document here in the Obama um, 66-page report does is it, it trots out factors that people like Brian Egan had talked about in their speeches, uh, things like the nature and immediacy of the threat, so immediacy still being a relevant factor, the probability of an attack, and whether the anticipated attack is part of a continuing pattern of activity and so on. So my guess is that within the administration, if this is a topic of conversation, they are working through the applicability of these factors based on the intelligence that they have and that we don't. Do we have time for one more question, Dave? One or two. One or two, great. Okay, Mr. Williams. Well, having had my fill this morning, maybe I shouldn't take up the last slot, but uh, let me just uh, a couple of quick uh, comments. Uh, one on the um, uh, Syria and uh, the Obama um, uh, question. Now, we were we had we were engaged in hostilities in Syria prior to the emergence of ISIL. So, and the Obama administration did not come forward with either a uh, domestic or international justification. In fact, we had a discussion at an advisory committee on the State Department advisory committee on international law uh, meeting as to whether or not we could justify. Um, whether or not the free Syria, this uh, <laughs> movement, 
uh, could meet the definitions of a state and therefore we could do the Syria operation on a collective self-defense basis. So, and then along comes this red line and the, um, and I don't know if we're engaging with ISIL at that point, but anyway. Um, and I think he could have made, as uh, Trump could have made, a self-defense argument on the chemical weapons uh, issue. Uh, now Trump had the addition of the ISIL, so that helped him out. On this, um, I'm sorry, I'm, and I guess in my rustiness, I've missed um, a lot of the questions on the <clears throat> rising to the level of the NIAC and so forth. Uh, but uh, but um, and I recognize that you know you know you want to you want to make a distinction between armed conflict and um, riots or what have you, but I think you are draw. I think you are giving too much importance to that distinction, and I think it ought to be quite easy to find that one is in an armed conflict, and I think you're drawing some incorrect legal conclusions um, on the where there have been some uh, situations of non-action, um, and there could be a humpteen reasons why uh, the Brits have not resort, had done a nuclear strike on the Soviets, I mean on the Russians, because of the Salisbury poisoning. So um, don't jump to those conclusions. The 98 um, Obama um, bin Laden attack, I mean the thing that makes that difficult to analyze is again the Clinton administration never came out with a, um, a use of force justification. And um, so, um, and then the third on North Korea, I think there's just no question about it that the North, that if there is a, a, a strike on North Korea, it will be a self-defense strike because, of the, because the threat has, has risen to that level that it's justified on the concept of self-defense. Now, I don't think that when you get through with the hand-wringing over what eminence is in either principle eight, um, which is just repeated verbatim by Brian in his speech, and basically that's all that paragraph in the Obama report relies on in its construction of eminence, except it adds the sentence from uh, Brennan's speech, which I think closes whatever gaps they are. And so I think if you look at that language and, okay, so the, the North Koreans will not have the um, intercontinental ballistic missile capability until somewhere between two months and two years. Okay, you can't do a uh, strike today on the self-defense basis, but you can do it in two months. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one thing that we haven't really talked about um, on this panel so far is sort of the underlying um, purpose of the UN Charter in the first place. And I think, you know, that um, Bethlehem's principle number eight that is cited in the framework report and that the UK legal advisor also um, spelled out um, in a speech that, you know, there has been, as you said, an effort to build some opinio juris on that front. I think that is it's evidence of states that are trying to grapple with very real threats, but at the same time, um, the purpose of the prohibition on the use of force in the UN Charter is that 
going to war is not meant, we're not supposed to have that be our knee-jerk first response, right? The, if we want to prevent another all-out world war, we need a mechanism to force states to deal with um, problems, issues, threats, concerns um, in every other possible way before resorting to force and only resorting to force in a very narrow set of circumstances. And you know, if you go to the text of Article 51, it's if an armed attack occurs. And most states sort of have interpreted that or stretched that to say, well, you don't have to wait till you know the, the bomb has actually landed, but how far back can you go before that? Um, you know, how, how imminent does it need to be? And I think when you look at sort of where the charter started from and the actual text of Article 51, and then you compare that to um, that paragraph on imminent armed attacks in the 2016 report, um, we're getting uh, pretty dangerously far afield from the original purpose but at the same time, there's some really important real threats and new um, weapons technology that we also have to grapple with. So I, I think it's a real challenge, but one where we shouldn't uh, lose sight of the original big picture intent where we get so singularly focused on the immediate threat that is before us that we aren't necessarily looking at the grand scheme of things that um, the UN Charter was designed to prevent. I'm going to take that as... Um, the first in a set of offers to sort of sum up because I think we are actually. Um, anybody want to make sort of a closing um, statement? I think this actually does, first of all, point to something that we never really directly addressed. Because we were focused, as this document is, on the self-defense rationales and the self-defense um, issues, and I agree completely that it can lead us to a particular patch of weeds um, without sort of looking above and seeing at what the sort of um, larger architecture uh, is. Um, all right, if there's no further comments people would like to make, then thank you very much, and uh, we're done. I would like to introduce uh, Dean Risa Golubov who will start our conference off today. Dean Goloboff is the 12th and the first female dean of the University of Virginia School of Law. She is a nationally renowned legal historian whose scholarship and teaching focuses on American constitutional and civil rights law, and especially their historical development in the 20th century. She is, in addition to being on our faculty, an affiliated scholar at the Miller Center and a faculty affiliate at the Carter Woodson Institute for African American and, and uh, African Studies. In 2012, she was named a distinguished lecturer by the Organization of American Historians. She has also won the University of Virginia's All-University Teaching Award. But there's something even more special about Dean Golubov, and that is uh, her first two books won virtually every major prize that one can win. Particularly, her first book, Lost Promise of Civil Rights, won the 2010 Order of the Coif Biennial Book Award, as well as the James Willard Hurst Prize. Now, some of you may not know uh, that the Order of the Coif Award is literally the highest award given for, a, for legal scholarship. We have no Nobel Prize uh, in law. It really, in the United States, is the Order of the Coif Award. 
So to win the Order of the Koef Award for your first book is quite an achievement. But then she went on with her second book, Vagrant Nation, Police Power, Constitutional Change in the Making of the 1960s, which was supported both by a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Frederick Burkhart Residential Fellowship from the American Council of Learned Societies. It then went on to win the American Historical Association's Littleton Griswold Prize, the Lillian Smith Book Award, the John Philip Reed Book Award, and the David Langan Prize in American Legal History, among other honors. How many more were there, uh, Frisa? So in any event, we are specially uh, uh, privileged at Virginia to have this wonderful lady as our dean, um, who is uh, literally one of the country's top uh, legal theoreticians, as well as a wonderful, wonderful human being with the great people skills that one always hopes their dean will have. Dean Golubov. Thank you, John, for that lovely introduction. I fear it was longer than my welcome remarks, but, but it was very nice, and I appreciate it. Uh, it's wonderful to see you all here today, and I want to welcome you to the University of Virginia Law School, uh, to Charlottesville. You are the hardy, intrepid souls who made it uh, despite the snow. Uh, and welcome you to the Center for National Security Laws Conference on Use of Bellum, Use of Force Principles for the 21st Century. Today will be an assessment of the legal framework for the use of U.S. military force in today's global environment, uh, with U.S. forces currently deployed and actively engaged on so many fronts. The subject is not only timely, but it's of huge, significant, strategic importance. Uh, you'll be looking at this topic from several perspectives, and I say you, sadly, I can't spend the day with you. I would if I could. Um, First, you'll begin this morning with an examination of the extraterritorial legal responses to counter international terrorism, which is a topic particularly relevant to the legal issues surrounding the use of force in a world in which states are consistently faced with terrorist activities conducted by non-state armed groups. Um, we are particularly pleased to have with us to address this topic Professor Yoram Dinstein, former dean himself of Tel Aviv University Law School. Uh, then the conference will explore the decisions of the International Court of Justice regarding the use of force, which have not, as some of you might know, always met with universal approval. And our own Professor Joan Norton Moore uh, will moderate a panel that will examine selected ICJ cases that have focused on instances of the use of force undertaken by members of the international community. Uh, I'm sad to learn uh, that the Judge Advocate General of the Army had to uh, cancel his appearance at lunch today, but I'm sure that will give you all time to digest the morning's activities. Um, after lunch, there'll be an exploration of United States executive branch uh, approach to uh, these questions in the form of an Obama administration report that was issued in December of 2016, right at the end of the Obama administration, uh, that was arguably the most comprehensive assessment of the legal bases for current U.S. use of military force and related national security operations ever compiled. And Professor Ken Anderson of the Washington College of Law of American University will lead a panel that will engage uh, in depth with that report. 
And this discussion should be of particular interest uh, as Congress has recently mandated that the report will be updated. And so we anticipate a publication date of that update this May. Uh, now, while the principal focus of the conference will be, of course, on the international legal aspects of the use of force, another important aspect of the debate uh, in the United States is whether, uh, from a U.S. domestic law perspective, there is need for a new congressional authorization for the use of military force, the AUMF. Uh, given the fact that the current 2001 AUMF has now been cited as the domestic legal justification for at last count 37 military operations in 14 different countries. So Professor Laura Donahue of Georgetown Law School and Professor Bob Turner of UVA will engage in a discussion as to whether such a new congressional authorization should be forthcoming. And then at the end of the day, you all will be lucky to hear from Professor Moore, uh, who will provide some concluding remarks. Um, as I look out at all of you, one of the things that makes me really happy to see is uh, the combination of civilian and military folks uh, welcoming our friends from the JAG School and elsewhere, having conversations like these across the academy across law school and JAG school from within and without, from policy perspectives, law perspectives, domestic and international. I think that is the way to have the most productive uh, and provocative conversations, and I am honored and proud to be hosting that. So thank you all so much, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Take care. Thank you very much, uh, Dean Golubov. It is now my privilege and pleasure to introduce the keynote speaker of the conference, uh, Dr. Yoram Dinstein. Uh, Dr. Yoram Dinstein is Professor Emeritus at Tel Aviv University in Israel, and since uh, 2010, President of the United Nations Association of Israel. In the past, he served as President, Rector, and Dean of the Faculty of Law of Tel Aviv University, he was twice a Stockton Professor of International Law at the U.S. Naval War College. As you know, that is the top professorship at the Naval War College. And he was also a Humboldt Fellow at the Max Planck Institute for International Law in Heidelberg, Germany. He is a member of the Institute of International Law. His latest books in English are War, Aggression, and Self-Defense. 2017, which I'm happy to have just received a copy of, and The Conduct of Hostilities Under the Law of International Armed Conflict uh, in 2016, of course, in addition to many other uh, books that he has written. Professor Denstein is also the founder and editor of the Israel Yearbook on Human Rights, which has now gone through 47 volumes. He served as the project director of the Program on Humanitarian Policy and Conflict Research at Harvard. Uh, he worked on the Manual on International Law Applicable to Air and Missile Warfare, and currently he is the project director of the preparation of the Oslo Manual on Select Topics of the Law of Armed Conflict. Um, as I have, over the years, uh, been specially interested in uh, use ad bellum and use in bello law and looked at the scholars in the field. Uh, my own view is that the uh, best of the scholars in the world that have dealt with these issues and particularly the level of, uh, of dealing both with use ad bello and use in bello uh, has been uh, Professor 
Yoram Denstein. And so we are deeply honored to have him as our keynote speaker. Yoram. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm uh, thrilled to be here uh, because all sorts of sinister forces try to prevent me from making it uh, to Charlottesville. But uh, like Hannibal crossing the Alps, I'm in a position to say I've done it. He lost a few elephants. I lost a few uh, remaining uh, non-white hair on my head. But I made it. It's not the first time that I'm here, uh, either in this building or in the one next door of uh, the JAG. And uh, I've been uh, following, uh, obviously, the activities of John Norton Moore, who is the dean, actually, of all experts in the world on the use at Bellum, and not only the use at Bellum. And uh, I'm also glad to be associated with Dave Graham, whom I met when he was uh, in the Army, and I was a Stockton professor representing the Navy, so to speak. And somehow, Army, Navy, we were on the same page. Okay, the subject that I'm dealing with today is very much... Uh, a topical, crucial, and uh, even fascinating subject that not everybody, even amongst the small community of international lawyers, is entirely familiar with. So it's worth discussion. And that is under attack by non-state actors uh, and self-defense. Now, first, a very brief introduction and that is that uh, I'm not dealing with uh, domestic terrorism. That is to say atrocities like uh, the one that everybody remembers in Oklahoma City, or more recent ones, are purely domestic in character and are there for the domestic system, in these instances uh, the American legal system, to take care of it, international law, has no standing whatsoever. Uh, in other words, we are talking only about activities of non-state actors that uh, originate in a foreign country. And I want to mention here en passant that uh, if it takes place on the high seas aboard a ship, a vessel, or in uh, flying uh, aircraft, then the vessel and the aircraft are assimilated to the territory of the flag state in the case of the vessel or the state of registration in the case of uh, the aircraft. The same would also apply, it hasn't happened yet, to satellites uh, in orbit, outer space. A satellite will be registered in some state. Okay, so we, what we are dealing with here is activities from foreign state. But once more, we have to exclude certain scenario. The number one scenario that we have to exclude is that of non-state actors acting as surrogates of a foreign state 
which is actually acting by proxy. Now, this is now, uh, and I give here the obvious example of Hezbollah and Iran. There are lots of other examples. Okay, now, uh, in such cases, actually the term non-state non uh, uh, actors is a misnomer because the so-called non-state actors are state actors, not non-state actors, uh, except that it happens by proxy. And the usual modern terminology is to call them de facto organs of that state. De facto as distinct from the jure, the jure uh, organs of the state, but uh, the law of state responsibility is very clear. Whether organs are de facto organs or the euro organs, the state to which the acts can be attributed assumes full responsibility. So these are acts of state and not acts of non-state uh, actors. Uh, the test under customary international law is obvious. The test is so-called effective control. That is to say, a state which has de facto organs has them, or rather they are regarded as its de facto organs because it has effective control over them. Uh, there is, however, a dispute as to the definition of effective control in this instance. The dispute, curiously enough, is between the International Court of Justice on the one hand and the Yugoslav Tribunal, the ICTY, on the other hand. The Yugoslav Tribunal has consistently uh, departed from the doctrine of the ICJ and has even used rather strong language in which it uh, deprecated the ICJ ruling. Uh, the the, this is not the subject of my lecture today. It deserves a separate lecture. It's a, an interesting and important subject. All that I can say very briefly is that uh, the ICJ believes that uh, the state whose de facto organs it is must micromanage them. That is to say, give them day-to-day -day instruction as to what to do. The Yugoslav tribunal rejects that uh, as uh, practically nonsense, saying it's enough to have overall control. That is to say, it's enough for the state to give them ultimate parameters for action, who to act against, what to do, and leave them, actually, the, the daily call of uh, actions that they are prepared uh, to activate. As I said before, I shall not get into it, but remember, notwithstanding the disagreement between the two courts, both are agreed that what is required is effective control. So the term effective control has become holy gospel here. Now, uh, another point to to make and an insight that one has to internalize is that sometimes an armed attack is launched by non-state actors. However, the state, which originally was not involved at all, was not complicit to the act when the act was, when the act was carried out. 
nevertheless subsequently endorses it, so to speak. Uh, this uh, happened on several famous occasions, one of which I do not mention here, and that is the Tehran uh, um, case where the US embassy and consulate were taken over by militants originally acting on their own, but within a week or so, the Tehran government of the Ayatollahs endorsed their action, and from there on, it became an Iranian armed attack. The example that I give here is even more uh, well-known, and that is 9-11 actually was perpetrated, of course, by Al-Qaeda. The Taliban government in Kabul was not involved in that action at the time. However, he then decided deliberately to ignore calls by the United States and more importantly by the Security Council to surrender bin Laden uh, to, judgment, to trial and instead gave him shelter. By giving him shelter, it endorsed the armed attack of 9-11. And therefore, after uh, a proper ultimatum, which was ignored by them, the US and the large coalition that decided to fight alongside the United States started an international armed conflict on October 7th. So the war against Afghanistan was not directly for 9-11, but it was for the endorsement of 9-11 between 9-11, between September and October. Okay, again, an interesting subject to pursue, different lecture. Now, the fountain or at, at origo, to use the Latin term, the fountain and origin of the law of self-defense is, of course, Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations, which, however, is today, without any doubt, replicated in customary international law in substance. And uh, I put in here the, the main part of Article 51, and what I'm trying to emphasize is that curiously enough, interestingly enough, the framers of the article, who were very careful in their terminology throughout the charter, and Article 51 in particular, did not say an armed attack by one state against another, which they could have easily said. Instead, they said an armed attack against a member state of the United Nations, a member uh, of the United Nations, i.e. a state. So the important word here is against. Nowhere is there an indication, explicitly or implicitly, that the armed attack has to be launched by a state against that other state. And for that, for that reason, when non-state actors launch an armed attack, it can be from within a foreign state. So again, I emphasize the three words, against, which is there, by, which is not, and from, which, I'm, which is what I'm uh, stressing now. And uh, until 9-11, it was actually argued in the legal literature whether it's enough for non-state actors to act from within the territory of a foreign state in order for the action to qualify as an armed attack under Article 51. I have maintained that. Uh, John was good enough to show you the sixth edition of my book. In the first edition, which preceded 9-11 by, by a decade, I, more than a decade, 
I suggested that, but I was taken to task by serious people whom I greatly admire, who said, uh, what do you base that? Well, nobody will take me to task today because of 9-11, and the response to 9-11, A, the two major Security Council resolutions, 1368 and 1371, which clearly established the ground for self-defense, and even more interestingly, the NATO decision. Remember, Article 5, famous Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty of 1949, which establishes the rule that uh, an armed attack against one member qualifies as an armed attack against all. You know, the three musketeers principle, uh, one for all, all for one. Uh, Article 5 has never been activated between 1949 and the present day, except 9-11. So it was never activated against a state directly. It was activated as regards an attack by non-state actors in 9-11 against the United States. And it wasn't only the Security Council NATO, it was also the Organization of American States and others. I mean, I don't list here all the, all the sources. Now, what is the obligation of a foreign state? The obligation of a foreign state is clear-cut under customary international law. It was referred to in the Corfu Channel case and so on. And that is not to allow its territory to be used as a base of operations armed attack against a foreign state. That's beyond dispute. That's motherhood. But the question is, what does it mean allow? It is not allowed if you don't mind my replicating the term, it is not allowed to allow. What do you mean by allow? And uh, here comes the new development. Because it is now quite clear that uh, there may be a situation in which the state, within which you have terrorists conspiring against another state, uh, this local the local government is not complicit with the non-state actors. It is not uh, in cahoots with them. It's simply either unable, that is to say militarily, or unwilling, that is to say politically, to act against them. So it's not with them, it's just staying aloof. It's uh, above the fray, so to speak. Now, when is it unable? The first and foremost case is where you have a failing state. If you take present-day Somalia, it's a failing state. Every once in a while I read in the news that uh, an attack was mounted by Al-Shabaab against the Somalian government facility in Mogadishu, which reminds me that there is still a government, because the government of Somalia is doing everything except govern. Certainly outside Mogadishu, nobody has heard of it. It's a failing state, and it's been a failing state for a long period of time, as you know. And there have been other failing states which have returned to normalcy of, of a fashion, like Lebanon, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and so on. So Somalia is by no means a unique instance of failing state, but it's the most uh, prominent. However, an inability to act, the unable in the unable or unwilling uh, formula, inability to act uh, is not confined to a failing state. Even where you have a functioning government, 
the functioning government may not have the actual military ability to cope with the non-state actors, the terrorists, uh, on account of the fact that they are uh, ensconced in the middle of a jungle area or in the desert or in some other place where the terrain does not allow the government uh, the ability to act. Remember, uh, not every country in the world has a very efficient uh, military at its disposal. I'm not referring to Costa Rica, which doesn't have an army at all. But even countries that do have armies very often encounter tremendous difficulties in doing something about non-state actors. And it's not a coincidence that the United States today is uh, fighting non-state actors in a country such as Niger, of which most Americans have never heard. And they think that if anything, it's a mispronunciation of Nigeria. And actually, had it not been for the fact that the special forces present there sustained casualties, no, nobody today even would have known that the U.S. is there. But the U.S. is there because the Niger armed forces are totally incapable of doing anything about the non-state actors, the Boko Haram and so on. Okay. Now, uh, this is inability to act, unable. There is also the issue of unwilling. What is meant by unwilling? What is meant is that the government would perhaps have liked to act and perhaps might have been able to act. But unfortunately, there is no support for it in the legislature. And in a democracy, what can the government do? I mean, if it will act against the wishes of the legislature, it will lose uh, its uh, power. Uh, remember, I'm talking about most countries in the world, not the American system where the president is uh, independent of Congress. In a parliamentary system such as the UK, if the government uh, loses uh, the confidence of uh, parliament, that's the end of it. And furthermore, uh, perhaps the legislature would support, but the so-called street would not. That is to say, public opinion is totally against action. And then the government says, so sorry, we would have liked to act. We are incapable of doing it, not militarily, but politically. So we are not unable, but we are unwilling against, unwilling against our will, so to speak. Not because we want to fail to take action, but we cannot take action. Now, in such a case, remember, the target state the other state, the one which is the subject, or rather, I'm sorry, the object of the attacks by the non-state actors, can, and occasionally does, approach the local government and say, well, you cannot act, whether you are unable or unwilling, it doesn't matter. We would be prepared to act in lieu of your own forces, on your behalf, so to speak. Allow us to send in troops, and our troops will do what you should have done in the first place. Uh, this would be a consensual action, which of course is not, uh, uh, the, which is not uh, opposed to the general principle of the non-use of force under Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter of the United Nations and customary international law. But it's also important to remember this action, if it does take place, takes place on the basis of the consent within its parameters in case that there are conditions to the consent. And as soon as the consent is withdrawn, 
within the reasonable time, you have to pull out. You cannot stay there once the consent has been withdrawn. Nevertheless, it's important to bear in mind, and here I come at long last to the main part of my presentation, cannot forget that the target state has a right, is entitled to exercise self-defense in accordance with Article 51 of the Charter and customary international law. And self-defense is, of course, exercised non-consensually. This is the, the main point here so that uh, the target state can act on the basis of self-defense within the unable or unwilling uh, state against the non-state actors. I call this uh, extraterritorial law enforcement. Uh, I am not 100% happy with that phrase. And a number of people have challenged the use of that phrase. Whenever I'm challenged, I tell the people, well, no problem. Just give me an alternative. And people usually promise to send me an email. I've received uh, over the years thousands of uh, emails. Nobody has yet sent me the alternative proposal. But the main reason why I've chosen the term is to show that there is no international armed conflict between the two states. This is actually a law, a law enforcement action in lieu of the local state. I'm doing what the law, I'm the foreign country, which is the target of the attack, and doing what the local state should have done, failed to do, I'm doing it in its place. This is the idea. Now, in the armed activities uh, case of uh, Congo versus Uganda in uh, 05, the, the court, the majority, simply ignored the issue, which is astonishing because it's a clear-cut case of uh, extraterritorial law enforcement, and it was so argued by Uganda for a full day. The court just ignored it, didn't say a word about it. But I'm glad to say that two of the judges, the German Sima and the Dutch Quimans, saw the light, cited me with approval, and called it uh, by that name. Actually, they didn't come with an alternative uh, designation. Okay, so the question is, what is the mission of extraterritorial law enforcement? And I give you here uh, five main uh, aims. Number one, obviously to attack the basis of the non-state actors. Number two, you don't have to stick to the basis. Sometimes they are on the run themselves. They don't have a base. They are in constant movement from one place to another. So attack them while they are en route, so to speak, wherever they are. Number three, decimate the leadership. A very important uh, aim. Number four, again very important, the release hostages. And uh, finally, extract intelligence. There would be other minor aims, but these are the five main purposes as experience shows. Uh, what are the means? Now, the orthodox way of going about it is to send in an expeditionary force. And they will take care of uh, demolishing the bases, attacking the uh, non-state actors who are moving around, decimating the leadership, uh, etc. 
it's, uh, I want to emphasize the etc. Because sometimes there is no choice. If you want to release hostages, that's the only way to go about it. Because the alternative is to shower missiles from abroad on the non-state actors. Uh, the missiles can be actually launched uh, from land, from sea, from the air. And sometimes this is done by drones. So I come to a comment about uh, drones because the public at large, and I hope that uh, that does not uh, obtain in this room, is mesmerized by drones. I was uh, last year in Moscow to speak on another subject. There were a number of generals and colonels and so forth in the room. When the Q&A period started until the end, they ignored completely my presentation. The only subject that, where they elicited my views was about drones, and they didn't like what I said. Okay, too bad. Now, drones, as I have to point out, are simply aerial platforms. And there is nothing special about them except that they are remotely piloted. And nowadays, in the era of high technology, it's no big deal. That is to say, instead of the pilot sitting in the cockpit, the pilot is sitting in uh, usually a caravan or uh, wherever, uh, perhaps thousands of miles away, but he is still guiding the drone. The drone is not a auto fully autonomous weapon. We are years away from fully autonomous weapons. The drone is actually guided by a person. I was going to say a man, but I can tell you in Israel it's usually today a woman. And uh, that person can be the expressions that we use usually in the new manuals is either in the loop or on the loop. In the loop means that he's guiding it all the time. You know, it's like my reference earlier to micromanaging. On the loop is where the drone has pre-programming instructions and the person who's guiding it is just supervising it. That is to say, watching to make sure that the drone is following instructions. But should the drone somehow become a drone, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a rogue drone, you abort or even destroy the drone. There is no problem. In case that you think that this is today exceptional in air warfare, it is not. Very often in modern air warfare, the pilot is basically a driver. He brings the F-15 or F-16 to a certain coordinate. He releases the guided missile, and the guided missile is then taken over by, by ground control. And they direct the missile to its target, because sometimes it's too much to expect the pilot of an F-15 and F-16 to, uh, on the one hand, attack a specific target, on the other hand, watch out for incoming uh, anti-air missiles and so on. We recently lost an F-16 uh, to Syrian fire be precisely because of that, because a pilot in an F-16 who had seconds earlier destroyed an Iranian target, did not watch out for an incoming rather uh, obsolete missile, which he sort of uh, denigrated, and at the last moment realized his mistake, 
and was luckily uh, in a position to still ditch the aircraft, although he was wounded, but he's alive. And uh, the aircraft was destroyed, which is too bad. But you, you see the, the, the pressure on a modern pilot in warfare conditions to multitask is sometimes beyond uh, the pilot. Uh, a feminist here would say, because he's a man. Because women, as you know, are much better in multitasking than men. But it hasn't happened yet. We have women pilots, but it hasn't happened to them yet. Maybe that's why it hasn't happened to them, because they're so good at multitasking. Okay. Uh, now, also remember, drones mostly are only for surveillance uh, purposes. 85% of all drones deal only with surveillance. Approximately 15%, the larger drones, of course, uh, will have the capability to launch missiles themselves. But once more, it doesn't matter, because the drone can actually uh, coexist with an F-16. The drone may be a small surveillance drone, but once it detects the target, it identifies the target, it instructs the pilot of the F-16 who's there, relying on its information to launch the missile. So what's, what's the difference? Instead of it being done by one, it's done by two uh, platforms. And uh, finally, the drone has admittedly a major advantage. This is why it's being used. It's not only the cost, it's much less costly than an F-15 or F-16, but it's also the ability to loiter over the target practically indefinitely, as long as the fuel uh, is there. 24 hours is today very common. And in the course of those 24 hours, the person on the ground, in or on the loop, instructs the, the drone to change altitude, to change angle, to change direction, and so forth, in order to gain full information about the target. That's the advantage of the drone. That's why it's used so, so much nowadays by at least some countries in the world, including the US. Now, the most famous case of extraterritorial law enforcement, although the expression was never used in the context, is, of course, taking out bin Laden. Because what were the facts? Team six of the SEALs went into Pakistan without permission from the local government. And this was not an enemy government, but an allied government in Islamabad. Why was the Pakistani government not even consulted? Because everybody knows what would have happened had it been consulted. The Pakistani government, unfortunately, is fully infiltrated by the Taliban and their supporters, especially in the intelligence community. And had Pakistan been informed that bin Laden is hiding in the compound where he was, bin Laden would have disappeared. It would have taken 10 additional years to locate him. Remember, it took 10 years to locate him. So nobody could afford 10 additional years. And anyone who believes that nobody in the Pakistani government knew of what was happening in this compound one mile away from their equivalent of West Point is so naive that, uh, you, you know, believe that, you'll believe anything. This is clearly a case of a government unable or unwilling to act. In this case, it's both unable and unwilling. One part of it unable, one part unwilling. So the U.S. decided to do it on its own.
Now, there are other examples uh, from the recent past. Uh, one is that uh, Turkey has been doing it in northern Iraq for years. It's now doing it in Syria. I'm not sure that in Syria this is more than a pretense, and that's why I added the word allegedly here. They claim that the PKK is uh, uh, omnipresent amongst the Kurds in Syria. I'm not sure. But there is no question about it that the PKK is a Kurdish terrorist organization, not to be confused with the government of the Kurdish enclave in Iraq, in North Iraq. It's separate from them. They'd, actually, there is a lot of bad blood between the government and the PKK. And the PKK attacks targets in Turkey. So Turkey takes action against them in North Iraq because nobody is able or willing to do so in Iraq. The government in Baghdad has no presence in those mountains of uh, the, north, uh, the Northwest, and uh, the Kurdish government is too weak to do anything about it. Then I'm giving you another example, and that is Colombia attacked uh, actually a FARC base in Ecuador in order to successfully release hostages without the consent of the Ecuadorian government. And there are other examples from the more remote past. One of them is so famous I don't want to go into it, and that's the Caroline case. But nobody is, uh, in this country remembers well enough, or most people in this country don't remember well enough, the 1916 uh, case, uh, which shows that for some reason a well-known Hollywood movie uh, is not, has uh, not been released recently, and that's the Viva Via movie about Pancho Villa, a Mexican bandit who crossed the Rio Grande River and attacked uh, with uh, lethal consequences uh, farms in the southwest of this country. The administration in Washington protested several times. The president was Woodrow Wilson. But the trouble is that Mexico at the time went through a 10-year period of revolution, 10 years, during which the government in Mexico City had no power whatsoever in the North. And uh, therefore, the government uh, apologized uh, to the Wilson administration, but they said, as you well know, uh, there's nothing that we can do. Well, there is nothing that you can do, so the U.S., Again, under Wilson, remember a president was usually regarded as a semi-saint, sent uh, an expeditionary force under General Pershing that uh, chased uh, VR 300 miles into Mexico, 300 miles. They ultimately wounded him, they failed to kill him, and fortunately for General Pershing, another conflict started across the Atlantic and he was recalled and sent to lead another expeditionary force through which he got his fame and glory. Uh, Via remained alive until finally assassinated, not, not by the United States. Okay, but now I'm coming to the most modern example, and that is the action against ISIS in Syria. Uh, when the United States launched the action for the first time, in uh, 40, 2014, it used explicitly the language of uh, unable or unwilling, because curiously enough, what they said is ISIS in Syria 
had attacked targets in Iraq. We are coming to the support of Iraq in collecting in an exercise of in the exercise of collective self-defense. Self-defense against ISIS in Syria because of the armed attack against Iraq. In case that you think that this is a peculiarity of the US government, I want to remind you the coalition of as many as 60 states has joined it. So if you are looking for the general practice of states, it's there. This is now customary international law. You cannot deny it. And uh, therefore, the whole doctrine of extraterritorial law enforcement is now, in my opinion, fully entrenched in international law. And I emphasize collective self-defense because I have to admit until 2014, if you ask me, can you use extraterritorial law enforcement in collective as distinct from individual self-defense, I would have had doubts about it. The difference, I hope, uh, is clearly apparent to you. Individual self-defense is where I'm attacked and I respond. Collective self-defense is when you are attacked and I respond. I respond in uh, a case where you have been attacked. I have not been subjected to an armed attack immediately. But, of course, Article 51 permits collective self-defense because this was the lesson learned from World War II. The lesson learned from World War II was that when Hitler attacked, uh, first uh, annexed Austria forcibly, and then attacked Czechoslovakia and so forth, the Western countries should have responded then and not waited until later when it became much more difficult to actually uh, defeat him. Now, what are the requisite conditions of self-defense in general? In general, there are three conditions, which are necessity, proportionality, and immediacy. The International Court of Justice, in its wisdom, admitted uh, explicitly only the first two and not the third. But I want to explain the three conditions are derived from where, from whom. The answer is American Secretary of State Daniel Webster in the famous correspondence relating to the Caroline case. And in his correspondence, he's using all three conditions. Must be necessary, must be proportionate, it must be, he even used the term instant, I'm calling it immediacy. Of course, immediacy has to be taken uh, flexibly. Now, condition one, necessity. Uh, the idea is that uh, repetition of the attack by the non-state actors is expected. Therefore, the response is indeed responsive and not punitive. You're not punishing them for something that happened in the past. You are actually trying to deter them and to disenable them to proceed with their uh, outrageous action. And uh, if there is an opportunity, you should first approach the local government and give them an opportunity to act as they should have uh, within their sovereign uh, jurisdiction. You don't approach them when, only when it's on the face of it futile, as in the case of bin Laden.
The second is proportionality. What is meant here in proportionality is that you strictly attack, they strictly confine the attack against the non-state actors, against the terrorists. That is to say, you encounter government troops, you encounter government facilities, you obviously encounter civilians, you don't attack them. If you do attack them, it's an international armed conflict. It's not an international armed conflict because you do not attack them. You are not pursuing any other objective except that of eliminating the non-state actors. Thirdly, immediacy, you are supposed to act uh, within a relatively short time so that uh, action and reaction are transparent, so that the reaction is transparently a reaction to the action and not something that is totally unrelated. Uh, then I want to emphasize the limits on state, both states. And the limits are, if not the same, they are the mirror image of each other. The expeditionary force is not supposed to attack the local government and its forces, as I stated before. And perhaps more importantly, the local government is not, suppo not supposed to all of a sudden flex muscles that have not been used against the terrorists and now they are being flexed against the incoming expeditionary force. You are unable, remember? If you are unable, remain unable. Don't show ability all of a sudden in, against the wrong uh, object. And uh, bear in mind, there is no self-defense against self-defense. It's a very important principle that must be borne in mind. Which means, if the local government opens fire on the expeditionary force, this is an armed attack within your territory against the incoming forces from, a foreign, from, from your viewpoint, a foreign state. You are not allowed to do it. Because if you do it, you are acting against self-defense, so you cannot be in self-defense yourself. It hasn't happened yet. It's likely to happen. Now, uh, the rationale I've already made clear, and I want to move to the conclusion. Uh, the conclusion is, and I'll, then I'll make a comment. Uh, the conclusion is that uh, the subject today is of the utmost importance. You can see Bin Laden, ISIS, and so forth. What's more important than that? And as I said before, it's utterly topical. And I'm sure that there will be further instances of the use of uh, extraterritorial law enforcement. That said, not every I has been dotted, and not every T has been crossed in the practice of states. And therefore, I cannot entirely give uh, correct answers to obvious questions. For example, does the main principle of proportionality applicable in the use in Bello relating to collateral damage to civilians while you are attacking an enemy uh, military objective. Do these rules apply in extraterritorial law enforcement? I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. It makes sense, but on the other hand, remember, there is no international armed conflict. So why should the law of armed conflict apply? Yet, 
this is the best solution, in my opinion. So I would very much hope that this would be the rule. But I can, cannot tell you that it is the rule. And I have uh, strictly uh, circumscribed my lecture to Lex Lata, the law as it exists, and not the Lex Ferenda, the law as it should be in my mind. Finally, a post-conclusion comment. Uh, triggered by an article that uh, John uh, Moore wrote about uh, ICJ, the Dean referred to it as well in uh, 2012 about the ICJ record. And as he pointed out, ICJ has dealt with the use of force uh, five times. Corfu, Nicaragua, oil platforms, armed activities, the wall. Now, ignore for the time being Corfu, a long time ago, splendid judgment written by a different court and between Corfu 1949 and Nicaragua 1986, there is a gap which uh, goes beyond uh, being temporal. It's a qualitative gap. Then came Nicaragua. I'm one of the outspoken critics of Nicaragua. I think that Nicaragua, the majority judgment that is in Nicaragua, is uh, in fact faulty on any number of grounds. And uh, I wished at the time, and still do, that uh, the minority opinions of Judge Schwebel and Judge Jennings would have prevailed, but they didn't. Okay. In 1986, if you would have asked me, I would have said this is the lowest point in the history of the court. Then uh, came the future record in the still-to-be-written armed activities, oil platforms, and wall cases, which showed that Nicaragua actually was not far from being the lowest point, was perhaps the highest point, at least since the 1980s, because the armed activities, oil platforms, and wall uh, are mind-boggling in many respects. And to show you just one example that pertains to my lecture, and it's in one of the slides that I skipped, uh, in the armed activities case, the court, which refused to go into law, remembered, into extraterritorial law enforcement, nevertheless said that it cannot take place where hundreds of kilometers from the border. Oh, really? And what do I do when the non-state actor, the terrorists, happen to be based hundreds of kilometers from the borders? I avoid action because it's too far away from the border? What does it matter to me if they are two miles from the border or 200 miles from the border? I go where they are. This is what I'm pursuing. So this is sheer and utter nonsense, yet it's part of the judgment of the International Court of Justice. The moral of the story is that perhaps uh, a younger generation which is partly present in this room, will in time replace the old judges in the International Court of Justice and will raise the level of the applied stratum of international law. Thank you. Now, I think that we have a few minutes for... Okay. Well, why don't you run it? You are, you are the boss. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll do 15 minutes yeah. of Q&A. Okay. 
there were two hands at that end of the... Well, it's very hard to speculate, and remember these are uh, diverse judgments issued by diverse panels of the courts because uh, membership in the court varies every few years uh, over a fairly long period. Nicaragua, that's 1986, the world, that's 2004. So it's between, uh, these are the two bracketing dates. But my own uh, conjecture, such as it is, is that uh, it's very popular nowadays to be anti-American. And this was true also in 1986. As a matter of fact, it's hard to explain Nicaragua except on the basis of anti-Americanism. Because what most people forget is 1986 cannot be addressed separately from 1984. 1986 is when they issued the judgment on the merits. 84 is when you, have the, you had the issue of preliminary uh, judgment, where the court refused to allow El Salvador to appear before them. And then in 1986, they have the nerve, the only expression that fits is the Yiddish expression, chutzpah. In 1986, they had the nerve to say, that the whole thing revolves around uh, an act of aggression in which El Salvador is involved. You don't listen to El Salvador and then you issue a judgment that relates directly to them. Why do you do it? Because you wanted to niddle the United States. The same is true of uh, oil platform. Nobody could deny that Iranian missiles were launched at American uh, ships. And then the court says, well, it's true, it happened. On the other hand, uh, we are not convinced that the idea was to necessarily sink American ships. Maybe it was some other state. Maybe they wanted to sink ships uh, flying the flag of Montenegro. Therefore, there was no armed attack by Iran against the United States. Armed activities I've already referred to, and the wall is uh, something which is delusional. If you want... Uh, to understand uh, what was about, uh, I shall not even refer you to the dissenting judgment of Judge Bergenthal, but to the separate opinion of Judge Rosalind Higgins, which makes Millsmith of the majority opinion, which she then co-signs, for reasons that I don't want to explain here. So uh, this is merely a conjecture. It's very popular to be anti-American, and it's uh, one ticket to being re-elected to the court. Charlie. Bobby said, um, am I incorrect, or clarify for me with your 
idea of extraterritorial law enforcement. Are you saying then that international human rights law governs that activity? And if it does, what about the obligation to try to capture, which uh, is part of international human rights law versus uh, an operation under international humanitarian law, law armed conflict? How high are the mighty fallen? Since when are you so concerned about human rights? <laughs> I mean, uh, this is similar to what I've said before in the sense that in the court it's very fashionable to be anti-American, and in the United States it's very fashionable to refer to human rights law when they have no bearing upon the case. I have not mentioned human rights even once in my lecture today. I do not deny that human rights have some minor impact on the law of armed conflict, but it's very minor. It has nothing to do with the use of bellum. Nothing whatsoever to do with the use of bellum. If it has anything to do with anything, it's the use in bellum. This is use ad bellum. Use ad bellum is the law of the charter. And even though the charter uh, mentions human rights again in a very minor and insignificant way, the Charter is all about removing the scourge of war. The Charter is not about human rights. The Charter is not about uh, the status of women. The Charter is not about uh, uh, providing milk to children. All these things have developed in the record of the United Nations. They have nothing to do with the Charter. The Charter has to do with the use of force and it, the two exceptions to the use of force, namely, a, the power of the Security Council to act in a binding way under Chapter 7, and B, self-defense. So what, has, what have human rights got to do with it? Well, it's, it's because you use law enforcement. That's what triggers the I'm just questioning. I, I'm thinking that if people hear the words law enforcement, they're going to be thinking of international human rights law as opposed to other modalities. But well, I had no intention to bring human rights into the picture when I used the term law enforcement. I do not deny that this is a possibility, but this is left with uh, actually the last paragraph here where I'm saying that there is still a lacuna, there is a gap, simply because there is no, st in no state practice sufficient to draw uh, lasting conclusions, and here I admit that uh, future state practice may show that human rights may have some applicability here. I, <coughs> I personally doubt it, and I indicated that I hope that the development in the future <coughs> will actually bear out the applicability not of human rights law, which is very inadequate and insufficient in such a situation, but the use in bellow. That is the law of proportionality, the rule relating to collateral damage and so forth. But this is a private, uh, if you wish, bias on my part, so I do not uh, underscore it. I merely point out that that's my view as to what should happen. Okay. Other questions? Yes. Sir, so you're, you're quick to say that Pakistan t 
did not allow us in, and I, I think that's probably the likely answer. But if, they, if there was a phone call, we said, hey, can we come in, and somebody in the government said yes, even if they denied it publicly, w would that still be legal, and would that be valid consent? If they say, yeah, you can come, but we're going to tell everybody we said no for obvious political purposes, would that be okay? Would that be valid consent? A phone call to, by whom and to whom? So the U.S. government calling Pakistan and saying, will you give us consent to come in? Pakistan obviously publicly wouldn't admit that, but isn't it possible that they would say, sure, but for obvious reasons we're going to deny that and yell at you on TV? Would that be valid consent? The answer is yes, in principle. Look, I'll give you a counterfactual example. Uh, Afghanistan in 01, right? If I were the advisor to the Taliban government, I would have told them, to respond to the American ultimatum by saying, listen, Bin Laden is in Tora Bora. You know what? You go ahead. Here is Tora Bora. Let's see how powerful you are. And I want to remind you, the U.S. went into Tora Bora a few months later and failed to take him out. Right? Total failure of the United States. That's why it took 10 years to find him. So had the U.S. went to Tora Bora a few months earlier, there is no reason to believe that it would have been more successful. But governments very often act uh, impetuously and uh, precipitately without listening to reason, without thinking out all the possibilities. So they are averse to the idea of allowing another state to act within their jurisdiction as if it were the sovereign, which it is not. I'm the sovereign, not you. Uh, having said that, as I pointed out, very often also uh, you, as the target state, uh, are averse to the idea of seeking my consent because you are afraid that this will be counterproductive uh, with the, the case of, uh, of bin Laden. Uh, remember, the U.S. had very close relations with Pakistan mm -hmm. at the time. There would have been no problem to approach Pakistan uh, on a number of levels, but having uh, thoroughly examined these possibilities, uh, the people in charge in, in D.C. reached the right decision not to do it because it would be totally against the interests of the United States. So if you cannot possibly get the consent of the other government to act effectively, avoid it. Let me add on that point, I agree 100% with uh, Dr. Dinstein on that point, but this really relates as well to yet another one of the issues in which the International Court of Justice invents a legal rule out of whole cloth in the Nicaragua case, in which you will recall they said you had to have uh, a, a public announcement of an invitation in. And that, even in a setting where you had a, uh, a uh, uh, the Rio Treaty, which basically uh, indicates that an armed aggression against El Salvador is simultaneously an armed aggression against the United States of America. So I, I think, as uh, uh, Yoram has indicated, there are many settings in which consent might be given, but a uh, government might be very reluctant to um, announce publicly that it has done that. So I think this is yet another indication where the International Court of Justice is simply uh, flatly wrong. Uh, and there's no legal basis whatsoever in customary or law uh, or policy or anywhere else uh, 
uh, for that uh, uh, argument w which was put out by the court in Nicaragua. If I'm allowed to sure. add on to what you've said, uh, this week we have celebrated uh, the anniversary of the famous Anschluss of Austria by Hitler. Now, this is a very good example. Austria, for various reasons, not least being infiltrated by Austrian Nazis, did not uh, appeal to any help by the Western countries and merely succumbed, and this is why it was a pure annexation without any bloodshed at all. However, Britain and France, based on the charter, had every right to say an armed attack had been launched against Austria. True, Austria has not appealed to us for help. We are acting in self-defense. What is, does self-defense mean? This is our self-interest. We want to act now when we can stop Hitler. And had they acted then, we now know the historical record shows all the German generals were prepared to rebel against Hitler because they thought that he was acting recklessly. And they fully expected the Western countries to draw the line in the sand. But of course, the Western countries at the time were led by Chamberlain and Daladier and didn't do that. Unfortunately, the rest is written in blood in history. So it shows that the court was entirely wrong. And how could the judges who were actually born before World War II and were familiar with the story of the Anschluss, ignored it uh, altogether, as they did. But uh, the only thing that I can say, as it were, in their favor, it's one of many mistakes. So they made other mistakes and even more dangerous ones, such as the, the idea that if you do not send in a report to the Security Council, as you are supposed to under Article 51, you forfeit the right of self-defense. They didn't even think about the, the obvious. If I forfeit the right of self-defense, who benefits from it? The answer is the aggressor. There are always two parties, an aggressor and a party in self-defense. If I'm not in self-defense, that means that the aggressor is not the aggressor. I failed to send in a report, and therefore his aggressor, aggression is all of a sudden sanctified. Does that make sense? especially when you have so many countries uh, in Africa where in the capital city you probably have uh, two or three graduates of law school and they're not necessarily in the legal advisor's office of the foreign ministry. They don't even know that they're supposed to send in a report. And therefore that country loses the right of self-defense. On what basis? Where does Article 51 say that this is a cardinal rule? This is a procedural rule You'd better send in a report. If you don't send in a report, I agree that this will be counted against you. That is to say, when I'm assessing the evidence, I'm likely to say, inter alia, you didn't send in a report. It shows that maybe you didn't think that you were acting in self-defense. But this is not conclusive. The court thinks that it did. And I could go on and on like this about the court in Nicaragua. But as I told you, forget about the court in Nicaragua. Think about the court in later cases. And Nicaragua, all of a sudden, makes much sense to me. Professor Denstein, thank you very much for a superb uh, presentation. We'll now take a 15-minute break and start the uh, first panel. Long, here he is now, in fact.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, our conference on USAD Bellum will now turn to a distinguished panel focused on USAD Bellum and the International Court of Justice. Two of the most important components of the international legal system are the norms concerning lawful use of force in international relations and the International Court of Justice as one of the most important international institutions for legal adjudication of disputes. Beginning with the Corfu Channel case in 1946, the court has considered a number of cases presenting jus ad bellum as well as jus in bello normative issues. The handling of these cases, particularly in recent years, has generated considerable controversy. Indeed, the decisions of the court in the Nicaragua case was a major factor in the United States withdrawing from the general jurisdiction of the court as set out in Article 36.2 of the statute of the court. Getting USAD bellum norms right is of central importance in the international legal system. No system of laws can fail to support minimum order. And this is particularly true in the system of laws between nations, where an absence of minimum order leads to death and destruction potentially on a massive scale. The normative system must sanction aggression that is, illegal coercion, and it must support defensive responses against aggression. I particularly appreciated um, Joram Denstein's indication this morning that one of the problems neglected by the court <coughs> when it had basically uh, had a minimalist or narrow interpretation of the defensive right is that they were simultaneously helping the aggressor. And I think this is one of the most important points that we need to be considering. You cannot separate the importance of dealing together with aggression and defense. If you're going to take a minimalist view of defense, in reality what you're doing is providing assistance to the aggressor. And presumably the core of what we're about is to stop uh, illegal coercion, that is aggression. Similarly, getting the International Court of Justice right is critical for the health of the normative system against unauthorized coercion, but it is also critical to the health and effectiveness of the court. Because if the court deals poorly in an area of such central importance to the international legal system, it cannot but severely harm the court, as in fact happened with the loss of one of those that had previously been a 36-2 member. 
This panel will examine the use of force decisions by the International Court of Justice. We'll review whether the court has been deficient in its dealings with these norms. And if so, we'll seek to answer the question that Bobby Chesney had asked earlier, why is that so? It will also seek to answer, if that is so, how might that deficiency be appropriately addressed for the future? Our first panelist today is Professor Michael Newton. Michael Newton is a professor at Vanderbilt Law School who previously served in the legal department of the U.S. Military Academy, as well as serving as a professor in the International and Operational Law Division here of the Judge Advocate General School of the Army. Um, I am delighted to say that uh, Mike is a graduate of the University of Virginia School of Law, has an LLM uh, from this law school. Uh, Professor Newton helped negotiate the Elements of Crimes document for the International Criminal Court as part of the U.S. delegation, and he coordinated the interface between the FBI and the ICTY while deploying to Kosovo to do the forensics field work to support the Milosevic indictment. He served in the Office of War Crimes Issues, U.S. Department of State, during both the Clinton and Bush administrations on that. Uh, Professor Newton. Thank you, John. This is a great panel. Uh, old friends and new friends. There's a few, a few years ago I was at the Naval War College, the conferences that Yoram and I and many others used to go to, uh, and the task was to debate, quote, quote, debate Christopher Greenwood. Uh, and a good friend of mine, Charles Garraway, pulled me aside right before. He says, Michael, he says, you know, when I first became a young lawyer, he said, they gave me two of the critical pieces of advice. My mentor said, don't ever forget these two pieces of advice. He said, number one, never steal your client's money. Good advice. Number two, never debate Christopher Greenwood in public <laughs> as I'm about to go on stage. I feel a bit the same about following Yoram. You know, I feel like we could, we could sit and pick his brain for a very long time, uh, the depth and the expertise. So this panel and my comments really want to, want to extend Yoram's thoughts uh, and apply them in some different ways, add some Newtonism to Yoram. I subscribe to everything he said. Uh, but what I want to do is extend them just a bit. Uh, the topic of this panel, which is to focus explicitly on the ICJ cases, is a critically important topic for a lot of reasons. And I'll give you my macro theme, and then I'll explain this. And in the end, I want to give you three takeaways of modern trends that I see. Don't let them fool you. People will say, well, we've solved this problem in this modern trend. And the Newton answer is wrong. Don't buy it. It's overly simplistic, and it's just simply incorrect, both as a substantive matter and as a practical matter and as applied. Um, the overarching problem is one that I've wrestled with for a very long time. Uh, one, in fact, that generated my book on proportionality, and it's this. When we talk about the use of force, the distinction between use ad bellum and use in bello, Yoram correctly said, we talk about those factors. We use necessity and proportionality and immediacy. The problem being, and this is the trend that the ICJ has done, is they've misapplied the concept of proportionality. They have taken 
use envelope proportionality, which I'll describe in a minute for the benefit of the students who are here who, who may have heard the word, but the normative content is still opaque and mysterious, and use ad bellum proportionality, which are radically different things. They're built on different assumptions, they're different values, and in many ways they've conflated the two in ways that I think are dangerous on both sides of the equation. And I want to make very clear, for the military people, the corruption, and that's a strong word, but it's one I use intentionally, the corruption of use in bellow proportionality is very dangerous to your business and the way you do business. And you have to be very careful. That's one of the consequences of this string of ICJ decisions, which we'll talk about. On the flip side, and I think John is exactly right, Professor Moore, as, as you would say, is exactly right. The, the, the transfusion, uh, the transference, if you will, of, of use in bellow concepts into the use ad bellum concept actually affirmatively enables aggression or more correctly endangers the right of self-defense, to be more pointed about it. That's the problem here. Now, you might say, let me, let me, so I want to set that up. Number one, let's be clear about why there are two different bodies of law. Use in bellum proportionality, I think, and I'm a minority on this, I think is most correctly summarized in Article 82B4 of the Rome Statute of the ICC. Look it up. You don't have you mean to recite it to you. But I think that's the correct articulation because you have the 1977 protocol language. The word proportionality, by the way, of course, is not in the 1977 protocols. It's not in the Geneva Conventions. Very deeply rooted concept. And the scholarship says that we never defined it because it was thought to be too slippery. Well, that's wrong. We always applied it. We knew what it was, but we never described the crime, which we did in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, right, which prohibits intentionally launching an attack in the knowledge that such attack will cause damage that's clearly excessive in relation to the concrete and direct overall military advantage anticipated. I'm the minority view on this. People will argue with me, including Charles. They will say that there's a difference between the principle of proportionality and the crime of proportionality. I think that's wrong because all of the NATO states in the use in bellow context took reservations on the principle of proportionality and all we did when we defined the crime was align the crime to the pre-existing articulations of the principle. Okay? So there's the use in bellow. Clearly, intentionally launching an attack and the knowledge that such attack would create damage that is clearly excessive in relation to the concrete and direct overall military advantage anticipated. What's that got to do with the ICJ? The Usain Bellow test is framed along similar dimensions. What we're assessing is damage. Damage on the one hand versus the, the military advantage. What the ICJ has done is to extrapolate that into the use ad bellum context and frame an attack or frame a legal analysis almost exclusively based on a comparison of the intensity of violence. That's a fundamental legal error, and it's a corruption of use ad bellum. Use ad bellum is a very different test because they're dissimilar domains. Use ad bellum simply says, I'm allowed to use a degree of legal force necessary to eliminate the threat against me. That's the basis of self-defense. The late, great Bill Sapphire you know, there, there are a few things in life that you're really proud of. Proud of your kids. I'm proud of the fact that Bill Sapphire actually quoted me one time <laughs> on that point. 
I was in Baghdad, and the phone rings, and it's William Sapphire. Of course, you have to take that phone call. And he says, I have four minutes. Explain proportionality to me. So it was a completely reactive, off the top of my head in Baghdad phone call. The use of Bellum proportionality is best explained, and this is the quote that he used in the New York Times. If a man punches you in the face, you can't burn his house down. There's a line between the lawful, defensive use of force, use ad bellum, appropriately to defend your citizens, your property, your sovereign rights, your sovereign prerogatives, and as Joram correctly said, trans transposing that line, crossing that line into punitive retribution, which in fact is not rooted in an appropriate proper self-defense. Mm -hmm. The court, in its jurisprudence, has completely messed that up by, by and analogizing use ad bellum self-defense, the use ad bellum norms, into uh, a similar scale and intensity. So for you military practitioners, you see the problem? If you take that concept out of use ad bellum, which is what the court has, has said, and you push it into use in bella, what you're really saying is your right to use force is limited to what they're using against you. Absolute trite. Legally incorrect. Now you, now you ask the question, John's saying, is he ever going to talk about the ICJ? Here you go. Ask the question, how did we get here? We have 9-11, and immediately after 9-11, we have a series of cases, and it's funny because they happened 2003, 2004, 2005, almost like raindrops, right? You get the, you get the, um, the oil platforms case, you get the wall case, Finally, you get DRC Uganda, and if you want to look it up, uh, the technical styling of the case is the Armed Forces on the Territory of Uganda is the subtitle. Yoram correctly framed this. John asked me to focus on that case because it's the latest in the evolution, and in my view, it's the one that sets the stage for a great misapplication. The theme running between all those cases is the premise that you may only lawfully use self-defense, uh, you may use ad bellum law, constrains you to only lawfully using force against state actors or, or, or actors with state attribution or as Joram described, proxy actors. The basis of the DRC Uganda case is so fundamentally flawed from the beginning because they simply say as a matter of a priori legal analysis, the dispositive issue because there's no attribution between insurgent groups operating off the soil of Uganda coming in, or DRC, coming into Uganda Article 2.4 has been violated because the Ugandans responded, period, full stop. This is like the good ship lollipop just kind of sailing along after 9-11. We settled that question on 9-11. Then in fact, as a matter of substantive international law, your right of self-defense, use ad bellum, can, can lawfully be implemented in the case of a non-state actor. To say it in the technical way, a non-state actor is capable of launching an armed attack within the meaning of Article 51 which gives rise to a lawful right of self-defense. The court is simply wrong on that. In case after case after case, they gloss past the obvious issue. The real question is, what is the proper legal context of necessity in the use ad bellum context? What is the proper legal context of proportionality in that use ad bellum context? And again here, the law in the court is all muddled because of because of the inconsistency of the court, with two fundamental results. And then I'll give you three reasons, three modern trends to watch for. 
And by the way, Yoram referenced, or somebody referenced earlier, the dicta in the decision. The dicta in the DRC Uganda case, once they've settled the issue, and you see why this is such lawyers, young lawyers particularly, mm -hmm. you see why you have to be careful, because if you ever look up DRC Uganda, this is the language you'll see quoted. Well, you know it's, completely, it's complete surplusage, because they've already said there's a violation of Article 2.4 because you're dealing with a non-state actor that's not attributable to the state. So why then go on and further muddy the water with respect to proportionality? Answer, there's an agenda. And the agenda is to minimize the appropriate latitude for states to exercise their right of self-defense, to constrain it, to cabinet, okay? The larger agenda is with, with, with due respect to my great friend Charlie Dunlap, I think his, his insight is right. The larger agenda is to harmonize, to homogenize USAD Bellum into one ni nicely, neatly cabined concept built on the human rights conception. That, that the use of force is undesirable and exceptional and should be constrained to the least, least possible uh, least possible intensity, the least possible scope, the very narrowest term, and you see what you're doing then, you're, number one, you're undermining the sovereign right of self-defense, but number two, you're, you're shifting the burden of proof. From a use in bellow context, very different applications in human rights law and use in bellow. So essentially what the ICJ is doing, and this is slightly oversimplified, is creating a harmonized, homogenized version of proportionality but one that gets the law wrong on both sides of the scale. It undermines USAD bellum in ways that are very dangerous, and for you military practitioners, it undermines use in bellow in ways that make it absolutely fundamentally legally impossible to do your job and defend yourselves. That's a problem. With two results. One, there's the hint that, that somehow when we're dealing with a non-state actor, there are even stricter, higher standards of necessity and, and, and proportionality than would apply vis-a-vis -a, -vis a state. In other words, a two-tiered approach to, to eminency and proportionality. Newton says that's wrong on the law. And they never fully explain this. You know, my counter to the court would be, give us the precise contours of the legal test that you have in mind. They can't do it. They simply say in the, in the Uganda case that there's something fundamentally incorrect because you went hundreds of meters inland and you secured some towns, see that's a necessity, that's an, an intensity analysis. There's a disconnect or a mismatch between your purported reason. Remember that the law of use ad bellum proportionality allows you to do everything necessary to eliminate the threat. As long as it's tied correctly and in good faith to the elimination of the threat. So if that means I have to go hundreds of meters in, interdict supply lines, capture a town, capture a bridge, whatever, as long as I in good faith can say that I'm addressing my military activities against that threat, it's legitimate lawful self-defense under the rubric of proportionality. It's got nothing to do with intensity, okay? The reason they get that is because of they have transposed the intensity elements from use in bello into use ad bellum, and they've done it incorrectly. The second problem is, is what I just said, is that they completely negate the, the, the breadth of latitude under USAD bellum, not only to address a current attack or an impending attack, but of course you all know where I'm going with this, the ability to deter future attacks. 
And this, I think, is the area where the law is most in development right now, because the ICJ has set up essentially a, a, a jurisprudential train wreck. They've said future attacks are only, only in the most immediate necessity, the most immediate imminency, the most immediate, breathtakingly obvious cases. That's not the world in which we live. And, and, and the challenge in the next few years, I think, is to push on this future attack. How far does that extend uh, in direct participation language? How far does that extend to what the, what the DOD manual calls supporting forces? It's the same concept. Future attacks, imminent attacks, the law here is very unsettled. My sense is that the line of jurisprudence from Nicaragua to the oil platforms to the wall case to the DRC case has set that up for a very dangerous, very difficult answer. So what you see, in summary, is a vast disconnect between state practice in the real world and the way diplomats talk and what the ICJ would say in a matter of, of, of theory, which, of course, was not the point of the court. Let me give you three trends very quickly that, that a lot of people would point to and say, well, don't worry about it because we've solved this problem, okay? Number one. The new ICRC commentary attempts to conflate these issues. The ICRC simply says, as a matter of substantive international law, anytime you have any action on, by one state on the territory of another state, the full weight of use in bellow law of war is immediately implicated because, by definition, you have an armed conflict between those two states. Okay? Now, that's unprecedented. That's the ICRC commentary. I would push back on them and say, number one, show me any example of state practice that supports that mm -hmm. anywhere in the world. But number two, if you make that the binding legal rule, what you're really saying is USAD Bellum has been completely corrupted now. That's not the dispositive body of law any longer for the legality of assessing those attacks. Now we're just going to immediately revert to USAD Bellum. And I don't think, and I've talked to them about this, the ICRC despite the fact that these are two different bodies of law, in that way has undermined use ad bellum. The second thing, remember, Article 2.4 is a use Kogan's norm. So if you want to be strict about it, and if you're taking a law school exam, you ask the question, in undermining a use Kogan's norm, which is the prohibition against the use of force on the territory of another state, how do you change that norm? You change it by explicitly addressing the normative content of that use Kogan's norm and saying, we are now fundamentally changing the content of this use Kogan's norm. That's one of the problems in this line of jurisprudence is that they've not done that. They've simply said it doesn't apply. You see the problem? In the real world, the ICJ structured series of tests don't work and are ignored by states. Which, which in turn leads to a great deal of, of imprecision and unclarity. And the third thing that a lot of people will point to is to say, don't worry about all of this, because now we have Article 8 bis of the Rome Statute. We've now outlawed aggression. We're going to think of this as, as, as deferring. Uh, we've now empowered the ICC to be the dispositive body of this, this law, because the ICC has jurisdiction over the crime of aggression in 8 bis, the ICC will be the one to sort this out. And I would tell you respectfully, don't count on it. Because the law here is so muddled, the ICC simply won't have jurisdiction. And more importantly, the way Article 8 bis and the implementing 
the implementing elements are worded, you won't have ICC jurisdiction over the cases that really matter. So what are you left with? You're left with a long line of ICJ cases that, in my view, are wrong on the law because they undervalue USIN Bello and USAD Bellum as distinctive bodies of law. They conflate that. They push it into a simple analysis of Article 2.4, and then what do they do? They avoid the question. That's the problem here. And I'm done. Mike, thank you very much. Our next panelist is Major General Charles J. Dunlap, Jr., who is a former Deputy Judge Advocate General of the U.S. Air Force, currently on the Duke Law Faculty, uh, where he is Professor of the Practice of Law and Executive Director of the Center on Law, Ethics, and National Security. Um, among other assignments, uh, he served as the Staff Judge Advocate for the Air Combat Command, U.S. Strategic Command, and Deputy Staff Judge Advocate for the U.S. Central Command, deployed for operations in the Middle East and Africa. Uh, one of the most important contributions uh, of the many that Major General Dunlap has made is his extraordinary work on lawfare. Uh, he has understood and articulated, I think, for all of us very effectively how the groups that seek to engage in aggression have understood that they can turn the law against us, particularly in seeking actions in the International Court of Justice, which is uh, something very, very sad and itself undermines the legal system. And thank you, Charlie, for the clarity of your work in that area. Charlie? Thank you very much, John, and uh, I'd like to thank the, the law school and everyone else involved in putting together this conference. It's great to be here. And it's also, I share Mike's trepidation of, of following uh, Urim, because whatever I say is uh, not as good as whatever he says, so keep that in mind. Uh, and it's wonderful to see old friends, Dave Graham, uh, Bobby Chesney, and, and everyone here. It's, it's really terrific. This is a very important topic. And who are UVA law students in the audience? Uh, gentlemen in the uh, UNC colored <laughs> sweater, what is the biggest use ad bellum issue right now, do you think? I mean, most recent in my mind, everything Professor Dinstein uh, talked about with uh, use of force in the proxy wars and non-international armed conflict, uh, specifically. Okay. Does anybody have a, a different different view? Ma'am? Just use your command voice. I know I, I can hear you. Uh, I think the extension of anticipatory self-defense, like Mr. Noon was saying, to preemptive and preventative forms of self-defense is okay. something that's on the forefront. Well, I, I, I'm not as smart as I thought, thought I was, because I thought everybody would say, uh, what is an act of war in the cyber context? And the reason I say that is just yesterday in USA Today, there was an op-ed which said, we need to call Russian meddling what it is, an attack on the United States. Well, 
words matter, especially in international law. And when we think about that, I think we do are struggling with what exactly is law with respect to cyber and what acts are permitted in response. And that brings us to looking at the structure of the ICJ, but indeed the structure of any court. And I think part of the challenge in this particular area of the law is that the ICJ, remember, it's not like our courts. It's not a court of precedent. They do issue advisory opinions. In other words, they don't have a, have a case or conflict to issue uh, an opinion. And by definition, advisory opinions are going to have to be uh, uh, very broad and, and not focused on the specific facts from which they arise. And in relationship to this area of the law, even though uh, Professor Moore's article is the seminal piece in USAID Mellon in the ICJ, and mandatory reading, by the way, for students to take my course in use of force, but thinking about advisory opinions, we've talked about a number of ICJ cases, but what about the nuclear weapons case? What does the court say in that case? They go through 400 or 500 pages denigrating uh, nuclear weapons in terms of, of being proper uses of force in any context. But then at the end of the day, they say we cannot say that the possession or use of nuclear weapons would be unlawful in the circumstance of the if the survival of the state was at stake. So in other words, uh, what does that mean? And how does that fit into this larger architecture of the use of force to include use of bellum? And I think that one of the problems that is specifically highlighted by these decisions is when was the last decision? Wasn't it armed activities? Wasn't it like uh, 2005? Nu nuclear weapons. Or, or came uh, later. Two Armed activities with 2005. Armed activities with 2005. So almost by definition, the ICJ is going to be trailing at a great distance technological developments. And I think some of the problems that you see in these cases are because of the lack of expertise, an almost impossible level of expertise that, that a court would have. For example, in our courts, uh, you know, we have the political question doctrine, we have various other doctrines that stop the courts essentially from picking targets in, in drone cases. Uh, because the courts say, we don't have the competence to do this. And I, it really struck me in Oil Platform's case where they make the judgment that, oh, you don't need to kill all these Iranian boats because, geez, number one, they bollocks up the whole proportionality idea. But secondly, it's their judgment that that's what was needed to stop the Iranian. That's a military judgment of which they have no competence to make. There is a capacity for the court to, uh, and I, I, think, uh, I think that they used it in Corfu Channel, a panel of experts or committee of experts. But in this area, I think it would be very hard to assemble a committee of experts when you're looking at technological uh, technological incidents, for example, related to cyber. How are you really going to do that as a practical matter? 
And the reason I'm mentioning all this is because I think that the ICJ has many useful roles in international law. But in the area of judgments as to the use of force, I don't think that they're sufficiently deferential or the development of the law has to be more deferential to state practice. Because when you look at these cases, in several instances, they've been overcome by state practice. And I think the Wall case is a classic example. Would there be anybody today who would say that any nation take the position that Article 51, other than maybe the Vatican or somebody, Cuba. would take the Cuba would take, Cuba would take the position that uh, you can only use Article 51 in the case of a, another state attacking you? I don't think that that's, that's going to align with any interpretation or any anticipated state practice. And along this line, uh, talking about what the young lady raised is anticipatory self-defense. You know, I think most states today, it used to just be the United States and Israel, but I think most states today, in one way or the other, with the possible exception of, you know, China, and I'm going to talk about China in a second, would not... Uh, we would agree that there is a concept of anticipatory self-defense, but it's impacted very uniquely by technology. There's a, when you read through the U.S. position, it talks about uh, the last window of opportunity, which is inconsistent with a strict imminence requirement that China and other countries are, are looking at. But that last window of opportunity may, is very important because in Thomas Friedman's book, he makes an observation. Thomas Friedman, uh, his, I'm talking about uh, Thank You for Being Late, if anybody's read that book, where he talks about technology has really trans, transformed relations because now we have small groups of people or even individuals uh, have the capability of wreaking great havoc. And he says... Uh, you know, we now, we're entering an age where one of us can kill all of us. So the idea of waiting until that person is actually in the process of pressing the button may be too late, especially with the kinds of weapons that, that uh, you know, come on, come on, coming onto the scene. The problem with all this is that when you look at the structure of the ICJ, they are never going to be able to address in any sort of a timely manner these emerging issues. And so while I do think that there is a place, and we can talk in detail about some of the deficiencies in all these cases, I think uh, John, Professor Moore outlines them fantastically in his, uh, in his article, but I would also recommend that you read Sean Murphy's article about the structure of the ICJ. And I think it highlights very well the things that the ICJ can do well and the, and the things that, uh, that they don't do so well because of the, the necessary structure that you have to have for an international court. And so, in other words, I don't see the ICJ ever evolving into the kind of institution that will provide the guidance and direction and norm building that we might see in our own courts with respect to, for example, criminal procedure. It's just not going to be reactive enough. And so we have to look at, uh, at norm building through other processes. And I've never thought I would say this, but I think even um, 
you know, when, when states can agree on non-binding codes of conduct and so forth are more uh, productive in terms of norm building than waiting around for an ICJ case that is going to be A, dated by the time it actually comes out, but B, not necessarily informed by the technological developments, and C, can get wound up in, in political nuances that, that uh, Urim, you know, they've done what they can to try to eliminate political influences in the way they've structured the courts. The court. I don't think that they can do anymore. Uh, and so we're left with looking for some other opportunities. And so I think that we, we should not think of the ICJ in the same way that we think of the Supreme Court in this country. And secondly, I think we need to acknowledge that it's not going to be as reactive as we need it to be uh, for the challenges we're facing. And then thirdly, I think we have to think more about how we articulate state practice. You know, state practice is not a blank check because there are some states in their practice and maybe more than one state that is undesirable from the point of view of international law. But nevertheless, I think that in this particular area, we have to give more consideration to that. And with that, I'll, I'll, uh, I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Charlie. Our final distinguished panelist is Edwin Williamson. Edwin Williamson uh, has spent his, most of his professional career with uh, one of the top law firms in the United States, Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, he joined Sullivan as an associate and uh, moved up to become a partner in 1971, and he is now a retired partner uh, in Sullivan and Cromwell. Of uh, particular importance to the panel today, uh, Edwin served as the legal advisor of the United States Department of State from September 1990 until January 1993. Um, his work has focused broadly on international law, including use of force issues, but also economic sanctions law, ethics rules applicable to government officials, and the immunities of foreign sovereigns and international organizations. The latter issue, which is uh, now squarely again uh, before the courts, uh, with a, or at least an effort uh, at cert in the Supreme Court with a split uh, in the uh, uh, circuit says to immunity of international organizations. Edwin? <coughs> Thank you, John. And, um, uh, like my fellow panelists, I want to thank you for putting this panel on um, and uh, including me. Um, I was looking at the list of panelists, and now that um, General Pete is not uh, joining us, I guess I'm the only panelist on the uh, program today who is not an academic. Um, I've never been in academia, and I've um, only been in government service outside the private practice for my two and a half years when I was at the State Department. Um, so I was, I'll admit to not being quite as deeply immersed in uh, some of these subjects as our academics and, um, and perhaps even plead guilty to a little rustiness on some of the issues. So this has been a great opportunity and a great excuse to try to get myself up to speed. Um, I can say that the biggest um, 
Um, problem with the snowstorm is that um, I had to drive down from Washington this morning, and therefore I, um, and having already gotten up at a um, atypical hour for this lazy retired lawyer, um, I missed uh, Professor Deanstein's uh, lecture, which I think I would have enjoyed immensely having heard the last 10 minutes or so and the Q&A. Um, so um, I was thinking about, you know, how does one, uh, one of the way, how does one approach this question of USAID Bellum and in the International Court of Justice? Uh, so uh, should we discuss the uh, use of Bellum rules as laid out in ICJ decisions, or should we discuss the impact of those rules on U.S. policy? The problem with the first approach is it would require a panel presentation of record-setting length. Uh, the subject is one of those typical international law subjects. It reminds me of a comment one of our lawyers at the State Department made when I asked her how a conference went. Uh, she replied that it was not enough that everything had been said or that everyone had said something, but they could not stop until everybody had said everything. <laughs> so seriously, though, I think John's uh, 2012 piece in the Virginia International Law Journal, which uh, Charlie referred to, really does provide a very sound summary and criticism of the ICJ's use ad bellum jurisprudence, and it would not make sense for me to try to do any better. The problem with the second approach is that it would result in a panel presentation of record-setting brevity. The short answer to the question of how much of the ICJ rules reflected in U U.S. policy is very little. Um, and I was actually quite struck by this when I really sort of sat down and, and parsed, parsed through it. So, but let me just start out um, with a little, quick little summary here. So the ICJ uh, jurisprudence, if, if, if followed, would severely limit the right of self-defense policies and practices of the United States and its close allies, such as the UK. So here's John's summary of these limitations from his 2012 article. Uh, John, um, being the purist that he is, um, uh, refers to defense rather than self-defense on the theory that the self is redundant. Um, but I'm going to, just because it doesn't sound right to me, <laughs> going to insert self before the word defense in each case. But uh, without, uh, for the slightest, um, uh, disparaging John's, I think, quite correct argument that it, is, that it is redundant. Anyway, so these limitations are the right of self-defense does not include the right to sweep mines clandestinely and placed in an international waterway and targeting neutral shipping. That comes from the Corfu Channel case. There is no right of individual and collective self-defense against ongoing, quote, less grave aggression or, quote, indirect aggression. That comes from Nicaragua. There's no right of individual and collective self-defense against indiscriminate attacks that's implicit in the Iran uh, oil platforms decision. There's no right of individual and collective self-defense against attacks from non-state actors, the Israeli wall decision. There's no right of individual and collective self-defense against insurgent or rebel attacks from the territory of a third state where that third state is simply unwilling or unable to stop the attacks. That's implicit in the Congo decision. 
There's no right of collective self-defense until an attack state has first publicly declared itself to be attacked and has publicly requested assistance, Nicaragua. The right of collective self-defense is not coterminous with the right of individual self-defense, implicit in Nicaragua. Necessity in use in Bellow law requires specific prior complaint about the role of a particular potential target of the defensive purpose, uh, the Iran platforms uh, decision, or platforms. Proportionality in use in Bellow law is a matter of weighing the d damage done in an attack against the damage done in an offensive response. And that's, the, again, the oil platforms. The basic documents articulating the self-defense policies of the George W. Bush administration and the Obama administration, the 2000, those are the 2002 uh, national security strategy put out by the Bush administration and the Obama administration's December 2016 report on the legal frameworks guiding the U.S. Of use of military force, uh, which is um, going to be the subject of the next panel, uh, reject or ignore each of these ICJ limitations. The rejections include the explicit claims of a right to use, self, for, use force in self-defense against non-state actors and against attackers in the territory of states that are unwilling or unable to stop such attacks. The robust assertions of the right to preemptive or anticipatory self-defense are inconsistent with the ICJ's restrictions on the use of force against, quote, less grave aggression or indirect aggression, or its imposition of formal notice or declaration requirements. Their articulation of the overlying principles of necessity and proportionality do not adhere to the narrow formulaic approaches of the ICJ. I'm not going into any more detail on these two policy articulations since, as I've mentioned, the next panel will be discussing the Obama Legal Frameworks Report and the uh, Trump's administ Trump administration's updating of it. Um, I would, however, like to digress for a moment and, and just make an observation about uh, where we are on these principles. So the Bush um, national security uh, statement is explained and uh, elaborated on um, in speeches by uh, the State Department legal advisor Will Taft and uh, Deputy Assistant Attorney General for OLC John Yoo was a robust articulation of the doctrine of preemptive or anticipatory self-defense, which I would define as the use of military force in defense against an imminent as opposed to an actual attack. The Obama administration's legal frameworks report likewise takes a robust position on anticipatory self-defense. The Bush Taft U pronouncements were done in the context of defense against WMD attacks, whereas the Obama report is more focused on defense against terrorist attacks. The Obama report's policy with respect to anticipatory self-defense relies heavily on principle eight of and is otherwise inconsistent with former UK foreign and Commonwealth legal advisor Sir Daniel Bethlehem's 16 principles published in 2012 in the American Journal of International Law. 
At the April 2016 ASIL meeting, uh, Obama State Department legal advisor Brian Egan articulated what was to be included in the Obama administration report, um, relying very heavily on um, uh, Sir uh, Daniel's uh, 16, 16 points, particularly principle, principle 8. Uh, this prompted Jack Goldsmith uh, uh, from Harvard uh, writing in Time magazine and blogging on Lawfare blog to argue, quote, and this was with respect to Brian's uh, ASIL's, ASIL speech, Egan here embraces all of the tenets of Bush preemptive, preemption, though he discusses the principle in the context of force against non-state actor terrorists, the rationale applies readily and indeed less controversially to states themselves. If anything, Egan announces a broader principle than Bush's since he, unlike the Bush team, applies it in the context of threats short of the weapons of mass destruction that motivated uh, Bush. Uh, this, in terms of, prompted a retort from Sir Daniel, uh, basically, I, I apologize to him for the brevity of this uh, summary, but anyway, but basically pushing against, back against any insinuation that he agreed with anything that Bush and you said. Um, I'm afraid that I don't have time to go into detail, but uh, suffice it to say that I, in my perception, it boiled down to Sir Daniel's complaint that the Bush-U argument could not be relied upon because they had misapplied uh, the use in bellow positions with respect to, among other things, the treatment of detainees. There are all wording differences between the Bethlehem Egan and the Bush-U versions with the former doing a bit more hand-wringing of the issue of what constitutes eminence. But I don't think there is any substantive difference. I think Goldsmith won the day with his point. It is important to understand that Egan's speech, quote, it is important to understand that Egan's speech, which relies on Bethlehem's work, is so significant. When the international law-friendly Obama administration embraces preemption, and can point to the support of such eminent jurists as Bethlehem, preemption becomes, quote, easier to swallow and, and gains broader acceptance and legitimacy. It is the Obama administration's articulation of the preemption principle, not the Bush articulation, not the Bush articulation, that will be important. Future presidents who want to use force in other nations won't invoke the doctrine from the fateful Iraq war. They will instead adopt the functionally identical principle that the Obama administration normalized and legitimated. That's the end of Jack's uh, quote. In any event, as a, whether there is a difference between the, uh, the Egan-Bethlehem uh, position and the Bush youth position, um, I think the Obama, uh, the, the Obama report adds a sentence um, based on, to its discussion of this, based on a 2010 speech at Harvard by John Brennan, who was then the assistant to the president for Homeland Security and became, uh, for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism and became later the CIA director. This is Senate says, as is now increasingly recognized by the international community, the traditional concept of what constitutes an imminent attack, 
must be understood in light of the modern-day capabilities, techniques, and technological innovations of terrorist organizations. I think the addition of this sentence shrinks whatever differences one can imagine between the Bush and Obama positions. So let me return to the question which um, uh, said was sort of the main point, and that's the, and has been raised by um, a couple of other speakers already. So the self-defense policies of the United States largely ignore the restrictions that would be imposed by the ICJ jurisprudence in the field. Why, one might ask. I think the answer is complicated and, and controversial. And this is an explanation. It is not a selected, uh, I do not have a solution. Personally, I've come to the view that outside of a few narrow fields, international tri tribunals are not great lawmaking entities. In Nicaragua and the oil platform cases in particular, the ICJ clearly did not demonstrate their ability to handle complicated and disputed ev evidentiary issues and may even have allowed fraudulent evidence in for consideration. Then there's a the question of the quality of decisions. The ICJ jurisdiction in the Nicaragua case was, I was going to use the word obliterated, but I prefer Professor Dunstein's much more elegant phrase of made mincemeat of by James Crawford, now an ICJ judge himself, in a paper delivered in connection with the celebration of the 25th anniversary of the bringing of the case. The dissents by the U.S. judge in the case, Steve Swabel, are brilliant in their refutation of the majority opinions. I'm not a great follower of the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea, or ITLOS, but I read with amazement their decisions in the cases involving the provisional measures awarded in the detention of the Argentine Navy's tall ship in Ghana um, uh, and, the green, and on the Greenpeace Arctic surprise tax, attacks on the Russian oil platforms, as well as the jurisdiction decision in the South China Arbitration Panel. Um, but the arbitration panel decision was it for me. I've been on the narrow edge of being a supporter of accession for the, of U.S. accession to the uh, U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea, but that tipped me over. Um, unlike China with respect to the South China Sea decision and Russia with respect to the Arctic Sunrise decision, as a rule of law country, we cannot ignore a dispute settlement panel decision that goes against us. Then there's also, I think, an integrity issue. Uh, Paul Reichler, uh, who brought the Nicaragua case and, uh, and the South China Sea case, um, makes up um, this comment in his 2001 Harvard International Law piece and uh, homage to Abe Shays. Um, and he discusses um, how, how the bringing of the Nicaragua case evolved. And on the edge, on the fringes of the UN meetings in 1983, quote, another critical consultation took place at UN headquarters in New York. A meeting was arranged with one of the judges of the court from a non-aligned nation to acquire, and, and repeat that, 
consultation took place, a meeting was arranged with one of the judges of the court to inquire whether, in his opinion, the court would make an impartial judgment in a case brought by Nicaragua against the U.S., or whether the judges would feel obliged, for whatever reason, to favor the United States. The answer was unequivocal. The composition of the court was such that it could be counted upon to decide the case on its merits. When I raised the question of the propriety of such an ex parte communication at a panel discussion a few years ago, Reichler said that the meeting was with a former ICJ judge. I'm, I'm almost tempted to ask how many here would have described that conversation without the word former in it. Um, the, I think it's at least time that for Mr. Reichler to disclose the name of his, his confidant, who must be dead by now. My content, confidence in multilateral tribunals was not boosted by an article I read last fall about ex parte communications between a judge and a party in a permanent court of arbitration, uh, arbitration between Croatia and Slovenia. I've seen no outcry about this gross violation of basic legal ethics. While the Croatians withdrew and the two offending parties were replaced, the tribunal carried on on its merry way and issued its decision. The final, um, uh, those are more sort of a personal things, but I also want to throw something out for that maybe is more of interest to, to this group. And I think one of the problems is the nature of customary international law. I think too much of what passes for so-called customary international law is not law, but just diplomacy by politically unaccountable lawyers. Edwin, thank you uh, very much. Uh, I'm now going to take about 10 minutes with the panel to throw a series of questions at the panel, and then uh, the last 15 minutes, uh, we will open it up for questions from the audience. The first of these is really to pin down the views of the panel as to the scope of lawful use of force uh, under use ad bellum. Uh, that is, what is the full scope of uh, uh, use of force under Article 2, subparagraph 4 of the UN Charter? And just a little bit of background, uh, it is generally accepted that uh, certainly the right of individual and collective defense is one of those. Uh, we can get into the question of anticipatory defense on that, that I think most of us accept if under appropriate circumstances. The second that is generally accepted would certainly be uh, authorized by the uh, United Nations Security Council, uh, or more broadly, if, if we had time to go into it, uh, United Nations action. Um, the third uh, that was mentioned this morning by uh, 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 Professor uh, Denstein, which I think is uh, certainly one of those, and yet not usually on the list that uh, international law professors teach their students is consent by a sovereign state. Um, and the fourth and fifth are things that are somewhat, um, uh, let's say, controversial, even though I firmly believe that uh, they are a part of the charter since they are 
uh, actually uh, come right out of the language of the charter itself. And one of those is a limited ability of uh, regional arrangements to use force, provided the action is not inconsistent with the purposes and principles of the charter and is not enforcement action. And the final point uh, relates to, of course, the debate about uh, some settings of uh, uh, protection of nationals or more broadly humanitarian intervention. That is, is there a category, quote, below the threshold of Article 2.4? For those of you interested that have a copy of this article that appears uh, on uh, pages uh, 9.10 to 9.15, but I'd like really to ask the panelists at this point, uh, what of those five uh, do they accept, or perhaps we'll make it uh, a shorter conversation, which of the five uh, might they not accept uh, at this point? And let's just start uh, same order. Mike? Okay, can I take the liberty to make one predicate comment on that? Surely. So, Ed and I didn't talk about this, but if you're a law student and you'd like to cut to the chase, I'm sitting here with my tabbed page, which is exactly what he read, pages 947 and 948 of this article. It's a great summary of the body of law, the flow from those cases. There it is tabbed. When I tab it, you know it's a good summary. I think the larger question, the predicate to your question, and I know you agree with me on this because you taught me this, but I think it's more correct, is to remember, and the problem with the framing of the ICJ is that they're looking at these issues as a matter of treaty law. Article 51 says not that the right of self-defense is created by the charter, but that it is inherent, it is sovereign. What we're talking about is the aspects of sovereignty and appropriate sovereignty. So that's really the question. It's not what is the Article 51 exception and what is the meaning of 2.4. The question is, what are appropriate sovereign uses of force that don't violate the normative overarching prohibition of Article 2.4? That's a different question than the way the ICJ typically frames it. And that's why it's important that they so often avoid the question by saying Article 2.4 is not implicated here. We're not even going to address the real substantive merits. Um, I, I think I fall in line with all those being permissible with the exception of humanitarian intervention. I think humanitarian intervention is, is still just too controversial, just too debated. Um, where there is isolated state practice, I did a, a piece one time, a law review piece, um, there are always mixed motives in what people commonly cite as humanitarian intervention cases. Uh, the one possible example people like to use is, of course, uh, Kosovo, which is distinguishable for lots of reasons. Um, there's just no really good examples of humanitarian intervention until Libya comes along, and then you read the U.S. framing of that, and Libya doesn't count as humanitarian intervention precisely because of the way it was done and the, the, the vagueness of the dialogue. So of the, of the uses that you articulated, um, I think I, I obviously can state consent but there is a new issue on the, on the boundaries, which you didn't point out, which I think is controversial, which is the issue of quasi-consent. You know, Syria, we're not, we're not consulting them with respect to uses of force on Syria, okay? The French didn't really consult with Mali much, except to say, we're coming, see our planes flying over with respect to that. So I think that's the emerging issue. It's not just, nobody would really debate pure consent 
I think the emerging issue is quasi-consent in states that really don't have territorial control or at best very loose territorial control. And that's where I think we need to have a clear debate. But classic consent, that's a pretty easy case. Charlie? I would pretty much agree with uh, Mike. Uh, I would point out that on the issue of consent, I think actually, doesn't actually Deeks have, a, have an article on that because there are other issues associated with consent. For example, if the, the receiving state consents to you coming in for you to do something that is illegal under their law and how does all that work out? So I think that there are more issues there. But for the law students, I think that that one of the key issues is the way the United States looks at the triggering of self-defense. Most nations in the world think that there is a, believe that there is a difference between the words armed attack as used in Article 51 and use of force as used in Article 2 sub 4. The United States takes the position that there is no difference and that any use of force triggers the right of self-defense. That's interesting, but then all of the examples that they, practically all of the examples, with one exception that I'm aware of, would actually meet the armed attack equivalency standard. And the one exception to that is if you look at chapter 16 of the DOD Law of War Manual, there's an example in there about um, the uh, uh, supply system computer that is taken out of, uh, of use because of a cyber attack that is not destructive in the way that, say, the Talon Manual interprets destruction. So I think that, that you have that issue. The one thing that, that I find kind of interesting when we look at these, these legal modalities is recent, the recent case in the UK where you have a situation where a foreign country, Russia, is alleged to have uh, killed a, or injured, tried to kill a, an individual and his daughter through the use of a sophisticated uh, chemical weapon. Uh, Alex Whiting and uh, Ryan Goodman have written an interesting article on just security where they say, well, we ought to prosecute uh, Putin in the ICC for a war crime. And when you start peeling that back, what they do correctly, albeit I think somewhat illogically, is they make the point that the standard for the triggering of the Gene application of the Geneva Conventions is much below the use of force, let alone the use of armed force. And so you could have a, reading the Geneva Conventions and especially the ICJ commentary on it, you could have an armed conflict between the UK and Russia, but the UK would not be authorized to act in self-defense because the triggering activity, the injuring of two people in their country is not sufficiently egregious to, uh, to warrant use of force in, in self-defense. And I think that that's the kind of thing that, uh, if you're a lawyer, you can parse your way through the logic of that, but it's not the kind of thing that I think enhances uh, respect for the law or even an understanding of the law. So uh, when we start talking about that uh, and, and which of these things do we accept, I think we may have a new, a new category that we have to think about. The one issue that I think is more controversial 
among certain lawyers than it is with any state is uh, the law of rescue. In other words, if you read Thomas Rue's analysis where he basically says that countries do not have under international law, do not have the right to rescue their nationals that are in peril and they have to use some other means of doing that. I don't think, I, I'm open, but I don't think that there is a state on planet Earth, can't talk about other solar systems, but on planet Earth, that if they had the capability and their citizens were in peril, that they would not use force to try to rescue them if the alternative is those, those individuals would be, would be killed. But when you read Tom Roos's argument, you, you parse through it, you see where he's coming from. It's just not going to align with the state practice of anybody. Edwin? Um, uh, I think I'm going to sort of step back and say that um, I'm very uncomfortable with any use of force in both the international and the U.S. domestic constitutional uh, context that um, is not in defense of a vital uh, individual or collective national interest. So that's what determines, so I don't think the absence of a provision in the UN Charter, I mean, if the UN, forgetting the complications of the interpretation of 2-4, but assume that the, um, the Charter does not say, um, does not have a flat ban on the use of force except and specify the exceptions, I don't think that means that you can use force. Right. Uh, so. I think, as I say, the use of force has to be based on this concept of defense. And um, so I'm not sure I understand sufficiently the regional example, but it sounds to me as if there, there would be some defense context in that. The humanitarian, um, I don't think fits into that. And um, in fact, I argued in the, and not where anybody was listening, but um, um, at least I was prepared to make the argument that um, in the Kosovo context, that it would have been mu a much less um, stretching of the facts and the law if the Clinton administration had, um, and the Europeans in particular, who basically made this argument in the, in the media, uh, that the need to go into Kosovo was based on a uh, defense against vital national interest, um, the threat to Europeans, blah, 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 uh, as opposed to coming up with a concept of a humanitarian uh, law. Um, and then, but in the, then on the question of the armed attack versus uh, the armed attack uh, language in the charter, I think is just not. I mean, although I'm a, kind of a strict constructionist and original, I'm also a originalist. Um, um, I'm a strong believer in uh, that there is a right of preemptive or anticipatory self-defense, um, and I think that is a complicated, nuanced, factual question. Uh, the one thing that I think did come out of the uh, Bush, you, and uh, Taft to some extent uh, uh, side that um, 
I don't think has been accepted by the Bethlehem Egan uh, Obama uh, crowd as the as John Hughes um, uh, uh, quite clear um, position, which I agree with, that uh, the question of eminence is not a temporal concept that is not limited to just a question of time. Um, so um, the on the question of consent, um, I got in just at the end, or at least of the question, um, to uh, Dr. Denston and on that, on consent. And I'm a little baffled by the focus on consent um, if you have an acceptance of the unwilling or unable. I'm, I'm not sure where you need to rely on cons consent if you have a situation where the host state is either unwilling or unable uh, to, to take the action necessary. Can I also digress on one sure, quick sure. point on uh, Charlie's um, uh, question of, of cyber, uh, cyber issues being an act of war. Um, uh, Charlie, are you part of the Talon group? No. Okay, um, you sound like one. <laughs> it, um, um, I think that's is a wrong uh, concept. I think most, if we're talking about cyber activities, we're talking about what the Russians did in the context of the 2016 election, just focus on that. That's not an act of war. That's, counter, that's, that's espionage. So let's treat it as an espionage issue. Let's analyze it that way. You know, if it goes over, you know, bounds, and uh, at some point there certainly are some espionage activities that can become an act of war. Um, I mean, easy case if you get into uh, physical destruction of infrastructure, uh, physical change of uh, infrastructure, I think, sort of moves into that um, where you, you can really start thinking in terms of some um, deterrent of, uh, actions that are being done that sound like uh, uses of force. But, um, but generally, I think it, uh, I would not assume that the cyber activity is an act of war. Well, just to be clear, I agree with that. It was espionage. That's why I'm contrasting it with what I read yesterday, that there are some people calling it an attack and wanting it to be considered an attack. And I'm just suggesting that there are consequences to, you know, words do matter in the law. Okay. I, well, I misunderstood. And, but but <coughs> thanks for letting me clarify that, because I will say this. There may be some upper limit where there is such manipulation and such damage to democratic processes through the sophisticated use of technology and analysis and crunching big data where we might have to think about that in, in a different way. But, but, but merely, for example, uh, I asked Adam Schiff this very question. I said, if we had the opportunity to influence the election in a hostile state by releasing factual information. Remember, the DNC uh, emails were factual, very anti-Catholic, I might add, as a Catholic. But uh, to influence an election, would we do it? What do you think his answer was? Of course. 
He says, well, I can't talk about oh, I you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I was here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he did say, well, you know, historically we've done stuff like that, but uh, something along those lines. But, but you're absolutely right. I think, I, I think we ought to be very careful about what we choose to call an attack, what we choose to call a violation of sovereignty. You know, one of the big issues now in the whole cyber world is that these below threshold things to include practically espionage might be a violation of sovereignty, ergo an offense against international law. Be careful what you pray for because you might actually get it. And if, if that became the norm, keep in mind that the Chinese do not even accept that international law governs right. cyber war. There is an excellent 20-page uh, monograph by Julian Q. Uh, I think it was talked about on Lawfare, and there's a link. Hudson, somebody put it out. Yep. But it's really good and very insightful on this particular issue of how the Chinese view USAID Bellum, and it's very limited, partly because of exactly what, what Edwin said. They do not want to open the door in any way to anything that might permit the interference with internal affairs, because obviously they're thinking about Tibet, they're Mongolia, Taiwan, all, all sorts of things that they consider to be their internal affairs. So that, I think, is something that we have to look at in our discussion of USAID Bellum. Yeah, and let me, let me pull this out of the ether, pun intended, um, and get back to the ICJ. If we're asking the question, what are the appropriate bounds of sovereign prerogatives? because that's the right question here. That's what we're talking about, is the difference between appropriate exercises of sovereignty for X purpose, Y purpose, rescue of nationals, et cetera. And charter prohibitions, I would submit, and this is heretical, so let me turn the cameras off. I would submit the ICJ is the wrong body to turn to to answer that question. I agree. That's not what they do. Uh, that's what they think they do a lot of times. And, and here I like to quote, I go back to Judge Aheron Barak. I like the way he thinks about it. Charlie raised the point, and this was subtle. Some of y'all missed this, but this was an important point, that in U.S. jurisprudence and in the jurisprudence of many other states, you simply would not get judicial analysis or resolution of these core issues because it would be dismissed either on the grounds of sovereign prerogative or in our system political question or active state doctrine. There are any number of ways, or non-justiciability, any number of ways of handling that in our own system where we say, in essence, this is the appropriate lane, the appropriate discretion, the appropriate role for judicial bodies. That is the appropriate role and discretion for political bodies. That's a political question. You want to talk about the War Powers Act? Go litigate that in the halls of Congress and extend that through the funding debates. I want, to, I want to point out to you that the ICJ does not work on that premise. And Aaron Barak is exactly right. He was asked the question about proportionality. Why do Israeli courts not follow this, much of that same logic? And they start to analyze targeting issues, et cetera. And, he, and his answer is exactly right. He says, those are issues for commanders and politicians. It is our job to guard the boundaries. The ICJ would never say, make a similar comment. And so I would submit that when we're talking about the boundaries of sovereignty, it's a question of state practice and agreement between states. Just a brief clarification on the uh, despicable uh, Russian intervention in our election, uh, which I think that uh, the panelists would actually agree with, but just for clarifying it for the record, 
uh, it is neither uh, armed attack on the United States, uh, nor is it intelligence gathering, which they also use cyber for. It was a despicable effort to influence the United States political uh, system and to harm the United States uh, culturally and uh, a variety of other uh, ways. It was not intelligence gathering, which is one of the things they do, just as we also see uh, crime uh, on the Internet. So I think we need to be uh, uh, careful about uh, how we uh, categorize uh, the individual uh, uh, activities uh, on it. Well, uh, I had initially. Can, uh, can I push back just yes, slightly? Can, uh, slightly. Right slightly. It, I, I do think that uh, it was an intelligence activity. It might not be espionage as we, as we might have historically thought about. But along the lines of thinking about espionage, as you know, generally speaking, it's not a violation of international law. But here again, technology may have changed things because in the old world, uh, you might have been able to go in and steal, you know, uh, a couple files worth of uh, information. But now we have a situation where China went and or North Korea, or whoever it might have been, stole 24 million records of Americans. That is only something that could happen in the modern era. And now you, you also, another feature of the modern era is that you have the ability to crunch that big data. So espionage has exponentially been uh, empowered through technology, and it may be that at some point, we have to rethink this idea that, well, it's just espionage, everybody does it. Uh, a, it's, it's more than, it's not espionage, it's not your grandfather's espionage, and that secondly, it can have effects on all kinds of people for the rest of their lives, and it uh, hold people hostage in a way. So maybe we need to think about that. I'm not sure what the answer is, but maybe we need to Char think about it. Charlie, to push back again, I think the distinction which you drew is exactly one of the reasons why we may need to make the distinction I made. As you point out, intelligence gathering and intelligence generally is not in violation of international law. Uh, in fact, what the Soviet Union was doing in an effort, or Russia today, still uh, stuck in the Cold War, maybe we're having it again. Uh, but in any event, uh, the, what they were doing was something that is illegal under international law. Uh, in an effort to uh, engage in uh, uh, and harm the United States uh, culturally in a variety of other ways and to create uh, divisiveness in the United States. This may well, just be an issue where we have a difference. But, but is I it a violation not, of international law? I do not regard law. it as lawful uh, by the part of Russia. Is Voice of America, is Voice of America a violation of international uh, law? I, I, did, I did President Obama violate international law when he went to the UK and encouraged them to vote right. against Brexit? I don't think it was. It, now, the, of, the difference may be disinformation and the manipulation of information, but it's another thing, A, if it's done openly, but B, when you're talking about the release of accurate information, you know, in, undisputably, what did the New York Times do in the New York Times case? You know, everybody celebrated. They released classified information about the Vietnam War. But, uh, you know, I, I think there is a difference between, I do think that manipulation, for example, they get into the voting machines and all that, that that's a whole different ballgame. Uh, By the way, they were trying to do that, Charlie. 
and nor were they simply releasing uh, correct information. Uh, they were creating a whole series of sites that actually uh, were fake news in the worst sense of the term, uh, deliberately. But, to but does that violate international law? Other, uh, issues. You and I are going to differ on this if you yeah. believe that, that what they engaged in was lawful under international law. Well, I'm not I saying that. Take, I'm, just, I'm asking the question. About that. And, and if it is, then we've got to look in the mirror and see what, what we would oh, do. Well, I, think there are, I think there are considerable differences between uh, an open voice of America or something of that sort and basically the kinds of activities which they undertook against the election. In any event, we're getting, we're getting off the... Uh, uh, structure here. You'll notice, by the way, I had, I had four questions I were going to ask this group. I should have realized that with such a, a very able uh, group that I should give them 30 seconds each uh, in response to each one of these. Mm -hmm. But it's now open to the audience. Uh, we have about an extra 10 minutes. Okay. Let's, let's, do, uh, let's take the full time on Q&A until they're exhausted uh, from the audience. It's now open. Yes. Right Sir, if the ICJ is not the appropriate body to address the issues with um, use ad bellum and cyber capabilities or other potential emerging technologies, um, then what are the appropriate bodies to address those questions? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and I, and I threw one out. You know, we're starting to see, for example, with space, the codes, codes of conduct, and norm building in that way. So in other words, I think we have to look at that, taking into account uh, state practice and so forth. So I just don't think in the area of technology that the ICJ is going to be timely enough, expert enough uh, to provide other than much after the fact guidance. Our, Opinions. I wouldn't even call it guidance because by the time it comes out, I think in many instances that it'll be overtaken by the technology. So I, I really think that norm building, we need to look at other ways. Opinion of jurists may be important. Uh, one of the things Mike Schmidt wrote about uh, before the DOD manual came out, and he co-authored it with somebody, um, I can't remember who, is that the lack of United States opinion of jurists was really hurting us in the... Um, you know, establishing the norms for cyber. I think part of the answer was, I don't, I'm not sure the United States knew what they wanted the norms to be, given the capabilities of the United States relative to other parties. But nevertheless, I think that's, that's one way. Uh, I wish I were smarter to come up with, the, with another way, but I don't think an adjudicative body as the way the ICJ is currently right. organized would be reactive enough. Can I add to that? I think, you know, it's, it's, it's the larger question the core international lawyers will ask is about the changing character of international law, right? In the classic sense, international, custom international law was deductive. We looked out. We, it was a deductive process. Modern custom is more inductive, much more instantaneous, much faster to develop, and therefore, therefore, consequentially, much more subject to abuse. You know, you can't swing a stick without hitting some lawyer who will say, ah, that's international law. That's customary international law. So I think what you really have to do is use the forum that's most likely to get real articulations of state opinion juris. And, and ICJ is not that, uh, to go to your question. Uh, you know, the Sixth Committee, the ILC processes, there's lots of ways to do that where you're going to formally put states on notice on a particular issue, whether it's cyber or election interference or the developing state of uh, the right to go do, as Joram would say, law enforcement on, you know, sorry. 
six committee ILC put states on the dime and make them answer publicly sometimes you see some of this in Security Council debates but that's what you look for a real articulations of state opinion yours in my view which which then marry with state practice that's how you show custom you don't just engage in a Lex Ferenda exercise mm -hmm. of what we want the law to be well also um, I think the Basically, what you do when you have an issue like this is you, as I think the panelists have, have indicated, you create the rules by getting together and agreeing on them. The question is, okay, so you've agreed on these rules. What are the consequences of a failure to follow these rules? And the, in some cases, it's possible to come up with something that works fairly well. And I think the uh, the WTO is an example where it probably does work okay. But the, the more you have a, a problem on a, a, where the rules inhibit sovereignty, the greater the problem you're going to have with any kind of um, supranational body making a decision on this. And that's what we, and um, I think it just boils down to a question of how much one wants to agree to the a supranational body, but particularly an imperfect one, making rules that affect uh, sovereignty. And the as part of my point is that the Chinese and the Russians said, we don't care about that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they walk away from the Arctic Sunrise decision, they walk away from the South China Sea thing. We've kind of trapped out, we will trap ourselves into that, say, oh, no, 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 we believe in the rule of law, and we believe that the ICJ is going to be perfect and correct each time. Fact of the matter, they're not. So we just shouldn't agree to that. We should not be subject to the jurisdiction of it. If we have a boundary dispute with somebody that we want to have a voluntary submission to jurisprudence to solve something that the ICJ can solve, that's fine. I wouldn't keep them on a permanent payroll, but other than that. Next Charlie, question. Mike yes. Schmidt authored that, uh, yes. co-authored that article with Sean Watts at Creighton okay. University, just for reference. My question is about the requirement of violence in the USAD bellum. I was persuaded by Professor Denstein's book on war, aggression, and self-defense that no amount of political or economic coercion or presumably information manipulation could implicate the use ad bellum, use of force, but then General Dunlap, your comment about cyber suggested that maybe that's going to be different in that context. Could you talk about that? Well, two things about it. Number one, Professor Dinstein is exactly correct in, about the current state of the law. I'm just suggesting that in an interdependent global world where you have technology empowering small groups and nations to do things which were unheard of 10 years ago, that we might have to rethink that because of the way uh, in an interdependent world, uh, I've had some students write on this, if the Russians decide to cut off gas shipments to you know, certain countries and people are, are freezing to death, what, what happens there? You know? Or water disputes. If you if you look around the world, water disputes, you know, in theory, would not trigger a right to self-defense. But when people are actually dying in your country, that that may change things. Same thing with cyber. I think that even this exploitation of information may get to such an egregious level that nations will respond to it, 
even if it doesn't fit, even if you don't have a bodies in the street. Um, I'm not saying that's the law now, but I can see, I, I, I would not be flabbergasted if there was a situation sometime in the future where, where that happened and a nation responded asymmetrically, so to speak, to, to something that doesn't have violence with some sort of use of force uh, that we, we may see that in the future. Yoram Densi. Ma'am, uh, to tell you the truth, I was somewhat confused by several segments of the discussion. So let me start with some uh, obvious uh, truth. You know, in the city of Jefferson, it may be a good idea to do it. Number one, not everything is illegal. Number two, not everything that is illegal is necessarily illegal under international law. It can be illegal under domestic law, but not under international law. Number three, not everything that is illegal under international law is necessarily uh, related to the use of force, to the unlawful use of force. Number four, not everything which is an unlawful use of force is necessarily an armed attack. Uh, I know that the United States is not very clear on this issue, but allow me to remind you that there are matters which are called in Latin de minimis. That is to say some slight use of force, somebody using a firearm, shooting across the border and hitting a tree. That's an armed attack. Clearly not, not even in the view of the United States. Then not everything which is illegal as an armed attack is necessarily illegal under the use in bello, and so forth. And if you use these five general truths, you can resolve several of the matters that were that have arisen in this discussion. Uh, for example, espionage may be illegal under domestic law. It's not illegal under international law. It may be a good idea for uh, Charlie or anybody else to rethink the, the matter. Rethinking is always recommended. That does not make law. It makes perhaps uh, uh, the potentiality of law in the future. In the meantime, any form of espionage under international law is not illegal. Then, therefore, if you move to cyber, for example, most cyber relates indeed to intelligence gathering. And as such, it is not illegal at all. Not every cyber uh, use or manipulation amounts to an attack. Not every attack is an armed attack. And in fact, it's important to bear in mind that only in the very rare occasions can a cyber attack amount to an armed attack. I've given the examples and they've been used ever since, way back in 1999 in the first conference on cyber attacks held in this country in uh, Newport. At that time it was not even called cyber attacks, it was called CNAs, you know, computer yep. network computer attacks. Network. And the example that I gave was, number one, you can gain control of a computer in an airliner flying out there above the clouds and simply manipulate the altitude meter in such a way that the pilot will crash because he thinks that he is in altitudes of, say, a thousand feet, whereas in fact it's zero in fog situations, snow situations, so forth and everybody on board gets killed, that's an armed attack without any doubt. But, but, but more importantly, gain control of the nu nuclear reactor 
of another party and bring about a meltdown. You can cause Hiroshima without having nuclear weapons of your own. Yeah, That's not an armed attack. We, we all agree with that. We all agree with that, that when there's a manifestation in, in death or destruction, that that's the equivalent of an armed attack and would trigger the right to self-defense. All I'm suggesting is that uh, with the abilities now to crunch data, to gather data, it's exponentially different from the from the context in which the rule against espionage and espionage activities emerged. And so I'm just suggesting that we may have to rethink it. And let me give you another example, Bitcoin. I just wrote a piece on can you target Bitcoin? What do you think the answer to that is? Can you target it in a way that doesn't, doesn't kill anybody, doesn't destroy anything? There's a question, may or, or can't? Uh, physically can with quantum computers, but let's assume yeah. that, that, you, that you can. Is that an attack? And the answer under current international law is no. Most people would say anyway, because it's just the manipulation of data. It doesn't manifest itself in physical destruction, because Bitcoin doesn't exist in physical, and it's not the currency of any state right now. I think uh, That's what I was Marshall thinking. Islands is, is considering making it their currency. But what's going to, a couple years from now, when people are actually using Bitcoin, and it will have real consequences if it's attacked. Are people going to say, well, you know, that's not an attack. We can't respond to it. You know, we have to maybe get a UN Security Council resolution. I'm not so sure that's going to be the case. So, yeah. so I, I do think that we have to reevaluate progressively uh, what, whether we really want to stick, and Professor Dinstein is 100% correct in that most international lawyers today would say that you need to have some kind of physical harm or destruction or loss of uh, use of the computer in a unique way. I'm just not sure that's going to be the future. Let me quote an eminent scholar on this, because I think Yoram is exactly right. Carson the butler from Downton Abbey, right? <laughs> What's the point of living if we never change? He just set out the precise legal analysis and the framework by which we would actually answer these questions. I assure you, I would go on a limb here, I'll, bet, I'll give you my watch if I'm wrong. If the ICJ assessed those issues, they would not do such a thoughtful, careful, sequential, reasoned analysis. So we're back to kind of where we started. Charlie may be right. This is why I don't do hypotheticals in class, you know? But the point is you've got to approach them as very careful technical questions. The right question is the Article 2.4 Article prohibits the use of force. That's the right question. What is a permissible use of force? What is an impermissible use of force? Because the general prohibition, you're, you're pushing against the general prohibition, which to reiterate is a use Kogan's norm. So what we're talking about are, Im, are permissible uses of other state power that don't rise to the level of being a prohibited use of force under 2.4. That's a big debate to have. And I think it's an important debate, not one you're going to get at the ICJ. Yoram, we'll come back to you as part of this discussion. Right. Uh, Charlie, you can rethink everything to your heart content. That does not create new international law. The Bitcoin uh, scenario that you gave us is no different than counterfeiting, uh, say, US dollars by a foreign nation. Is this legal? It is not. Is this an armed attack? It is not. All Just I'm as intervening in the election in the United States is not an armed attack, no matter how you cut the, the cake. It's not an armed attack. 
Just on the Bitcoin issue, there's a physical limitation to what you can do in counterfeiting, and you are talking about the currency of a, of a nation state, not something that doesn't have any, any, physical, any physicality to it. So I, I mean, because I do think, I can foresee in the future that a state where Bitcoin, I use Bitcoin for all cryptocurrencies, Cryptocurrencies become so embedded in somebody's, um, you know, economy that its destruction or devaluation, remember, it's easy to devalue mm -hmm. cryptocurrency just mm -hmm. by, you can announce, hey, we have a way of destroying it, and you're, you, you cost people billions of dollars. So I, I do think that, and that we're going to see this evolution. And we saw that in the, in the Nuremberg trials. Do you remember what they said in the very beginning? when they were talking about, because prior to Nuremberg, the idea of holding individuals personally culpable for war crimes was actually a new idea. It was usually nations that were held. And I think I'm quoting from memory, which I, it's like doing math in public, but uh, the court said something, or the tribunal said something like, uh, the law of war is not static. It must, it evolves to meet the needs of the, the world or something like that. And I think that's what, so in other words, Professor Dinstein is 100% correct on where we are now. And Mike's 100% correct in that we need to make clear what the current law is versus what, where it might be and, and so forth. But I would also suggest to you that you could have a very quick evolution of the law in the area of high technology based on the consequences. And you will have state practice that isn't going to be, they're not going to be flipping through the Talon manual to see what they can or cannot do when, they, when their country has been devastated economically or in some other way that isn't in the traditional uh, harm. Norm, would you like to? Well, yeah. right, I was interrupted. No, please do. As you know, okay. Uh, Charlie, quoting from memory is always hazardous. <laughs> the International Military Tribunal actually stated categorically that war crimes trials had been held prior to Nuremberg on the basis of the Hague regulations of 1907, even though the, the Hague regulations do not say that violation carries criminal responsibility. Nevertheless, war crimes trials have been held. The only new aspect of uh, the International Military Tribunal judgment, and of course it's a big element, is the issue of crimes against peace. This is the first time that crimes against peace were uh, uh, regarded as crimes under international law, and the same applies to crimes against humanity, but not to war crimes only. War crimes had precedence before. Point taken. But, uh, Coming back to it, there is always a tendency when you don't like the policy of a particular country to regard it as an armed attack. This is dangerous. And you should always ask yourself, is it really an armed attack? Because more often than not, it is not. It is perhaps a violation of international law, but not an armed attack. Finally, you know, in my general thoughts, remember, even if it is illegal, if it is an armed attack, even if it's a violation of the boat use at Bellum and use in Bellum, the question is, should it be brought before the International Court of Justice? Is this the ideal body to deal with it? And the answer, more often than not, is no. Much better to bring it before the Security Council where it belongs. 
the International Court of Justice has uh, unfortunately a tendency to move into fields where it is very weak and where you can foresee in advance that it's not going to advance international law. Uh, only this week, the International Court of Justice decided to resolve the issue of a conflict, not armed conflict, conflict between Bolivia and Chile as to whether Chile should cede to Bolivia part of its territory so that Bolivia will cease to be a landlocked country and will have access to the coast. Now I'm asking you, suppose that the International Court of Justice, after months if not years of deliberation, will say, yes, Chile should do it. Will Chile observe the judgment? Is there any chance of Chile deciding to cede parts of its territory? Now the same is true of Nicaragua. The problem is not that when we read the judgment, you know, the final product of the court in 1986, we said, wow, this was a mistake to go there. Everybody said that it was a mistake to go there. The United States said we are not collaborating with you since 1984. What was the point of going into what was clearly simply an opportunity to collide head on with the United States to bring about the withdrawal of the United States from the court and to diminish the reputation of the court? The court, unfortunately, has political considerations in mind and uh, these political considerations in which it has in mind often outweigh logic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next uh, question, we have time, let's say, for uh, <clears throat> one or two more questions. Sounds to me like, yes, go ahead. Well, <clears throat> may I ask a question of the audit? Sure. <laughs> I'm going to ask a, 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 a Professor Denstein. Are you saying that counterfeiting does not give a right of self-defense that where one could use, among other things, force to counter it? Well, counterfeiting in peacetime is without any doubt illegal under international law. Mind you, it's not illegal in wartime. This is permissible in wartime. And uh, in, during World War II, it was done by both sides. Right. So the practice of states is clear. But even when it is illegal, it is not an armed attack. It may be a good idea to hold the conference on the definition of an armed attack. Unfortunately, the phrase is, the phrase is not defined in Article 51 of the Charter. <coughs> there is now a definition of aggression in the, the, the uh, Kampala Amendment to the Rome Statute of the International Court of Justice based on the 1974 General Assembly definition of aggression. Most people would say that the definition of aggression coincides with the definition of an armed attack. Is that the case? We do not know for sure. But in any event, nobody has suggested that counterfeiting comes into, into that. An armed, an armed attack usually means either invasion or in any event, an intrusion into the territory of another state, which is done deliberately, or it is something that uh, relates to uh, human casualties and significant property destruction. And uh, therefore, uh, many, many aspects of cyber uh, warfare, as they are called, are neither warfare, they are cyber, but they are not warfare, and in any event, they have nothing to do with an armed attack. And uh, as for Talim, uh, I don't know whether there is anybody here from the DOD, but I visited the, the Pentagon in December, 
and was somewhat surprised to hear that they are completely opposed to the Tallinn manual, which is supposed to represent the NATO view. No, no, what kind no, of a NATO no, view no, it is it that the United States is not behind? On that, on the technical point, um, I think Joram's ex exactly right. But that was one of the things, one of the small successes of U.S. diplomacy in Kampala, which was to get the clear language in, in, in the statute itself, not in the elements, not in, but in the statute itself, that we're talking about the crime of aggression, not the act of aggression. And to make it very clear on the text, somebody said this earlier, maybe it was Joram, that the Security Council is the appropriate body jurisprudentially to determine an act of aggression, hence, in my view, an armed attack that what, what Kampala does is, is prescribe the, the parameters of the crime of aggression for the sui generis purposes of the ICC. So don't, that's why I cautioned earlier in my comments, don't conflate the two and say, oh, we got Kampala, now we got a Rome Statute 8 bis, so we've sort of addressed these issues and we've empowered the court. You can't make that mistake. Incidentally, that's also true of humanitarian intervention, John. As but, you know, following Kosovo, the Secretary General appointed a high-level uh, group in order to study the matter. Right. The report of the high-level group came before the Security Council in an unprecedented summit meeting on the head of state level, which uh, I do not have to tell you uh, when it came up with a unanimous declaration, that's customary international law. If anything, is customary international law, when all the heads of state agree unanimously on something. And they are the ones that uh, actually uh, coined the new phrase, responsibility to protect, known for short as R2P. And it says clearly, yes, there is a responsibility to protect. However, the responsibility to protect belongs in the uh, courtyard of the Security Council. And only the Security Council can decide in a binding manner to have R2P, i.e. humanitarian intervention. And therefore, humanitarian inter anyone who supports humanitarian intervention today is behind the times. Uh, just a quick clarification. Talon 2.0 is not a NATO product. NATO contributed to it, but it is not an expression I think it says it right in the, in the manual that it's not an expression, e A, of NATO or B, of any particular state. And that's why, C, you'll see in the DOD Law of War manual that it takes a different position. And D, the DOD Law of War manual in and of itself says it's only binding on the Department of Defense and doesn't necessarily represent the opinion of, I think it's a spurious statement in there because it's if it manifests itself in state practice, it's going to, you know, become representative of the United States. Yoram, I'm going to have to rise to at least one of the, uh, the points. You're probably right that I'm old enough to be well behind the times, but uh, <laughs> I'd like to, um, uh, to defend humanitarian intervention um, because I firmly believe in it, as do many uh, uh, professors of law in the United States uh, for many years, including, as you know, Myers McDougall and others that uh, strongly have supported it. As you know, it's the official position of the uh, United Kingdom uh, judgment. Um, as you probably know, it was debated in the United States uh, Department of State between the policy planning staff at the time of Kosovo and the legal advisor's office, with the policy planning staff, in my judgment, saying quite properly uh, we should have moved forward, saying that humanitarian intervention under appropriate circumstances was correct. Uh, it was supported by the legal advisor of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as a better way to deal with the issue uh, 
uh, in Kosovo. And as to the uh, discussions uh, in the Security Council in relation to this, uh, you and I know that there are many, many um, statements uh, made by international institutions and discussions that in fact don't reflect international law uh, concerning, uh, you said, Bellum, including many of those we've just been looking at in the International Court of Justice. But if we look at this question of uh, what was really happening in the UN, uh, I believe the answer is they were authorizing uh, a responsibility to protect, which as you've indicated correctly, was solely uh, something for the United Nations itself. We saw this in Libya, the, whether good or bad, uh, a new concept, but it's really basically just based on Security Council authorization. I would differentiate strongly responsibility to protect from humanitarian intervention and the requirements for that. But you and I agree on so many, so many different things, uh, Yoram, that uh, there may be one small one here on the potential of humanitarian intervention by individual states not authorized by the Security Council where we have a difference. Let me just add, humanitarian intervention per se, not R2P. Humanitarian intervention right. came before the Institute of International Law, which right. rejected it by a lopsided majority. Right. Out of hand. And uh, that is a fair representation of uh, international law on this planet. Well, what, what I find sad is they're just a little bit behind the, uh, uh, you know, where the world is going uh, in relation to this. And I'd like to believe that those of us that believe in humanitarian intervention are ahead of the game, not behind it. And one of the major reasons for that, uh, I would suggest that uh, those in the audience that haven't looked at uh, Rudy Rummel's death by government should have a look at it because uh, what it shows, this was funded by the U.S. Institute of Peace, what it shows is that in the 20th century, governments in just the 20th century alone slaughtered their own populations at a rate somewhere between double and quadruple the totality of all combatant casualties uh, uh, in all wars of the 20th century combined. In other words, governments killing their own people is an enormously important uh, component of human rights. And uh, I will remain one of those, like my former colleague Richard Lillick and Professor Myers McDougall, that strongly support uh, and am saddened by uh, uh, these uh, determinations, uh, uh, which you're, you state absolutely correctly, Yoram, uh, do point in the other direction as to uh, state practice and, and uh, authoritative expectations. Okay. Thank you.